we're here because of the music. We are band-aid. You like Huey Lewis on the news? On the news? I like this song. guys, my name's Misa, and I'm here for the Danny Elfman appreciation episode. Whoop whoop! <laughs> and Sondheim. <laughs> and Sondheim. Oh, and uh, the other guy. <laughs> and Burton. Well, if you are hearing this right now, then uh, that means that we successfully recorded an episode in person. Yay! Fuck <laughs> coronavirus! Because we're finally reunited. Yeah, yeah. No, of course... Pandemic is still ongoing, but we are being very safe right now. Frankie's about six feet away. Yeah. Martha, you're a good distance, and we all have masks on. Yeah, hubby did a good job setting everything up to make sure that we would still be socially distanced. Yes. Still could see and hear everyone. Uh, just want to be safe during the pandemic, but still together because, guys, Zencaster sucks, and the <laughs> lag is awful, and I can't do it so zencaster can be such a pain because one thing wrong with zencaster we have no control over it and then we just have to like try again tomorrow yeah yeah it sucks i mean sometimes it comes in handy sometimes <laughs> but there was a lot like there was one time where it was like two weekends in a row oh my gosh it's it's that server yeah. i think everybody started a podcast yeah and then they all flocked to zencaster because it was free because of the pandemic mm-hmm. which shit now i gave it away now more people are gonna it's, be it's on. not free anymore guys <laughs> it's not free anymore just a heads up but um hey we have someone very <gasps> special here today yes Hi everyone! That is our friend Martha. Yay, Martha! Yay. All oh. the spirit fingers. I know. Yes. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, oh, man. I'm so happy to oh, finally gosh. be here with y'all. We've been talking about it for oh my gosh. Well, we haven't really eaten before COVID. We would try to eat together, you know, yeah. as soon as as much as we could. And then after COVID, I think we've done like two or three dinners. When restaurants reopened, of course, mm-hmm. safely. Um, and we've talked about it since then, like having Martha on as a guest since we started the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. That yeah. was always mm-hmm. in the works. And so, you know, COVID delayed that a little bit, but we're so excited to have our first in person past, what is that called? Um, post. Post COVID? Uh, what is it after? It would be like AAC, right? Like, after COVID. Apres, apres COVID or something, you know? Latin. Let's Latin it. Latin it. Whatever the Latin she term is. She just went Latin on you. <laughs> it's the language of love, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, man, honestly, like, when we first started the podcast, you were one of the first people I thought of. Well, and I think I was one of the first people that you told that you were going to start a podcast. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah, and I remember it because, obviously, like, Martha is pretty much are more or less our target audience for sure for sure like you are more or less like i get i think our demographic a hundred percent and and i knew that you would appreciate 
an endeavor such as this. So. Yes, yes. We're not everyone's cup of tea, but we're the awesome people's cups of tea. Exactly. We're the tea that's <laughs> spiked and not everybody can take it. Oh, I like it. <laughs> that's like what it is. It. So, Martha, how long have we known you? <laughs> I believe it's 20 years this oh, year. Oh, oh my okay, that's, God. Hold on. Hold that's on. It. Edit. Absolutely Edit. not. <laughs> Absolutely not. That is rounding up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. That, okay, so we talked about Misa's bomb-ass party, mm-hmm. or if you follow her on regular Instagram, a bomb ass Halloween party slash birthday extravaganza. Another COVID safe event. Of everyone. course. Nobody of caught course. COVID at my party. And, mm, mm, I'm going to keep. <laughs> I was very proud of that, by the way. She did amazing, as other people do not always follow that same suit. That's all I'm going to say. They just need me to throw their parties. I'm a little in my feelings about that comment, but it's okay. <laughs> um. No, Martha and I were talking about it and saying, like, okay, you're this old. Like, how long have we known each other? Because, of course, you know, mixed crowds. We saw some people who we hadn't seen before. Right. Um, and in talking about, like, oh, no, like, we've known Misa since this age. I was like, holy shit. We're old. Yeah. <laughs> but not really. I was like, we're seasoned. Yeah. <laughs> We've been marinating. Frankie was like, there's no way seventh grade was 20 years ago. I'm like, it was. I'm like, it was 2001. That's fucking insane. It was, it was when 9-11 happened. You're, yeah. When started middle school. Yeah. When my youngest sister was born. Mm-hmm. Yes, dude. It was, oh my God. It's crazy. Like, all of us are just, like, in silence because what? What? How is this possible? But it, you know what? We've done a great job growing up. That's all I can yeah. say. Yeah, I think so. I'm definitely not as sensitive <laughs> as I was in the eighth grade. <gasps> I think we are all sensitive though, because you know you're you're hormonal. You can't control you're, that. You're at that coming of age age yeah. where you're like, I don't know if I'm lost or if I'm finding myself yet. That's a very hard age, especially as a girl. I will say that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a hard age for everyone, but when you're a female, whoo, those are some tough years. Especially when you have like, you know, you're surrounded by these certain beauty standards, and oh. then everyone in school is prettier than you, and then you're just like the ugly. T- Oh, God. Well, but the 2000s, let's talk about that really quickly because it was not kind to people who are curvy at all. Remember the really low, low jeans that didn't even have, like, the tabs on them for, like, your belt? Exactly. Your thong was supposed to be hanging out. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, what? Crop tops were itty-bitty. Yeah. Like, no one had boobs who was famous Mm -hmm. at all. Like, everyone was starving themselves. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to go out and eat together. Where does that fit into that beauty standard? It doesn't. So it was it was hard, but we found our tribe, we found our people, mm-hmm. and we've still remained friends past all of our, you know, tribulations, all of our worst, worst, worst moments. Yep. And now we're here, you know, mm-hmm. fucking rocking a podcast. And who else can say that? Not very many people, that's who. That's, it's, that speaks a lot. It does. Yeah, for sure, for and sure. And those people who were beautiful back then are not now. Very much true. So... I'm just going to say that. This is the part where I get quiet. Because <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> the most popular girl in school. Ugh. Sorry, we're not we're not enjoying someone else's misery. We just think it's interesting that certain people can fall from grace so hard. Mm-hmm. And peak so early. That's sad. I mean, when you peak early, it's great in the moment. But then, like, what do you have to look forward to? The rest of your life. Right. No. They're, the yeah, nothing. Popping out more children, I guess. <laughs> Not, I don't know. It's. I'm sorry. I hope that you are happy with your life 
person who I'm talking about. Who's, who's probably not a listener. She's not listening. She's not our demographic at all. No, I don't think she has time for us. No, probably not. Not with like her eight children or whatever. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. I think we narrowed it down now. <laughs> I think anyone who we went to middle school with is like, oh, they knew. I hope you know. <laughs> I hope you know. They know. Anyway, not, not the later. point. So Martha. So, okay. When we knew Martha in eighth grade, and she's in seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. And she's still very much a lot like who she was in seventh and eighth grade as far as like her music taste and her oh, style. Yeah. yeah. So when we were in like eighth grade, and like that's when I was really starting to get to know you. Mm-hmm. We had health together seventh seventh grade. Yes. But I did not start like bonding with you until eighth grade theater, mm-hmm. which is eighth grade theater was like one of the best years of my life. It was. That was that was an awesome time period. It really I was. had so much fun. I still vividly remember after rehearsal, we had rehearsal like the day before a show after school and we all ordered Chinese food mm-hmm. together and it was like three hundred dollars and we were like taking orders mm-hmm. and just like we felt so grown up. <laughs> it was it was still Aww. one of my fondest memories, though. We all have double fried rice. Right. I love our Chinese food night. Yes. <laughs> it was so fun. So good. So good. So then, so back then, and to this day, Martha was, like, super crazy about you, too. And she was in love with... Bono. Oh, gosh. Yes, Another. that is her man. Yeah. Now I can say I've met him three times. I'm oh, very that. Right. Did you get a kiss? We've kissed on the cheek. <gasps> oh my god! We are one degree away from Bono right now. That is okay. And if I, I have... kiss your cheek, that means I've technically kissed Bono. Exactly. Go kiss her. Oh, okay. well, I mean, after, after COVID. COVID. After COVID. <laughs> after COVID. <laughs> Yeah, this just turned into a pillow party, guys. Oh, my gosh. Let's, I let's had a get feeling this was going to happen. That's why I was like, I have to be done by this time. Lisa's like, we have plenty of time. I was like, we've been recording for 10 minutes. <laughs> Feels like 10 seconds. It really does. Now, I was actually uh, realizing the other day that it was three years ago this week that I was in Ireland when I last saw you 2 That was oh my, my last YouTube show three years ago. Wow. And that was... Well, y'all remember in middle school, that was my dream to yes. go to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to go and so bad and then it only took me like 17 years after that fact to finally go but it was fucking worth it hey it happened Mm -hmm. it happened that's amazing that's awesome not everyone can say that so huge huge Mm -hmm. feat in of itself very cool wow so eighth grade martha would be so in awe of you i would like she would be jealous of you and you're the same person (laughs) (laughs) yes like can you can you imagine her reaction though if you went back in time and you're like just be patient. Be patient. Mm-hmm. You will one day get to have this experience. Exactly. Like, can you imagine? Because we, we were so impatient in eighth grade. Oh, God, you know, yes. We were so impatient. We wanted everything to happen now, now, now. Like, yeah, guilty. But yeah. I think that's how most, you know, middle school age kids oh, are. Oh, sure. We don't learn no fucking patience until later on. <laughs> yeah, when your brain is more solidified at 25. That's exactly. when it happens. So, in addition to being like a super big YouTube fan, Martha, tell us a little more. Tell our Soundtrack City listeners a little more about yourself. Let's say at least three random facts. Random facts. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I've got two dogs that 
most of y'all probably don't know about. I've got two old men that I love. Like I got a 12-year-old um, Husky German Shepherd mix Aww. and a 11-year-old Black Lab. Those are my babies. I love labs. <laughs> so cute. Uh, I have one older sister. We are 16 and a half years apart. My one sibling. And surprisingly, um, despite our age difference, we are very close. And we have a lot in common. And she's actually been to a lot of those YouTube shows with me. Aww. So that's one of our like sister bonding things that we do. And third, hmm, I do collect shot glasses from places I've traveled to. But of course, because of COVID, having not to do any of that in a while. But that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. At least you're staying safe and like not. Yeah. And I, I'd rather wait till not only, you know, it's kind of declared more safer to travel, but when I feel more comfortable to do so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. But it will happen for sure. For sure. Cool. Cool. I, I randomly remembered, now that you're talking about your sister, I randomly remembered me, you, her, uh, like we went to go see Catch Me If You Can that mm-hmm. one time. And then we went to Denny's. We did. <laughs> It was you, me, and my sister. But yeah, man. Eighth grade was good times. What? All those movie nights. It's like sneaking into one movie, having ticket for another. Oh, gosh. Yes. And then Red Robin gave you discounts with your ticket stub? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Or was it Cheddar's? Or was it both? I think it was Cheddar's. It was Cheddar's. I don't know if Red Robin was open yet at the time. I don't think they were. It eventually, I know it opened into our high school year, because I know sophomore year, we definitely went to Red Robin. Yes. And then, yeah, it, I remember it, we, we switched eventually. Yes. Because Cheddar started going down. Cheddar started did. going down. Um, they were so sweet to us when we first started going, like, mm-hmm. in eighth grade. Michael. Michael and Katie. Yes. Wherever love you them. are. Wherever oh, you are, we love you. Yes. I us going to Chili's a couple times, too. Ooh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that was when we didn't, maybe, like, not a movie night, but maybe we just went for dinner. Mm-hmm. And we would just go, like, hang out, and then, like, wherever we'd end up, like, the mall. Right. The <laughs> yeah. mall or that Barnes co- & Nobles, because I feel like we were always at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, exactly. We were, yeah. Yeah. So, those were our eighth grade hangs. That was that was what we could do when we could get a ride in 20 bucks. <laughs> right? And a lot of it was, like, the movie was next to somewhere, so we would walk across yeah. the parking lot, across the little freeway mm-hmm. thing. But we could literally, for 20 bucks, see a movie and get dinner. And afterwards. get dinner. 20 And leave a tip. <laughs> and leave a tip. Yeah. yeah. Not anymore. Not nope. anymore. Not unless we went to go see, like, the matinee or something. <laughs> Even then, those have gone up. I think. Even they those. really have. Yeah, and it does depend on where you go, too. But So, today, we are all going to be discussing films that were directed by Tim Burton. Yes. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe a little bit. And, uh... <laughs> just for some tad. people out there familiar Just with a him. tad. And Martha is nervous about going first. I am. I'm very nervous. That's but okay. I'm excited too. We always let the guest go first. Yes. And you are our second guest ever. Awesome. So let's hear about what movie you chose. So I am going to be talking today about the 2005 stop motion musical dark fantasy film Corpse Bride. Yay! Love this movie so much. I remember when it came out, I believe we were in. 11th grade I want to say high school for sure and upon first watching it I immediately fell in love with it I will say you know total you know clarity I was already a big Tim Burton fan of course um grown you know I grew up watching a lot of his films I believe surprisingly enough the first Tim Burton directed movie I ever saw was Batman actually That was the first one. (laughs) Nightmare Before Christmas, another film I love. I actually discovered that a little bit later in life. Mm -hmm. I think I was maybe like 
14 when I first saw that one. I'm shocked by that. I know. I know. You would not think that. Um, Don't know why I never saw it as a child. I really am not sure. But I was always aware of it. And, of course, by the time I first watched it, I'd seen other, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Burton, you know, directed films. And when I first watched it, of course, fell in love with that one as well. So, but when Corpse Rite came out, I was like, this is an awesome, awesome film. Visually stunning. Lots of great music in it, of course. Yes. (laughs) Love it. I love the colors in this film. Mm -hmm. It's so, like, dark and blue and just, it's pretty. Yeah. I love it. It's very atmospheric. Mm -hmm. It definitely enhances the story for sure. I guess I'll kind of start talking a little bit about the plot of the movie, of course. So it opens, um, it looks like it takes place in about 19th century uh, Victorian times in England. So we open on a small town. Uh, We see there's kind of like, like, you know, a little bit of a buzz in the air, as you would say. Uh, we see, we quickly learn that the town is getting ready for a wedding rehearsal. And we learn in the film's opening song, According to Plan, that it is actually uh, a young man named Victor Van Dort who is getting married to a young woman named Victoria um, Van Glott. It's a beautiful day. It's a rather nice day. A day for a glorious wedding. A rehearsal, my dear, to be perfectly clear. A rehearsal for a glorious wedding. So we quickly learn through the lyrics of the song that the Van Dorts, they are newly rich, you could say. They've made money uh, by being fish merchants. And they are marrying off their son to Victoria because she is from an older class of wealth. So we see that the Van Dorts are very excited by that. They are making sure that everything goes according to plan for the wedding rehearsal. We quickly, and of course, this is an arranged marriage, of course. These two have never met each other. This is strictly a financial sort of arrangement, if it's you will. It's a business arrangement, for sure. It is. It is. And, you know, you don't think about that still taking place at that time, but it most definitely was. So, during the song, we cut to uh, Victoria's parents, and they, unfortunately, are not as thrilled with the impending marriage as Victor's parents, but we quickly learn that even though they come from a long line of money and wealth, their family now is essentially penniless. So, they are marrying their daughter off to, as they put it, the nouveau rich. Not because they want to, but because they want to basically reinstill that money into their bloodline. Once that first song, According to Plan, ends, we quickly see the Van Dorts at the Van Glotts' home. And they're there for the start of the wedding rehearsal. So the, the, all the parents, they go off to another room really quick. And Victor, he's left there by himself. He sees a piano there in the big, you know, grand, you know, because even though they're not really rich anymore, they still have a nice big mansion and everything. But it's so empty. I've always thought that was so odd that even both families, like you see Mm -hmm. their houses and they're these huge Victorian like mansions, but they're essentially 
furniture list. Well, and I would think maybe in the Van Dort's case, maybe because their money is still so new, they haven't gotten around to furnishing their mansion yet. <laughs> That's a good point. They're being picky. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know what, now that you're talking about that, I think the other family probably, like, sold off some of their furniture. Yeah. For money. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Because so. you go, it's pretty much just the piano yeah. in this big, giant living room. It's kind of weird. Well, anyway, he goes over there and he starts playing away at a song, um, which is essentially, it's, a, it's an instrumental, and it's essentially called uh, Victor's Song, Victor's Piano Song. So he's playing, and we quickly see Victoria coming down the staircase because she hears the music, and she goes over there, and she kind of <laughs> creeps up behind him and startles him a little bit to tell him that you know he plays beautifully. And he's kind of a shy, awkward young man who's <sighs> pretty nervous about getting married to this woman. He's he, he immediately catches him off guard. He knocks over a flower vase. He's stuttering and just acting all weird and she reassures him that you know she was completely impressed by his playing and that she's not allowed to go anywhere near the piano because her mother says that it's music is improper for young ladies super big question i think is crap sorry (laughs) sorry (laughs) victor is johnny depp right yes and victoria is is played by because I know Helena is the corpse, right? Helena is the mm-hmm. corpse. Okay. It's Emily Watson, right? It is. Yeah. Emily Watson. Who's Emily Watson? Uh, ooh. Oh, one second, I please. picture Emma Watson, and I know that's yes. right. Yes. Ooh, that's who comes to mind also. Yeah. What a horrible name to have. Sorry, Emily. But I mean, you know what <laughs> I mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Emily. Super sorry, Emily. You know what I mean? Um, so she's been in uh, Punch Drunk Love. She was that one lady in Punch Drunk Love. She's the main interest? Yes. Yes. Okay. I haven't seen her in much. She's also in Kingsman. Okay, I haven't seen that at all. I actually do like those movies. So. The yeah, that's isn't. Yeah. Then there more than there's like three, right? Uh, yes, and I think a new one is coming out soon. Oh, Total yeah. segue. They Sorry. look really cool. <laughs> but I, I I like the commercials for those movies. <laughs> You're welcome. Where's my free ticket? <laughs> Any Hooters? Okay, so that's Emily Watson, who yes. is the arranged bride. Yes. yes. Got it. Yes, okay. it's I'm sorry. And Johnny Depp, of course, as Victor. Johnny Depp being one of Tim Burton's Faves. favorite. Yeah. Faves, favorite. yeah, go to. So they meet, and she kind of makes a comment, you know, you know, she always pictured her wedding days, being marrying someone special and all that. And surprisingly enough, they have this very sweet exchange between each other, even though they just met. Like, there's definitely a little spark there between them. And then they're interrupted by her mother basically freaking out that she's there around him without her chaperone, which I think is kind of weird in light of the fact that she's literally about to marry this dude. Like, but it's still, it's Victorian England. She has to be untouched. Exactly. <laughs> Unblemished, if you will. It's, yeah, that's an awkward thing to me because, like, I am all about, like, you should test drive before you marry. Exactly. I mean, yeah. That's a huge part of, like, being married to someone. However, I know that's totally... We're getting married for money. It's not about whether you love that person, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about the cash. (laughs) Your dowry. How much are you worth? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, because her family doesn't have money anymore, there is no dowry. It's mainly... it's, It's 
in a way to kind of benefit both of them in that case to mm-hmm. kind of you know have money restored to her name but also to restore all the prestige that comes with her family's mm-hmm. name to, to you know his newly rich family right so in a way it's kind of a, a I guess a good transaction if you will for both families at right. this point yeah quick question before you move on I'm sorry I, I forget does Victor's family know that Victoria's family is out of money I forgot I believe they do okay I believe they do but they're they're still very impressed by their family name and mm-hmm. their family history that they they really believe that their family's kind of you know combining that they're it's going to bring them into you know the upper society and you know got you that social class exactly exactly yeah because and listening to you talk about it Mm -hmm. and thinking like even back then and further back marriages were more like business arrangements and yes. uh-huh. like if, if there was land mm-hmm. if there were livestock cows if there was money yeah mm-hmm. like all that shit was valuable mm-hmm. so like if you were a struggling family it, who had financial issues you wanted to marry into someone who had exactly. <laughs> like no financial issue and who actually was really well off mm-hmm. and uh that's interesting because a lot of those elements come into my movie but we'll talk about that later right well to, and to bring it back just a little bit to kind of the first segment of the movie Victoria's basically like, well, what if, you know, me and Victor don't like each other? And her parents are like, you think you, you know, your father and I like each other? Of course not. Marriage isn't about liking, you know, someone. (laughs) 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 Okay. No comment on that. Anyway. Frankie's um, laugh is very... (laughs) 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 Wrong. It's like a a nervous laugh, but also a knowing laugh. (laughs) It's so hard to make things work if you don't like someone, whether money's involved or not. Exactly. I, I mean, unless it's, uh, oh my God, I'm blinking out. Playboy. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner. But I mean, oh, uh, yeah. obviously the money was worth staying around for that. Sorry. Yeah. I know Vi- Plus, Victor's I don't not. I technically married any of the... He came close with Holly and that was it. Yeah. And she's speaking out about that. It's obvious she did not like him. So you see, <laughs> that doesn't work no. historically at all. So... Ugh. Thank God Victor and Victoria do share that sweet moment, though, Mm -hmm. where you can see, like, okay, they do like each other, or they at least have something, like, that we could potentially work off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which, it's it's surprising, but it's sweet. It is very sweet. They obviously share a very quick connection when they meet. Mm -hmm. So, we, we go forward a few hours to the wedding rehearsal, which is still going on. And the priest, um, his name is Pastor Galswell, and he's actually voiced by the legendary actor Christopher Lee. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll take a moment. Bow uh, <sighs> before the power that yes. is Christopher Lee. Yes. Can we just, yes. Is he in your movie too? The voice. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Not to give away too much. He was supposed to be in my movie, but Tim decided to cut the initial song. Oh. And so Christopher Lee's part was in that because he is a fantastic singer mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so he's not credited. Okay. So, so he would be in like a director's cut. Mm-hmm. If it yes, yes. Like he is in the director's cut. Let me specify. Mm-hmm. Thank you. He's in the director's cut on the Blu-ray DVD 4k edition only mm-hmm. he is not on the regular one he's not on the one that you can watch on like my Flixer or download from amazon or any of that you have to purchase it to get that um it's like they include the um what they had were going to put in the movie before they cut it so all you get to do is hear his voice mm-hmm. but still 
you know. So he did record the track. Yes. Mm-hmm. He recorded the track. It was for the Benjamin Button, like, the opening mm. song. Mm-hmm. The Which Benjamin- isn't... Benjamin Button. Oh my God, I can't even think. I'm so sorry. Benjamin Harker. Wait, not Harker. I'm thinking Dracula. It's Barker. <laughs> it's Barker. Barker. Yeah. I'm thinking Barker. Jonathan Harker from Dracula. <laughs> we just combined all kinds of movies yeah. here. But uh, to be fair, Christopher Lee did used to play Dracula. He did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did. And mine was just a fuck up. So <laughs> this is a big web of a lot of the same characters and vibes. And this people. is what happens when Tim Burton uses the same people. I this get confused. A- I apologize <laughs> for my error. Which, surprise, that's another thing I'll talk about in a little bit about Christopher Lee and Tim Burton. You know, little funny tidbit right there. But he's the priest. He's, we see that he has quickly grown agitated by performing this wedding rehearsal because Victor is just screwing up right and left. He is fumbling over his vows. He's just, just being his, you know, kind of just awkward, sweet self. Mm -hmm. Like, even though... He's now met his future bride. He seems to really like her. It's not that he doesn't want to marry her. He is just very nervous about the whole thing. So he's trying to get him to repeat his vows. He's just fumbling the lines. He um, He's spilling over his glass of wine and everything. And then uh, Pastor Galswell basically says, you know, do you have the ring? And he, he pulls it out and he does have it. But then, of course, he drops it. It rolls across the floor. It it lands over there um, under Victoria's mother's dress. And then somehow a candle falls over and her dress catches fire. And it's just a It's a lot. I'm sorry. Two two things. One, it reminds me of the letter from Can't Hardly Wait. Yes. (laughs) And another, it reminds me of the dye in Jumanji. (gasps) <gasps> okay. Oh my god! Yes. Like, that's how I'm picturing Thanks this ring, just like, like, you know what I mean? Like the pig. It's still good. It's still good. It's fine. Five second rule. It's gone. It. They did such a good job though in that scene. Uh, I'm always fascinated by like the stock motion and how they came together with all mm-hmm. the different elements to show like oh, yeah. what you think would be your worst nightmare. Exactly. Like at a wedding scene. And it's exactly. like the facials and like all these little things that mm-hmm. happen. Like I, this scene is one of my favorites just because of the artistic uh, ability behind it. Like they did oh, yeah. so much in this scene. Mm-hmm. And that's, Scott Motion, we'll talk about that a little bit later too because obviously that's a completely fascinating art form in itself. It really is. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, during the rehearsal scene, um, a strange visitor shows up. You know, it's kind of just a family thing only, but a strange visitor shows up, and we find out his name is Lord Barkus. And he is voiced by the actor Richard E. Grant, who is, you know, a British actor. I, I believe he was in, if I'm not mistaken... Hang on, isn't her phone case fucking cool? Let me see. I saw it at dinner <gasps> last week. Oh, did you get that from the thing too? I got this from Redbubble. Oh, oh yeah. I've heard Red great bubbles. things. Great Red things. Great. Uh, to touch base with you, Richard E. Grant was in Dracula, mm-hmm. Age of Incidents. Oh, that's where I know him from. Spice World. Well, yes, he was in Spice World. <laughs> yes. That cult classic. Okay, that's the way. Yeah, that got me into a lot of trouble. Um, we talked about that. That's a collab episode? Yes. Just yes. Uh, Gosford Park, which I, I never saw, but I heard it was good. I've heard of it too, but I also don't think I've watched that one. Oh, that's where else I know him from. Logan. Yes. I knew his mm. name was familiar. Sorry. He's, yep. he's that guy. Mm-hmm. When you see him, you're like, that guy. I've you're seen like, him. I don't remember his name. Yeah. 
the guy right Just like what's her name from Miss um, Pirelli's, hold on, Miss Peregrine's. What is her name? I always forget her name, but she is like an amazing actress. Carla Gugino? Yep. Thank you. Mm. I love that you knew exactly who I was talking about. <laughs> that connection yep always <laughs> uh, like we need to play what's it called charades two words sounds like i feel like you would just be like that. or that other one they'd be like that guy who da 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 bam <laughs> yeah i think that we'd I think win Frank, we can telegraph mm-hmm. pretty well that's why we're so good at, that's why everybody hates us at pass the popcorn <sighs> which is out i'm so waiting for a day where we can have a game night maybe Ooh, we can fun. do it outside Ooh. so then you know backyard hangs yes mm. With the movie playing in the background? That's, is that, oh, which movie? It's, it, Whichever it be, movie we want. Okay, it can't be from the deck, because that's cheap. Yeah, no, 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 oh, you're absolutely <laughs> right, yes. I'd have to go through, you know, um, or have someone else go through, so I'm not cheating also. Mm-hmm. So we can choose a movie that's not in there. We can go by, like, when the game was published, and then pick a movie after that. Oh, that's a great idea. Because okay. it won't be in the deck at all. You're right, They you're need right. to update a deck, though. I'm sorry. No. Well, let's talk more about <laughs> How did we get here? I don't know. Richard E. Grant. <laughs> there we go. The man is important, okay? I'm glad that you're the bookmark because yes. I did not know where we were going. Richard E. Grant. So, yeah, he, this mysterious man named Lord Barkus shows up. Um, Victoria's parents, they're a little unsure. Like, you know, is he from your side of the family? Oh, I don't think so, you know. And he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically, a, you know, a day early for the ceremony. And he just kind of makes himself right at home, you know, sits down during the ceremony. Well, during the commotion when the the dress is caught on fire and everything and they're all trying to get it, you know, to go out and they're just making it worse. He just goes over there and pours some wine on it, you know, <laughs> knocks it up, but basically impresses um, Victoria's parents and everything like, oh, you know, like, okay, he poured a glass of wine to get out of fire, like. Wouldn't that actually? It's it doesn't work, guys. It doesn't doesn't work. It's got alcohol. Yeah, it doesn't work. So it's it's don't try it at home. You know what? That was cheap wine. Oh, he, he, well, I mean, they were having the rehearsal at their house, and remember, they didn't have any more money. So. Oh, it's I wondered if it was just like grape juice yep. or mm-hmm. water that was dyed. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's possible too. They they might not have been able to afford real wine. That's very true. Very there good points. Go. Very good points. Purple Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. Did they have <laughs> Kool Aid back then? <laughs> I don't think that existed. I don't even think Flavor Aid was a thing. <laughs> So the priest, he basically, at this point, he, he's had enough of it. He's, you know, he's tired of wasting, like, I believe it's like three hours of them rehearsing, you know, for the wedding. He basically tells Victor, he's like, young man, you need to learn your vows. He's like, I will see you tomorrow for the wedding, but you need to go away and learn your damn vows. So Victor, he's, he's all, you know, embarrassed. He, he's thinking that Victoria probably thinks he's a fool and everything, he goes off into the woods and he's just, he's kind of just rehearsing the vows over and over to himself and still kind of tripping up on them and everything. And he's walking around. He's, he's kind of, the more he's saying it, he's getting a little more confidence. And we see him kind of playing around, you know, in the forest. And he finally does recite his vows correctly in full. He's even got the ring and everything. So he's, he says his vows, he puts the ring on what looks like a tree branch. So, you know, just playing around, just, you know, trying to get everything down because he does, he does really want to marry this woman. Well, he does that and all of a sudden the tree branch turns into a skeletal hand and grabs at him and of course he's trying to get away and everything and out under 
this little snow-covered patch in the woods rises the chorus bride herself, voiced by Helena Bonham Carter, of course. And she tells him, you know, I do. And he flips out. She's... So for being a corpse, she's quite pretty. She's got her... She, Right. No, I agree with you. She's, like, not fully a corpse. Right. But is. But she's, like, she's still shapely. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's not all just bones. Exactly. She's got, um, I believe it's her left arm that is bone, and one of her legs is bone, but her skin is blue, her hair is blue. She is still in a wedding dress. It's kind of tattered and dirty at this point. But she rises up and she says, you know, I do. And, of course, he completely flips out because he doesn't know what's going on and he's running around trying to get away from her but she keeps kind of coming after him and he eventually he falls and he's tripping around and stuff and he runs you know out of the forest back towards the little Victorian town and he thinks he's gotten away from her and he turns around and there she is and she tells him you may kiss the bride and so we see her go in for a kiss and then like everything turns black. And then in the next scene, he's opening his eyes and we realize he's in the underworld with her. And what I think is really fascinating about this transition is we go from these, this cold, gray, bluish, atmospheric Victorian town into this extremely colorful and lively area which is the land of the dead uh it's like kind of like a bar environment there's skeletons everywhere there's music playing everything and he's you know wondering where am i what is going on and you know she's pretty much like well you're my husband now and he's like what you know what are you talking about she's like you put the ring on my finger you're my husband and his whole he's, reaction is so funny. And he's, he's trying to get out of there, and it's just there's there's corpses and skeletons everywhere. But they're just having a great time. It looks so lively and fun down there. It yeah, does. dead people are way more fun. They are, and I love that they that Burton did this because it makes like all of the Victorian, like London, everyone there looks so dead to me. Mm-hmm. Like so even like the dark circles under their eyes, their skin it, tone. It, they're all kind of gray. Right. Everyone gray. looks gross and like just and and their personalities suck. Everyone who's dead and is in like the underworld, they're like living their best life which is so funny because they're dead Mm -hmm. but like the music is jamming like he's playing like that piano Mm -hmm. and it sounds like that very like southern like like the almost like organ yeah like jivey music they're pouring drinks they're just having a great time yes you know he's kind of he's confused on where he is and, and who this corpse is that's now claiming to be his wife and everything so this is when we kind of get the backstory on her and how she pretty much ended up dead. And so we are introduced to a character. His name is Bone Jangles. He's a skeleton. <laughs> and he is voiced by none other than Danny Elfman, the film's composer himself. We have big love for Danny Elfman. Yes. yes. Especially today, but every day. Danny Elfman fan club. <laughs> So he goes into a song called Remains of the Day.
it kind of starts with, hey, give me a listen, you corpses of cheer, least fills of you who still got an ear, I'll tell you a story, make a skeleton cry of our own jubiliciously lovely corpse bride. So, like I said, this song gives us the backstory of how she ended up dead. So, we find out her name is Emily, and that she was a wealthy young woman, you know, in that same town who met um, an older man and, you know, wanted to marry him and everything. But her father, you know, basically said no, and that she was in love with this person and she wanted to run away and marry him. So they basically agreed to elope and they agreed to meet in the forest and he would basically come get her and take her away and they would elope and live happily ever after. So she dresses up in her wedding dress, of course, and waits for him in the forest and she's waiting and she's waiting and then this man who with this you know of course we know nothing of who this man is we just know this is someone that she was engaged to he comes there he basically robs her because she's got all her family jewels and her money and everything he robs her and murders her and leaves her under the tree for dead and basically when she opened her eyes in the underworld and realized what had happened she vowed that she would you know remain there until her actual true love comes and you know marries her and sets her free so that's what she believes victor did for her that day but it's a very lively song <laughs> it's got all these amazing adorable dancing skeletons mm -hmm. and everything they're basically all you know they sing how we all pass away we all end up the remains of the day basically you know, we're all gonna end up dead but it's such a fun number. It's very jazzy and upbeat. Um, definitely a, a very classic Elfman written song, if you will. Oh, yeah. Very fun. Very fun. So this is kind of how, you know, not only Victor, but us as the audience learn her backstory and, you know, how he, you know. How she, she became to be there. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Well, he still, he still flipped out. He doesn't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to be there. He's trying to get away. So he's he's going around. He's looking for an escape out of there. But everywhere he goes, he's still in the land of the dead. You know, he's going around. He's he's meeting other corpses and everything. He's And she's looking for him, you know. And he's trying to hide from her. But eventually, of course, he runs right into her again. And she's like, silly, you know. I've got a wedding present for you. So... She gives him this box, and he opens it up, and it's basically a pile of, you know, bones that he kind of, you know, is like, what? And they, they jump out of the box, basically, and form into this adorable little skeletal dog. And... Scraps. He, scraps. <laughs> yes, scraps, which she, he realizes was his childhood dog that she found and gave him, you know, a wedding present. So... He's got a little red collar with his name on it. And so he's so happy to see him and stuff. And she basically says, this line is so funny. Um, Emily, the corpse writer, basically says, you know, he's adorable. And Victor says, you should have seen him with fur. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so cute. So he's kind of, you know, kind of thinking, okay, she's not so bad, but she's still dead and I'm still stuck in, you know, a land I don't belong in. Yeah. Because they're all like, oh, we got a breather, you know, they're all like... <laughs> It's like anti-zombie. <laughs> his, his arrival as a, as a, a still breathing human, if you will, is a very We got a breather! <laughs> oh, 
Right, because they're like freaking out because you know <laughs> that's unheard of, and then they're like trying to figure out what can we do to make him not breathe. Which I'm still, so, <laughs> which I'm still, I'm not gonna lie that that part does kind of how he was able even to get down there in the first place as a still living person. Right, and I know it's because she takes him down there some way, but it's like he, you know. Well, it's kind of, it makes me think, honestly, it makes me think of Coco. There's a lot of elements in this movie that make me think of Coco. Mm -hmm. Um, And also um, the Book of the Dead. So very common themes there with going or traveling to a different place. Um, And I guess some things, you know, just don't always have to make sense. Or some things, you know, we always slip through the cracks Mm -hmm. with certain things. Well, yeah, and and even gets a really good point. And as you were talking about Mm -hmm. it, I was picturing, like, the land of the dead from Coco. Yes, Mm -hmm. the the colors, the 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 vibrant. Like, yeah, and it's a contrast from everything that was above ground, which was, like, gray, bleak, dark. And it's a contrast to kind of how... You know, so much of our life we're told what, you know, being dead is like. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, terrible and nothing and, you know, you don't want to be dead. But actually it's limitless. (laughs) Right, because we spend our lives working away, not truly enjoying ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when do we get to do that? Mm -hmm. When we're dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like life has limits. Death, death death can be anything. Yeah. Um, But on top of that, like, so I was picturing like Coco as you're talking Mm -hmm. about it. And then in Coco... The concept of, of Miguel being able to go into the land of the dead is because on the day of the dead, that's when the the worlds, uh, like the wall between the worlds is like is, weakest. Is, is, yeah, it's right. And that's mm-hmm. why they're able to like transfer over. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of it is explained in your movie, but right. that kind of sounds like a similar concept. Like right. she made it to where maybe that portal was a little more open. Right. And because he was with her. Yeah. Like, and was essentially married to her at Yeah, that moment. like they yeah. belonged together, so he had to go mm-hmm. with her. But that's that's exactly what I was thinking yeah. of. Like Coco, Land of the Dead, mm-hmm. like the afterlife, mm-hmm. and like how it's actually a little more joyous than we're kind of grown up to believe it is. Yeah. yeah. And we don't really know the dates of the wedding, do we? And Corpse Ride, so that could actually align. That is true. That is true. That so is that could be point. that could be a good theory. Mm-hmm. Look at I this, did. creating conspiracy theories. <laughs> we're, we're, I like we're, it. I like it. <laughs> we're answering questions that we asked ourselves. Exactly. Way to go, team. Well, he's so she gives him his old childhood dog and stuff, and so he kind of tells her he's like, oh, you know, my mother, you know, never approved of scraps, you know, jumping up on you know me and the furniture like this. And he basically tells, um, you know, his his new bride, you know, at least you'll never have to meet her or anything. And he's like, well, wait, maybe actually, you know, you can. And, and she's like, oh, well, where, where are they buried? Let's go visit them. And he's <laughs> like, well, that's kind of the thing. They're still, and he kind of points up. She's like, oh, they're still alive. Well, yeah, that that's a problem. And he's like, you know, but I, I really would, you know, I really, now that I think about it, really wish you could meet, you know, my family. And she's like, well, there is technically a way to get, you know, up, you know, basically upstairs Mm -hmm. to meet, you know, his parents. So they go to visit a man called Elder Gutnick, who is essentially kind of like a, not necessarily the ruler of the underworld, but he's like an old wise, you know, person there that can, that has a way to bring them back to the land of the living he's got like limit limitless knowledge Mm -hmm. like the medicine man almost like the know-all know all the tricks knows all the backstory to everything 
super powerful. Yeah. So she kind of tells him what's going on. She's like, I want you to meet my husband. And he's like, husband, you know. And she's like, well, you know, we basically, we want to be able to go upstairs and visit, you know, Victor's family and give him the good news of our marriage. So he's like, well, you know, there is a way to do that, you know. But when you say the word hopscotch, it'll bring you back down into our world. So once you're done with the visit there, just say the word hopscotch, it'll bring you back down. So he's able to bring them back up into Victor's world, the land of the living. And at this point, um, he's been essentially gone for a few hours and the parents are still kind of worried about the wedding and everything and wondering where he is, you know, if he's going to be ready to get married tomorrow. And then <laughs> we get a visit from the town crier who says that he saw Victor in the arms of a mysterious woman on the bridge and then disappeared into the night with her. So, <laughs> um, Mrs. Van Dort, Victor's mom, was like, well, Vic, he doesn't know any women, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course, uh, the bride's parents, Victoria's parents, uh, they're not happy at all to hear this and stuff because they really, they really, as much as they didn't want their daughter to marry him, they really, they want their daughter to get married, so to get that money back in the right. family name. So, they hear this and, and... Uh, Victoria, she's very, she's, you know, very upset to hear this and stuff. She thinks there's got to be another explanation because, you know, the Victor that she just met, even though she literally just met him, you know, doesn't seem like the type to be running off, you know, the night before his wedding with another woman. So anyway, Victor and Emily, you know, come back up into you know, his world and he basically tells her, you know, wait, wait right here. Let me go you know, tell my parents what's going on and then, you know, I will bring you in when it's time to meet them. Well, unfortunately, he tricked her into getting back up there because he really wanted to get back to Victoria. And so he he goes into, he's able to get into Victoria's bedroom through the window and she's so happy to see him, but she's also like, you're not supposed to be in here and stuff. And he's like, you know, Victoria, I, you know, I, I, I want to be with you. I want to get married to you, all this stuff. You know, basically, like, I want to be with you. And then they're about to share a kiss, and we see in the window the corpse bride. She followed him there. She sees what's going on. She starts flipping out and everything. And, you know, he tells her, basically, you know, I'm I'm married to her, you know. And she's and she's like, she's a corpse. And he, he doesn't really have time to explain what happened, but just that, He's married to her, but he doesn't want to be. He wants to be married to Victoria. Well, the corpse bride is very upset, mm-hmm. and she <laughs> says the word hopscotch and sends them back down to the underworld. And Victoria's left to try to process basically what just transpired and what she just found out. Because it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy. She, mm-hmm. So she immediately goes down and tells, you know, their families that he's married to a corpse and they're like you you know you're delusional you know basically they send her back up to her room and tell her not to come out and stuff but she she knows what she saw she knows you know that something's going on that's not right and she you know wants to be able to to basically have him back and try to fix everything so a little bit later she actually escapes from her room and she goes to the church and runs into the pastor and, you know, tells him, you know, you know, you know more about, you know, the relationship between the living and the dead, you know, than anyone in this town. Like, you know, is it possible for a living person to be married to a dead one? And he's like, well, you know, what you're talking about is a very serious, you know, accusation. But, you know, I think I do know something that can help. But he brings her back to 
her parents' mm-hmm. house, and he t- basically tells them that she's speaking in tongues. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's talking nonsense. So they banish her up to her room and everything. And meanwhile, we go back to the underworld, and Emily is very unhappy with Victor. She's like, "You tricked me and everything. You know, you know, you're who's you know who's that other woman?" And he's like, "But." you're the other woman right and she's like no i am your wife i'm wearing your ring and he's and then he, he kind of doesn't really have a good argument there because she's just kind of telling the it's truth a, but it's a good point it is. <laughs> but she's very um she's very upset she she goes off and she starts to sing a song of hers called tears to shed what does that wispy little brat have that you don't have And basically, she's, in the song, she's talking about, you know, why would he want to be with her when he could be with her, you know, someone who's still breathing and stuff. <laughs> and she, she's joined by, um, there's a little, like, maggot that mm-hmm. lives in her eye socket. Mm-hmm. And her eye will sometimes pop out. So she's joined by him and the spider that's down there. They're kind of basically, you know, like, oh, breathing that's overrated, you know, <laughs> like, she's got nothing on you, you know, you're wonderful and, you know all this stuff and they're trying to convince her, you know, no, you you have a lot to, you know, offer to him and everything. So. <laughs> if I touch a burning candle, I can feel the pain. If you cut me with a knife, it's still the same. So, but she's not convinced. She, she's basically says, you know, how can a heart, you know, still break, even if it doesn't still beat. And it's a very so sad. It is. It's a very it's a very sad little song. Man, that's like something I would have written in my notebook in sophomore year. Right. Right. It's straight out of Mesa World. Uh, That that would have been on my wall in pretty markers. (laughs) For sure. So it's a a very a very sad little song. Like you really you really feel for her in that one. And Victor, he you know, he feels pretty terrible that he tried to trick her, but he he was just trying to get back to, you know, his living bride-to-be. Right, he did what he had to do. Yeah, he, you know, he he tried, at least he was able to inform Victoria of what's going on so that she wouldn't think that he just, you know, abandoned her. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back in, you know, the land of the living, um, we see Lord Barkus, he's still around, you know, kind of observing the whole situation. And he basically tells Victoria's parents, you know, I was once, you know, you know, betrothed to a young woman, but I, you know, I lost my bride to be, you know, she was taken from me too soon. So I've never been married. And so he mentioned something about, you know, wealth or something. Mm-hmm. And they immediately think, hmm, well, she can marry this guy. He's got money. And <laughs> this man being kind of a shady character he kind of wants to marry Victoria because he believes her family has money. Mm-hmm. So, is this they, the same guy who abandoned Emily? That who? Is this the same guy who robbed Emily and killed her? We find out. Yeah, yeah. we haven't gotten to that part yet. That's, That's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> AKA Misa knows all I got the, the movie plot. I got, I got the rest of the movie. Yeah. We're good, Martha. <laughs> Go. I, as soon as she mentioned, like, oh, there's this guy, they could, I was like, yeah. yeah, I know. He's he's like the creepiest, grimiest, shady, like smooth talker. Like, let me just squeeze my way into your family. Yeah. His hair's like 
like pomp hated back. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous looking. He he has like this weird face structure mm-hmm. too. I don't know. Everything about him is just ugh mm-hmm. to me. And he carries a sword, which is you know also a little suspect, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so basically, her parents go up to her room and say, "There's going to be a wedding after all." And she's like, "Oh, Victor returned? No, you're we're marrying you to Lord Marcus." And she's like, "What?" Like she's not. <laughs> She's not happy whatsoever right. at all. But anyway, back in the underworld, Victor, he's, oh, he's, he's feeling pretty guilty of what he did to the corpse bride. But so he's, he finds a piano. He starts playing it kind of the same song that he was playing earlier, which is kind of Victor's song. And then she comes up and turns out Emily can play the piano too. So they kind of start playing a duet version of it. And even though she's <laughs> she's still kind of not happy with him at first, he's trying to cheer up by playing the piano. It's like a really cute little scene. And she eventually gets into it and they're playing, you know, alongside each other. And then at the end, like, her hand like jumps off of you know her arm bone and is going across the keys and crawls up his arm and stuff and she's like oh you know I'm sorry sorry for my enthusiasm and he's like no I like your enthusiasm and this is where we kind of see that he's not necessarily falling in love with her but he's he's definitely got affection towards her at this point like trying to make the best of the situation you know like if I gotta be down here at least let me like the person who I'm down here with you know what I mean He tried to go back up there, and he got brought back down to the underworld, and so this is just kind of what's going on. So anyway, back up in the land of the living, we have the Van Dorts, uh, basically their their carriage driver, their chauffeur. He kind of throughout the movie, he had a cough, and then he's, he's in the carriage, and all of a sudden he just basically like kills over and dies. And we see him enter the underworld you know they're like new arrival and you know all kinds of stuff and once victor sees who it is he's like mayhew you know like what are you doing down he's like oh I'm, you know i'm i'm sorry to see that you're here and stuff and he's like well actually you know i feel great this best guy felt in years because he's dead so <laughs> whatever ailments he had they are gone now so he's like well i know you know everyone must be pretty worried you know looking for me and stuff and he's like yeah you know they really don't know where you went off to and stuff and he's like well how's how's victoria and, and, and he says i'm oh, getting ready for the wedding he's like what wedding oh well she's married she's marrying someone else kind of barkus or something like that and he's he's just you know in shock that he was just up there with her and already in just a short amount of time she's already about to marry someone else yeah moving on their mm-hmm. little spark was nothing apparently yeah so he's <laughs> he's feeling quite you know you know, deceived, you know, on his own and stuff. So he's very upset. So he kind of, at that point, that's when he realizes that he wants to, he does want, he does want to stay down there and he wants to remain married to Emily. So they go, um, again, to talk to Elder Gutnick about, you know, well, what can we do to make, you know, this marriage official, you know, down here? And he's like, well, pretty much, you know, Victor can't be alive technically. You know, um, basically they would have to have the wedding upstairs in the land of the living and he would have to drink poison to, you know, get his heart to stop beating as his hers. And then their marriage would be sealed forever, you know, in the underworld. 
And he's like, I'll do it. And she's like, I can't ask that of you. He's like, no, I'll do it. You know, I made a promise, you know, I'll do it. Because at that point he's thinking, well, you know, my bride to be, you know, in, you know, in my home is getting married. So at that point he's, he's like, well, he's like, I might as well do this. So we see the characters start to get ready to go all up to the land of the living uh, while a song called The Wedding Song plays. And they're all running around, they're getting ready, they're, you know, getting a cake ready. It looks really like gross. I don't know what it's made out of, but it's, <laughs> it's like really not cute. It's not cute. It's like, oh, okay. It's, it looks kind of like slimy and wiggly. I don't know, but it's pretty gross looking. So they're all getting ready to, you know, have them all go, you know, back upstairs. Meanwhile, we see um, the wedding between Barkus and Victoria did indeed take place. We see the, you know, after the, she's just, she looks just like a complete zombie. She looks so just in shock miserable so unhappy that this marriage has taken place and <laughs> she's just you know she's just miserable and then we see you know we, we go back down we see all the, the skeletons and everyone getting ready for the wedding and so they make their way up into you know the land of the living and everything and essentially they descend upon victoria's home you know which I'm not really sure why they go there first, but that's where they do. And so they're there and they kind of interrupt the, um, the wedding reception between her and Lord Barkus. And <laughs> of course, when everyone sees all these corpses and stuff, everyone starts freaking out. It's pretty comical. They're running around and everything. And they're just, you know, all the dead people are kind of like, what? You know, like they're there for, you know, a wedding. They're not there to like try to hurt anyone or disrupt anything. Then we see some of the living people start to recognize some of the corpses as their deceased loved ones. Mm -hmm. And it's really cute. Like there's one older lady who's <laughs> hitting one of the skeletons over the head with her walker <laughs> and because he's too close. And he's like, Gertrude, honey, it's me. It's me. And she's like, Humphrey? <laughs> been dead for 15 years and then they got, he says in a classic you know ode to gone with the wing frankly my dear i don't give a damn and takes her in his arms it's really cute it and is. we see another child recognize his dead grandfather so we kind of see all the townspeople they're starting to recognize these dead folks as you know their family members and everything so it kind of becomes a lot less scary at that point well, during all this chaos, uh, Victoria is kind of just trying to get away. And her new husband, you know, Lord Barkus, he's like, well, you know, he's like, he's like, where's your dowry? You know, it's mine. It's my right. And she's like, dowry? She's like, my parents have no money. And he's like, he, he's clearly outraged. And she's like, you, you know, is this not going to your plan, Lord Barkus? Well, to get, you know, basically together and, you know, in misery, we're a perfect match. She, she realizes, oh, he married her for her supposed money. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's with someone who she doesn't want to be with at all. So all that chaos, she's she comes out, she sees everything. She's kind of wondering what's going on and everything. And we see all the 
at this point, all the townspeople and all the corpses, they're all going up to the church because that is where the wedding between Victor and Emily is going to take place. So they're getting there and we see the priest. He's like, you know, you cannot bring, you know, all of your evil in here. And one of the corpses is like, shh, quiet down. We're in a church. And they just like all walk past him. And it's so cute. So they get there. They're... Um, Elder Gutnick, he's going to be the one that marries them. So they're, him and Emily are up there at the front. And Victoria, she kind of like creeps them because she kind of sees what's going on. And she's, she's pretty saddened to see that they're about to have this official ceremony in front of everyone. So she kind of sneaks in and everything. And he's, he's reciting the same vows that he was going to recite to Victoria. So she's, you know, she's pretty hurt by that. He's, He's got the cup of wine, which, of course, is an, a poisoned cup of wine at that point. And he's about to drink it. But Emily, the corpse bride, she sees Victoria walk and she and she basically says, stop. She's like, I can't I can't let you do this. He's like, but I made a promise. And he and she's like, no, I can't I can't be robbing someone else of their dream in order to fulfill mine. And she kind of reaches out her bony hand and Victoria comes forward and takes it and everyone's like oh, you know what's going on and she gives takes off the ring gives it to Victor and you know closes his hand around it basically saying like no this is this is who you're meant to marry I can, I'm not going to do this I'm not going to take you know your life away from you and also rob her of her you know life with you as well so at this moment this is when Lord Barkas enters and it's like oh what you know the happy couple you know, together at last, blah, 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 you know, but what you're seeming to forget is, you know, she's still my wife. And this is the moment when Emily recognizes him as, of course, the, you know, the man mm -hmm. that murdered her. Mm -hmm. Ding, dinging me so. <laughs> she's pretty much like you and he's like, Emily? And she's like, you robbed me and left me for dead. So at this point when everyone realizes, you know, oh, th this is who killed you. This is, you know, we, we knew about how you got down here but we didn't know this is him so everyone's in shock victor tries to start a duel with him which is so ridiculous because all he had like one of the, the dead like chef like gives him a fork so he's using a fork to fight with a sword and it's like ridiculous and all this stuff <laughs> it's <laughs> um but basically you know he's you know uh lord barkas tells him you know well i'm married to her there's nothing you can do about that you know and he's walking around and he picks up the wine glass that was intended for Victor, you know, to drink. And he drinks the poison wine. And at that point, uh, the elder Gutnick says, you know, okay, we, we gotta, we're in their you know, world, you know, we can't, you know, do anything to attack him. But once he, he dies from drinking the poison, they're like, okay, go. So they go and push him into another room and kind of take care of him, you know. <laughs> it's right, right. rightful justice mm -hmm. for basically being just a fucking asshole a murderous asshole yeah so we see um we go back to victor and victoria and emily and you know she's like you know basically tells victor you know you fulfilled your promise to me you set me free you know you you helped me you helped put the man who put me in this position of justice you know you need to live your life with your bride or whatever. So she, she goes and she dissolves into a bunch of beautiful butterflies 
and they fly away into the night sky and Victor and Victoria are just there watching it and it's just like a it's a sweet little ending you know the audience is assured that Emily's soul is at peace now she's no longer waiting for someone to come marry her and set her free Victor and Victoria you know are ending up to you know ending up together because obviously her marriage to Marcus is now over because mm-hmm. he's annulled. dead yeah because, annulled by death mm-hmm. so they're free to be together and that's how the movie ends it's really cute <laughs> nice love it I love good like revenge movies that are also love movies <laughs> yes Definitely. This is kind of like uh, Tim Burton Kill Bill. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. If you think about it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of elements of, uh, you know, prior movies, but it's true to Tim Burton, you know? Yeah, it's 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 definitely a very Tim Burton movie. So, like I said, it came out in 2005. Danny Elfman wrote all the music for, you know, the film. Uh, lyrics were written by him and a man named John August. Uh, it's got the four songs with lyrics that like I mentioned along with quite a few instrumental pieces that really bring out, you know, just the beauty of the film and the story and everything like that. And funnily enough, Tim Burton actually got the idea to make this film uh, while he was finishing up making Nightmare Before Christmas. Someone said to him, hey, you know, there's this Jewish folktale that is that that's what the film is based on a jewish folk tale about a man who's essentially in the forest reciting his vows puts a ring on a tree branch it turns out to be a dead woman you know's finger she comes up and she's like my husband and you know he flips out runs to like the town you know pastor and basically says you know like how can this be and you know they basically tell him you know you it's you can't be married to a corpse. You know, a living person cannot be married to a corpse. And once she learns that, she turns into a pile of bones and, you know, she disappears or whatever. So once Tim Burton heard this story, oh, he was immediately all over it. That was right up his, you know, dark alley. And so he he definitely wanted to kind of stretch that out into a feature-length film, but also make it, a, you know, a little more family-friendly, of course. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um... But it, it did take him a while to actually get started on making the film because, of course, stop motion is a very different filmmaking process. So, and of course, during that time, he was making tons of other live action movies and stuff. So it wasn't, it was always kind of there. He, he would sketch characters and stuff for the film, but he wasn't actively working on it until I believe it was about 2002, mm-hmm. um, 2003 is when he actually started getting right into it and what he was very impressed about was during the um all the years that had passed between making uh, nightmare before christmas the technology had really come a long way at that point so even though it was still a very painstaking process it it, it, had, it was much more advanced than back in the early 90s making that one I bet, yeah, because that one took years and, like, so many stages. mm -hmm. And I believe it was, I think, three years Mm -hmm. in total. And so, in total, once production actually began on Corpse, right, it took about a year. So, still still a a good amount of time for a movie, but way, way, way less time than Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love stock motion. Love stock motion. It is so fascinating. It is so fascinating. So, um... The crew, they, they built stainless steel, you know, puppets. 
and instead of having to basically build a head for each puppet as they did in Nightmare Before Christmas, they were able to build a, a you know a lot fewer amounts, and they had these little gears that they were like very 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 tiny gears inside like the puppets' heads that they were able to kind of turn to create more facial expressions what mm-hmm. oh my god like little robots little robot i i did watch um like a making of feature too and actually kind of showed the process and it is really cool looking that is huge tiny, strides tiny, tiny little like things in there it was so cool wow mm-hmm. so yeah like i said even though it still took a long time to make the technology had come a long way that is amazing mm-hmm. I don't have the patience. Thank God there's people who do. <laughs> I know. When you think about the people who actually build that, like that's their job to build yeah. these these puppets with these tiny gears and stuff in it. I don't know how they do it. And then to like only use them for a certain amount of time, you know? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's you have to love what you do for that. Like I mm-hmm. think of that with like Nightmare Before Christmas, like they had so many stages and you literally just destroy them after. Same thing right. for, like, Corpse Bride or any other stage that use stock motion. Like, they literally get destroyed after. And that's just – it breaks my heart, but I'm sure that's exciting for them because then it's like, okay, on to the next one. Exactly. Exactly. So, in total, they did buy – they did have to make 300 puppets. Wow, still so quite for a bit. The 30, yeah, for the 30 primary characters we see quite a bit in the film, uh, they had to make 300 puppets. <laughs> Is fucking, it an old picture? The three of them. <laughs> I it's, love it. It's the ragtag <laughs> trio. <laughs> the three musketeers. to a picture of uh, Johnny Depp and Helena and Tim Burton together. Yeah, they are a trio. Do uh, Helena and Tim still get together? I mean, I'm assuming so because I know they have I heard, kids. I know they have kids, but I thought they were... So, yeah, they, they're no, no longer together. They're no longer together, but I mean, like, am, amicable. Like, like, oh, I'm sure they have to be right? I would think so I really I don't know too much about their you know personal relationship standings at this point right. but I would hope so you know at least for the sake of the children and because they creatively they worked so well together for so yeah. many years so they yeah. seem like they kind of like compared to other celebrity couples or mm-hmm. ex-couples they lay really low unless they're working, mm-hmm. I feel like. Right. Like, I feel like I don't hear about them unless, they're like, he's going to do a film. She's mm-hmm. going to be in the film. You know, like, yeah. other than that, they're they're pretty private, and I respect the fuck mm-hmm. out of that. Because, like, all the, if you think of all the celebrities whose lives are plastered on magazine covers, and you have to hear about them all it's the time. It's exhausting. I appreciate those who kind of just lay low. Exactly. <laughs> and they seem kind of, like, very private. Like, you know, they paparazzi's bullshit like oh, yeah. you know like they don't have time for that crap yeah like so they, they were very much like to themselves you know so and Helen actually said that when he was casting for corpse bride he actually waited two weeks to tell her that she officially got the part of emily and he was and he basically said oh no like she's she actress being dramatic you know i don't know if it was necessarily two weeks you know <laughs> So, he, so even though they were together at the time, you know, he wasn't giving her special treatment. She does still anything. audition. So every movie that mm-hmm. they have done together, she herself makes it known. Like, no, awesome. he does not just give me roles. Like, mm-hmm. I still go through the whole audition process because she doesn't want to be mistaken as, like, the person who's just getting roles in her husband's film or partner. I'm sorry. Right. Like Sherry Moon. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's exactly who I thought of, though. I okay. I love the fuck out of Sherry Moon, but she does. She is an example of one who does not audition, and it's just an automatic given a role in a movie. Which, as a person who loves 
the you know acting art and theatrical art like mm-hmm. there are people who are made specific for roles and there are people who could bring so much more to a role because they are trained in that area I hope mm-hmm. I'm saying this correct because I don't want to offend anyone um like Helena is an actress yes. she has trained and so for her to audition for these roles and not just expect to be given yeah. speaks high volumes of her I don't agree with everything she's done or like even some of the things but she really does try to make sure that she auditions that the part is for her and that she's not just forcing her way into mm-hmm. a movie you know what I mean exactly exactly and so a funny thing is while he was making Corpse Bride um he was also making his version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory at the same time so he Johnny Depp Helena and Christopher Lee they were all in that film as well so they were all pulling double duty during the time of making Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and this movie, I think they would film scenes for Charlie during the day, and then at night they would go record lines for Corpse Bride. And so, whenever um, he brought up to Johnny Depp, you know, oh, I'm kind of working on, you know, this film, Corpse Bride, or whatever, and, you know, Depp, you know, read the script, and of course loved it and everything, and agreed to do it. He thought that they would probably wrap up on Charlie before, you know, starting to, <laughs> you know, record Corpse Bride. But apparently, to quote Depp, he said, so you can imagine my surprise when Tim arrives on the set of Charlie one day and says, hey, maybe tonight we'll go record some Corpse Bride. He was... (laughs) (laughs) So, but at that point, Johnny hadn't really, like, fleshed out the way he was going to portray Victor, even though, of course, it it was a a vocal-only role. You still have to, you know flesh out that character mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. so since he kind of was almost put on the spot he had to develop victor's you know mannerisms and all of that in pretty you know like i think believe in an hour he kind Whoa. of came up with the way he was going to mm-hmm, do the voice for victor do his mannerisms and everything so dang no pressure <laughs> no pressure i feel like that's like some uil stuff <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sight read, act, record. Okay, we're making it a movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's intense. Yeah. I'm like, that's so... But I almost feel like at that point, he worked with Burton on so many things. I feel like he would already kind of know the way Burton works, so he maybe shouldn't have been too surprised by that request, but... That's funny, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised they weren't like just all living together in like a, a little house, you know, yeah. Why not? Because we're filming two <laughs> movies together. Make the most of it. Exactly. Exactly. That turns into like the Odd Couple reboot or okay. something. I was gonna. I wasn't gonna say it. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything, but you now you're bringing it up. Or Three's Company. There, you know. There, there are theories that like Burton likes to watch Johnny and his wife. Oh, <laughs> what? You you mean theory. ex-wife, right? Ex-wife. Okay, okay, okay. Like at the time. Whoa. Like at the time that Tim was casting her and everything and like cuz you think about it, Helena has played Johnny's love interest at least twice. Mhm. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. both of your movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of them. And 
because <laughs> I remember like reading comments. I mean, of course, it's just like people on the internet and their opinions. But they're just like, yeah, like Tim, Tim and Helena rub me as that type of couple who are like, oh, let's have a third. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they I'm don't, totally... they don't seem conventional in they're any totally way. Totally not. So they're probably open to many things. Is what people were trying to say. So like, of course, everyone's first guess is like, oh, Johnny probably joins them. <laughs> I could buy into that. <laughs> so when Frankie says odd couple, I'm like. Hmm. I wonder who goes where. Oh, I wonder if there's like some director's cuts that haven't been put out there yet. Yeah, I mean, they are very close. Maybe there's some NC-17 corpse by versions in a vault. Ooh. Oh, oh. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry that these are not facts, by the way. Let me just throw that out there. Don't take anything I'm saying. Ramblings. But I thought it was funny. So I'm sitting here and I'm like. I'm smiling myself. I'm like picturing the three of them, and then you're like three's company. I'm like mm. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I can, I can see it though. I I don't. I mean, of course, their business is neither here nor there. But I mean, hey, if Johnny Depp is in their bedroom, then who loses? None of them. None of them. Who loses? And you know what? If they're happy, kudos to you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if it works exactly. for you, I mean, I don't and know if you can act, you know, work together after. That's, even bigger kudos. That's another thing, yeah. Yeah, that's an even bigger thing. Awesome. Anyway, I'm sorry. That no. Is, I just. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we went way off. Track. We sure did. Super segue. On top. <laughs> they, they they do a lot. They have done a lot together, and we yeah. don't know to what extent. Exactly. They have. Yeah. And I mean, Tim is, I've watched several of you interviews where he's like, the first time I met him, and he was like, it's just this electric vibe together. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, who's to say it hasn't happened at least once or twice? Exactly. You know? I mean, I, I can see it as like a Vince McMahon, Shawn Michaels kind of relationship where like you, mm-hmm. you're pretty sure something happened between them at some point, but, and the way that they act with each other, but it's like, you don't, you, you can also see it being a very close Bond. right yeah it could go right. either way for yeah sure. exactly for either sure. way any hooters so. <laughs> i'm gonna stop talking <laughs> so this was great i loved revisiting corpse bride yes. were there any other fun facts or so of course i wanted to talk about our beloved danny elfman a little okay. bit yeah this is what i've been waiting for as we all know you know him and tim have also worked together on 17 times yes and the one film out of the three that they haven't worked on that's one of the ones that i'm covering today i feel Mm. so sad that i'm not a part of the danny elfman club today you've covered him twice i have you had your but not today (laughs) (laughs) let me have fomo okay (laughs) so but of course you know he's worked with burton many times he's had numerous, numerous other, you know, projects and scores, you know, on his own. But like I said, he was the voice of Bone Jangles. And basically he was asked by Burton um, to play Bone Jangles after nobody else that auditioned for that role really stood out. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Danny, he pretty much, he pictured the person that was going to sing that as a very, like, gravelly voice, you know, actor and stuff like that. But they, to quote Elfman... He said, we auditioned 25, 26, or 27 people at least, and he recorded three different singers, but in the end, none of them really worked out, and just Tim just wasn't impressed by anyone, so he asked, you know, him to, you know, be the character himself, and so, once again, to quote Danny, he said, every time I did bone jangles, I was hoarse for the end of the day, it was really brutal. 
(laughs) because it took such a a toll on his vocal cords and everything but I mean he sounded great as the character that's a really great song in the film a very important song because it does explain her backstory and everything so very important character for a very important moment of the film so yeah I can totally see that and Mm -hmm. Danny like he is one of those method actors even in voice Mm -hmm. like we are so blessed to have him in movies because he gives it his all no matter what role he plays. Yeah. It can be the most minute, most minor role, and you know that he is like a thousand percent in. Yeah. That wraps up my coverage of Horse Yay! Yay! Way to go, Martha! Quick and painless. It was um, great. I apologize for my awkwardness, everyone. I'm just a very awkward individual. We're all awkward. It's okay. <laughs> She's full of shit, guys. <laughs> She's just, not. She did fantastic. To, yeah, just get to know her. <laughs> Dude, yeah, very cool. Awesome I love it. That was awesome. Very yes, awesome. now I definitely want to go rewatch Corpse Bride. I do, do. Because when I, when I did rewatch it several times for our coverage, it'd been a while since I'd seen it. So it was kind of like seeing it all over again. And I just like... I remember why I love the film so much, and there were so many little things like I'd almost forgotten about. That's and... my favorite thing. Thank That's you what for Martha saying and that. I, Martha mm-hmm. and I were talking about this mm-hmm. last week when we went for fajitas. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about how like I secretly love going back to a movie that I like. Maybe I grew up loving as a kid, mm-hmm. but I haven't watched it as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so like all I know is I remember loving this movie, and I remember bits and pieces. And so when you go back and watch it like 10, 15 years after you've initially fell in love with mm-hmm. it, you see it so differently mm-hmm. and you like you remember things that you forgot about it and then like the things you loved about it you love even more and so I told Martha like I got into the habit of like before I rewatch a movie that I vaguely remember I write down everything I remember and then I see how accurate I was I yeah. love that you do that <laughs> that's the inner movie nerd I just it's interesting because I'm like because mm-hmm. you know how you you mesh accidentally like you mesh yeah. movies together because yeah we're so fucking loaded with pop culture mm-hmm. right so it's it's always fun to go back like you said and just like revisit a movie and then just like you fall in love with it all over again like yeah. you're seeing it again for the first time mm-hmm. yes and adding on to that I also love because it also makes me think of like where was I at that moment it takes me back to almost like this whole nostalgic moment like oh my god I remember I was doing this and then this happened and like even that the smells and like the whole atmosphere like everything just flashes back to you Mm -hmm. um it's just it's a great feeling and it's so fun you can almost sometimes remember where you were the first time you saw a film, like whether it was in the theater, if you watched it at home yes exactly home or at a friend's house like Stuff like that sticks with you for sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah. I love it. Ooh, okay. Well, it is tough to follow Corpse Bride from The Amazing Martha, but I'm going to try. And guys, this movie, ooh, it's intense. Mm-hmm. I I think I picked the hardest Tim Burton film to do uh, because it's not only one that has been around um, since the 1800s, but is also a musical. Uh, it's a remake of several other movies and books combined, and it's a lot. So, uh, without further ado, I am going to be covering Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Oh, guys, this, this one takes me back because um, when I was very, very poor <laughs> in my early adult years, we did not have cable, you know, we didn't have like Netflix we didn't really have Redbox because I couldn't right. afford it. Um, that was when they were doing that thing where you like rent the movie and they send it to your house. Is that Redbox how they started out? No, that That's was Netflix. Netflix. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so the original versions of Netflix my parents had, um, but you know, you had to return the movie like super fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and working at a pawn shop, I would buy as many movies as possible. And I am a sucker for musicals because the love of theater. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw this movie, I was like, yes, this is everything musical. Tim Burton, love me some Johnny, 100%. Um, and there's murder, sign me up. So watched it. I fell in love with it. But not only that, that's when one of my youngest sisters was living with us. Mm. We watched this movie on repeat. And I I think she loves it more than I do. <laughs> and she can recite like the whole movie. And I'm talking mm. acting out every single part by herself because she is such a huge fan. And because of that, like I think that made me love it even more because it was something that we kind of bonded over because mm-hmm. um, not everyone in my family loves musicals. So I was like, oh my God, I have someone who I can watch a musical with. Um, and so that's where this, this became an easy pick for me when we decided we were doing a uh, Tim Burton a.k.a. Johnny Depp, a.k.a. Danny Elfman appreciation. It's a trifecta-ish movie thing. (laughs) So, because I do have the one movie that is not including Danny Elfman, but again, that is because this movie is a remake of Sondheim's original musical that came out in 1979, which is based off of a play by Christopher Bond from 1973, which is based off of a movie from the 1920s that is lost so there's no way to find this I tried in looking at all the archives and all the history it's literally lost like I believe it was burned the original copy so we have no way to watch this that was the very very first movie of Sweeney Todd but all of this came from the 1846 the Victorian Penny Dreadful serial called The String of Pearls which was our first introduction to kind of like this, not necessarily a folktale. They don't know if it's real or not. Right. Um, because they made Sweeney Todd very, very real. Like everything mm-hmm. about it that happened, especially in that era, was very, um, you know, like Jack the Ripper-esque. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it was a... Pro- Just thinking about yeah, it. it's, mm-hmm. it was appropriate for the time, if you will. Not that murder is appropriate. But you know what I mean. That it was easier to get away with these things. And of course, yeah, we had tons of pie shops in London at this time. So who's, shops, who's course, to yeah. say they weren't putting bodies into pies like mm-hmm. this could be real so mm-hmm. I mean and that's kind of how the best folk tales do start mm-hmm. um but there is some serious serious rumors that this was tied into Jack the Ripper was written into mm-hmm. String of Pearls and that is how we came to our 2007 Tim Burton edition of Sweeney Todd that's awesome it's a lot so and I had to remind myself we're not covering the play we're not covering the play we're not covering Sondheim <laughs> we're covering Tim Burton's version it was a lot because I watched the original guys Ooh. for the first time I watched it like five times the original with Angela oh, yes. I was just about to because I have seen that version, and that's for me my top. Isn't it amazing? Okay, now I need to see that. Now. It's on YouTube. Okay, yeah. it's on YouTube. The full two hours, guys. Please, please, can we tag it in the blog? Yeah, I can put it in the blog. It is absolutely. I, I I love the new because it ties in like all the new, like mm-hmm. the way that they can show the blood and all of that. But right. play, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. amazing, especially given it was in the seventies. Yeah. And Angela's voice is just uh, top notch. 
She and Sondheim wrote the part for Angela when he was oh. writing the entire musical. He had already decided that Angela was going to be playing Mrs. Lovett, you know, the co-conspirator to mm-hmm. Sweeney Todd. And it was, it's just perfect. It was just a marriage that was so beautiful. Um, so yeah, so Tim Burton saw the play when he was in college. A uh, huge Sondheim fan because most musical theater people are because Sondheim is an amazing American composer and lyricist mm-hmm. and has written some great, great things. Um, just to name a couple, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Forum, Company, A Little Night Away, um, Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, he also wrote the lyrics for West Side Story, which... That's we are nice. all so excited about and he wrote the lyrics for gypsy Ooh. um sondheim is huge and mm-hmm. anything dealing with him is just untouchable um he does like to push the buttons a little bit mm-hmm. and that is where sweeney todd came in so when tim burton in college saw sondheim's play he was like oh my god gothic bells are okay, ringing yeah. i have to cover this that was a little dark exactly like <laughs> turning and turning and turning mm-hmm. he was like okay this is this is going somewhere now sondheim not a huge fan of having his play his musical turned into live action you know he mm. he wanted it for the stage because there's yeah. a big difference between stage and movie magic right. we know that um it took some years of convincing and actually another person was supposed to take over Sweeney Todd making it into a live action but Tim Burton he knows how to weasel his way into things and he won over Sondheim and eventually was given the rights and Sondheim's blessing to turn it into the film that we know and love today. There's so much going on in this place. So basically, it is a family story. <laughs> uh, just kidding. I mean, there's some family in it. But uh, basically, we are um, talking about a, gosh, it's a dark story. We don't know who he is yet, but Benjamin Barker lost his wife and daughter because he was shunned away to, like, Australia. And he is returning to London to try to regain them um he obviously is 15 years scorned because he was you know abruptly and not appropriately taken away from his family um so we get those themes already that he's coming in for revenge um and i'm going to kind of give the synopsis before i jump into like the way the movie goes and then my songs benjamin barker is pissed he decides that person is dead my new name is sweeney todd and he is coming in for revenge on whomever did him wrong Mm -hmm. so that's kind of our backstory but we do see some like human elements like I mean how would you feel if you were in the 1800s literally shipped away to a whole different country away from your wife and your child just because your wife was beautiful yeah that's that's (laughs) fucked up Just because a person who had a title, judge, was able to say, oh no, this person, he is accused of foolishness. And that is why, who who hasn't made foolish decisions at one point or another? Mm -hmm. And he didn't, he wasn't even guilty. But, But just to have your wife and your child taken away from you, it's like, it's crazy. And the fact that he hung on to that theory is very like Mount of, uh, what is it? The Mount of Cristo? Christ- uh, Mount of Monte Cristo? Yes, thank you. Very much that. Like where you literally every single day you're living for revenge. revenge. 
every single day. Yes. And we see such a change that the revenge has done on Sweeney Mm -hmm. when we do have those flashback moments. In talking about my characters, just who they are. So we do have, of course, Shawnee Depp playing Benjamin Barker slash Sweeney Todd. Helena Bonham Carter as Nellie Lovett. Alan Rickman. So hard to see him. And he plays characters I hate so much. Yes. But he plays them so well. He does. Which makes me feel like he's really like the nicest person in real life, which I know is such awkward. Like, But but I I have heard that a lot. I only hear great mm -hmm. things about the man himself. I he wish... was one of the sweetest people to ever to be friends with and to work with. I've heard that so much. I just wanted to meet him once in my life. I love him. Love him. Um, has Judge Turpin, the horrible, horrible person. Uh, Timothy Spall as Beetle, who a lot of you, again, know with Alan from Harry Potter. Um, we have newbie Jane Weisner, who plays Joanna Barker, the daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Sasha Barra, Baron Cohen. Yes. Love seeing him in this movie. I so I as Senor Parelli. So love good. him He's in this. Hilarious. His scene cracks me up, and I love it that there's those moments, you know, mm-hmm. of just pure comedy. I love it's it. Such I love a, it. Otherwise dark, dark and yes. really gloomy, just like story. yeah. This movie is hard to watch if you're not if you don't have the stomach for it, or if you are not like just yeah. you can't take in those dark. Oh, the, those throats. Yes. And that's like, Throat slashings, I can watch them in movies, but they, that's like my least favorite, like, <laughs> murder to see in a movie. I they, do not like I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I can feel it on my, on my neck, literally, mm-hmm. when I see yes. that. I just like, immediately just like... It's super cringy. Oh. Like, it's, it's, it's... It's my, it's my least favorite, like... Mine is Drownings. I can't watch Drownings. That's hard, too. Okay. Yeah. Like, but honestly, like, throat slitting, even, like, as, as gruesome as murders can be in horror or mm-hmm. in general... I cannot watch a throat get slit. Yeah. I can't. Scary movie, Halloween H2O, like, yeah. I, uh, I scream three, like, mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm so squeamish. Yeah. That's so funny. I love mm-hmm. how each of our... Can't do it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a hard one, and I know that a lot of people were, like, some, some horror fans, mm-hmm. when they went in to see this film, they were like, oh, yes, like, you know, throats getting slit, mm-hmm. and then, bam, it's a musical, and they're like, what? So there was a lot of mixed reviews because it wasn't actually super, super produced. It's like, it's a musical. Right. Which I'm like, I guess, coming from us, we would walk into Sweeney Todd knowing it's a musical. But it's odd to think that, yeah, there are people out there who would walk in just thinking it's a movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I could, but they shouldn't have been disappointed. They should have been pleasantly surprised. Right. Like, oh, okay. Awesome music. Rockstar Demon. (laughs) Rockstar Demon Barber from Fleet Street. Like, Lots of blood. Give it to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we have um, amazing. Love him. Sasha Baron does so good in this. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a very short scene, he has a song. Oh, he takes His, it. it. Yeah, he, he loves. It. I saw a meme once where it was like, um, name a supporting character who thought who acted like they were the lead, and uh, <laughs> someone who comes up a lot is Philip Seymour Hoffman, and oh. another one I think is Sasha Baron. Oh, those two definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. They own it. Like you remember mm-hmm. them, no matter how small, mm-hmm. how significant or not, yeah. what lines they had or not. Song like they take that movie yes 100 percent. they all in all in 
Love it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Laura Michelle Kelly, who isn't really known. Um, she's an English actor um, who plays Lucy Barker, the wife. And um, we do have Ed Sanders, who plays Toby, who is our young character. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said before, um, some of the characters were cut from the film um, because Tim decided that some of the songs just didn't do well mm-hmm. in the film adaption right. versus the stage. Um, and in, in doing so, we did lose Christopher Lee's um, uh, song that he did but again that is on the director's cut that you have to actually purchase the movie dvd mm-hmm. situation instead of just downloading it i believe i do have like the double disc edition that's the one time. yep that's the one you gotta have that one um okay so moving right along guys we've covered quite a bit already we have our characters um we have our actors who are there what am i missing before i jump in nothing okay so we open up on dreary like i'm talking straight out of corpse bride mm-hmm. colors are dark mm-hmm. black tim's favorite color palette. yes <laughs> black uh darker black midnight black gray, gray, gray. smoke gray <laughs> all this with a touch of red uh, that is, that's Tim's favorite, and he very much is 100% true to that, and it works for Sweeney Todd. Um, so we open up, we see that we are on a boat, we are traveling to London, we are introduced to Anthony, who sings his beautiful song of, like, having hope of being in London, while we see Sweeney Todd's character, who is like, this place is shit. You'll learn. Yeah. You're, you're funny, kid. You're mm-hmm. funny. You're so naive. We get off the boat. We see Todd walking around. He's still rambling, still singing, um, still very just always angry. Mm-hmm. His face is just always scowled. Um, hair is a mess. Like, never really looking together. Always very disheveled. Dark, dark circles mm-hmm. under our eyes. Johnny did really good mm-hmm. fitting the part of a person who is basically unraveling before yeah. us because we've spent so much just ugh, angry. Um, and we see him walking around and he kind of wanders into what we assume is kind of like the town square area. There's more people bustling about, lots of little shops, and he decides to walk into Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. Um, and as soon as he walks in, we are treated with the worst pies in London mm-hmm. by Helena Bonham Carter. Wait, what's your rush? What's your hurry? You gave me such a fright. I thought you was the ghost of a minute. Can't you sit? Sit you down. Sit. All I meant is that I haven't seen a customer for weeks. Did you come in for a pie? Oh, and I forgot to mention, of course, all songs and lyrics, music arrangements were written by Sondheim himself mm-hmm. and kept true to the film, um, regardless of Tim Burton directing. So we see uh, Helena immediately go into The Worst Pies in London. This song is fantastic. Todd doesn't get a word in. She bustles him in, sits him down, and she's like, oh, a customer. And then like, do you want a pie? She's like, ah. They're awful. We haven't had a customer. She starts rambling on about another person who has a pie shop and like is putting her her friends' pussies, <laughs> cats in pies. Um, you know, just these fun things. We see roaches crawling about. It's really gross. Great, great like theatrical. The the song is just such a wonderful character piece. And it truly introduces us to just a huge juxtaposition between Sweeney. And Miss Lovett, because we see this just huge difference in characters. Sweeney's so dark, and even though Miss Lovett is in dark colors, like, she's very fitting of the London-esque era, her whole mindset is just, like, 
bubbling and da 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 And like you see her mind just going everywhere and she's like, oh, who am I joking? These are the worst pies in London. Here, have some ale. You'll need it. Like just such a cute scene. And then finally we get uh, Sweeney. I keep wanting to say Barker. I'm sorry. It's so hard when they play two characters. Uh, we see Todd, you know, finally get his last word in when she finishes the song. Um, so just a little bit about this song. The way that Sondheim wrote this song, he specifically did it where it's written in um, one, two, three, and four. And the way that does it is we get that last little bit of Miss Lovett's talking. Sondheim also did use, he was notorious for giving characters what's called their own, um, it's called a leitmotif uh, for our music. And so every song that that character is in, it has the same kind of little triplicate of notes. And so he's very true to that for Miss Lovett and hers is always like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's any song that she's singing, we're going to hear that same repeating motif for her. Um, and that is where we are introduced to that in this song. Um, he also used what's called the um, Dies Irae in all of this play. And it is a chord or song that was written for like Catholic mass. It's called the Song of the Dead, which I am going to send you the link for that also because there's huge thesis about it for Sondheim using it in this play, which is why I'm so nervous about this because people literally write their thesis about this movie and I'm like, oh "Oh my God, (sighs) no pressure. (laughs) Um, So that, we get those triplicate of notes also for that in, which is foreshadowing to Miss Lovett is going to die eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also going to bring about death eventually. So we have lots of foreshadowing, even though we don't know it, because Sondheim is a genius right. in this song. Um, my favorite thing about this is, like I said, it's just such a fun piece, the way that it's written. And we get these like unpredictable notes almost with her words. And it's literally... Just like she's like rambling. Like, oh, do you want a pie? Yes. Oh, yes. You're going to need ale. And yes. Oh, my God. I mean, they're so dry. They're so dry. <laughs> yes. You need this. So you sit down. I'm so excited for you to be here. And then like, oh, like just it's so emotional. And I love it. Um, so great scene. And of course, Todd's like, I don't even know what the fuck to do because you're just, you know, throwing a pie at me. And then when he actually takes a bite of the pie, we see him go, Oh my God, this literally is the worst pie. He spits it out and then a fucking roach crawls out of the pie. And every time I see that, I'm like, like roaches, I can't do. Slit a throat in front of me, I'm cool. (laughs) Roaches in my food? (gasps) Burton, you have pushed the limit, sir. Isn't she like smashing them on the counter? She yeah. is. She's like, ew. And then she's like, no, you don't. And like in the middle of. And then you she's know. making it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and guys, the the top that she does for the pie is like three inches thick. I'm like, who taught you how to make pies, Miss Lovett? <laughs> like, no wonder you don't have. Co- and everything is just covered in flour. There's like dust everywhere. It's dust and flour and both. <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's a lot going on. Um, but again, just such a fun scene for us to get to know Miss Lovett. We know she's going to be an important character. We know that she is obviously going to be somewhat important to to Barker slash Todd and then again we do get that foreshadowing without realizing we're getting that foreshadowing so great great scene and one of the things that Sondheim I just want to quote him really quickly is that he wanted to make it very impulsive and unpredictable 
an unpredictable nature of the character and he wrote the song in that specific irregular form um, so that it was like a fast patter what's called a recitative type verse he avoided conventional meter and rhyme to further express the wandering mind of love it so none of the words really rhyme nothing is like it's not like a dr seuss song you know what i'm saying like it's very very like okay her mind it's also foreshadowing that her mind is not where it needs to be either there's a lot going on okay and then we immediately like I said after she's done rambling she finally gives Todd a second to say I need something stronger than this ale she walks him over to like I guess like a little parlor that's a part of her bakery because you know traditionally people lived in their bakery slash room on top or whatever um and he questions her about the room on top of the bakery like why don't you rent it out if times is hard you know you don't have money and she's like oh no I don't go up there it's haunted people say you know like some nice things didn't happen there and he's like what happened and so we go immediately into our second song that I'm going to be covering poor thing there was a pauper and his wife and he was beautiful a proper artist with a Poor Thing is quite a juxtaposition to our Worst Pies in London. It starts off very sad. We get these violins that come in and they're in a minor uh, scheme. And so already we kind of get this darkness. And I did want to share, I know I'm going out of order, but I wanted to share a fun fact really quickly because I think you appreciate this, Misa. Uh, Looking at you. (laughs) Okay, so Sondheim wanted to include a very specific uh, note that is called the Bernard Herman uh, meter. And so he included that. And who is that, Misa? Bernard Herman is a, a famous composer from the olden days of, <laughs> of, of Hollywood. Uh, collaborated with uh, Alfred Hitchcock many, many times. And you can fairly draw comparisons between Hitchcock and Bernard to Burton and Elfman. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And, uh, of course, Bernard Herman did the score for Psycho. Oh. Yes, thank you. I knew you'd appreciate it. I had to plug it in early. So, you know, Sondheim wanted to make sure that he did his best in bringing that very haunting, horror-esque sound. And so this song in particular has a lot of those minor major chords, which is exactly what Herman did. And so he actually took part of Psycho (laughs) and used it in poor thing so I thought you would appreciate that That it's pretty cool I was like okay that's cool I love how much composers love Bernard Mm -hmm. Herman oh he's like untouchable he it's just I love I I love it because he he totally pushed the I don't like I mean if you're not if you don't have a musical ear if you don't have an appreciation for music like there are certain things that just don't work in music but the way that this man is able to take minor and major chords and mesh them together and make it work and you're like, ooh, something's about to happen. Mm-hmm. That is huge. Mm-hmm. And for your body to like react, like to get goosebumps, that's not like by coincidence, guys. That's because of the notes and the chords that are chosen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Sondheim and all of these other amazing musicians, I'm sorry, composers and just 
like they know how to make those things happen by putting these specific notes together it's it's amazing it's such an art Mm -hmm. and I I wish that I was that talented they're phenomenal they're phenomenal so I just had to share that really quickly um, so again, Todd asks about the room and then Miss Lovett starts talking about what happened. And this is when we do get that kind of flashback and we see that, um, Benjamin Marker, he was a barber. He had a beautiful wife, Lucy. They just had a child together and, um, Judge Turpin was not happy that this beautiful person, Lucy, was married to this, you know, nobody, a barber. Mm-hmm. How dare she? And he decided that he wanted her and whatever judge turpin wanted he got essentially um and so they made that happen by sending barker away in front of lucy and the child and then turpin just like swoops in and tries to take over as her husband she tries really hard to like know they live in the room and he was sending her flowers every day miss lovett is singing and she's like no like want nothing to do with you um you know she was married happily even though he was just a barber. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Judge Turpin sends his right-hand man, Beetle, um, to go and get her one night when he's having this fantastic party. Um, and we hear a music shift at this point where we go into like this very fast-paced, um, almost like a waltz-esque, like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. The music is all matching because we hear something is going to happen. Because Lucy finally decides this is enough. I'm going to go like to the party to go tell him, like, please leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. She goes to the party and what happens is our worst nightmare. Everyone is in costume. She doesn't know where the judge is until finally he traps her in the middle of this entire crowd and he rapes her. And nobody does a fucking thing. This is a dark topic. Mm -hmm. And Sondheim did great at showing just how chaotic and hurtful and just all these emotions that Lucy must be feeling with the instruments and the notes that he chose. It's just everything is disarray at this scene. And this is when finally Barker screams and Miss Lovett's like, so it is you. She realizes you are Benj. And he's like, no, that person is dead. My name is Todd, Sweeney Todd. Mm -hmm. And then he tells her, I'm here for revenge. And she's about it. She's like, okay, cool. I'm here for you, you know. Um, (laughs) Dark topic, but, you know, I get it. And she has to do the hard job of telling him, like, Lucy, after that moment, like, she took arsenic. And so she's no longer here. And your daughter, Judge, took over her. And this enrages him even more, rightfully so. You know, you come back 15 years thinking that things are just going to fall back into place, you know, having those false sense of what could be only to be told, like, what you left is even more fucked up yeah. now. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine what that sent him into. Mm-hmm. Um, this this whole scene is really hard to watch because it is this this movie addresses some really dark things. I mean, first of all, this man sends you away, like I said, with like just because, mm-hmm. just because, um, rapes her wife in front of everyone, and this scene is so hard to watch because all of the people in those like very French Victorian like masks right. are literally watching. L- watching. 
and laughing, like as if this is some party favor. You know what I mean? Part of the show. Right. It's awful. It's so awful. Like, I don't know what kind of parties these fucking people went to. We have been to some parties, and I have never, ever witnessed something like this at a party. It's horrendous. And then for you to take custody of my child, knowing that you are a shitty person, like, it's it's fucking my worst nightmare. Isn't he grooming her? Yeah, he's 100% grooming her. Now, we don't get that moment just yet, but it's quite evident just because we see how fucking schemy and nasty of a man that he is. You know? It's just, it's awful. Um, and he 100% is grooming her, and we do see that later on in the movie, and even fucking proposes to her, which is disgusting. And let me just remind you, like, he's like 60, and she's like, about to turn 16 mm-hmm. about to so gross like ew and he went after her mom yeah, that's what was weird like okay me. jerry springer no <laughs> like it yeah hard topic so um just a lot and again just sondheim when he wrote the song he wanted to make it as chaotic but creepy and setting up that tone again because we are about to move into more of our horror-esque scenes we are realizing like okay Todd is here for business like he's gonna get his revenge we need some heavy shit so I love that he reached out and pulled some other things he does have again notes from the dearest era which we see through lots of his song because that is again the song of death um and it's it makes it really heavy. But then we also do have some moments when he is talking, I'm sorry, when um, Miss Lovett is talking about Lucy or Joanna, we do notice that Sondheim wanted to do a different leitmotif for her. Again, that kind of, those three notes or that instrument that's tied with that character. And so we hear the flute, which is very bird-like. And we do get that in Joanna's songs mm-hmm. as well. I'm saying that now because that's one of my honorable mentions. There's way too many songs for me to cover in this movie because we are talking musical. So again, I was just saying that uh, Sondheim again those lay motifs so he gives her the flute which is very kind of like bird-esque um that's what he was going for that character um so then our movie progresses with uh mrs lovett taking todd up to the room where everything happened and uh she has lovingly saved his shaving razors which are like these beautiful silver Mm-hmm. you know set of collections and he's super excited to see them and he's like yes this is how i'm gonna fucking murder some people because <laughs> she like, kind of had a thing for him yeah when he yes. was still yes right. which we get in the song poor thing because she's like there was a beautiful barber and his wife yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that person and that girl yeah um yeah she totally had a thing for him um and she's like you're welcome I saved these for you. I could have sold them, but I didn't. And so, you know, definitely letting him know, like, I'm on your side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here for you. Whatever you need. Whatever. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Available. Um, and so he he tells her, like, okay, leave me now. And he sings this whole song. And then 
Um, during this time, we also see Anthony because he got off the bus too. That's the name of the, you know, sweet little sailor boy who mm-hmm. has no idea how horrible London is. Naive. Yeah, naive. Um, and he is walking along trying to find his place and he sees like this beggar woman. He gives her some change and then he sees this beautiful girl sitting in a window and he asks the beggar woman like, who is that? And he's like, oh, that's Joanna. You know, her ward will never let anyone near her. She doesn't leave. Kind of gives the backstory. So ding, ding, ding. That's his daughter. Okay. Anthony doesn't know that. He doesn't know any of the backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hears her sing. Beautiful song. Another one of my honorable mentions. Um, just again because I couldn't cover everything. But uh, Green Finch and Linnet Bird is a beautiful song that Joanna sings. Filled with these beautiful flutes and high notes. And it's just, it's very, um, it's just a great song that shows how she is trapped in a cage and everything about it is just 100% what Joanna is living because she doesn't get to leave her room because the judge knows that if she does she'll never return um and so Anthony immediately falls in love with her and decides that's her that's my person judge notices brings him in beats the shit out of him you know throws him out and then Anthony decides my love is too strong I'm still coming back for you you're still my person we're making this happen even though you know your ward is the strongest and you know toughest person in all of this area of London and so we Move along with our story. Um, Burton decides, I need to make a name for myself. And Miss Lovett says, you know, we need to bring some customers in for you. So they go to, like, this little town square center again. Like, everyone is surrounding. And another one of my honorable benches because I love this song. But it's just another way to, like, push forward the storyline. Um, and that is Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. Mm-hmm. Which is our song by Sasha Baron, um, Senor Pirelli and his little child, Toby. And Toby's like, I have this beautiful hair elixir. He starts singing the song. It's so great and grand. And, you know, it's got like that beginning, like the drums and like the da-na-na-na, like all the horns, like paying attention. Um, <laughs> the reason I love this song and because it is an honorable mention is because while they're in the crowds, they're like passing out like, here's a sample, here's a sample. Mm-hmm. And uh, Todd and <laughs> Tucker. And it was a toddler lover, like, what is this? Smells like piss. Yeah. Smells like, oh. <laughs> and she's like, like this is piss. Piss with ink. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> one of my favorite lines. That is the, yeah. And then he comes out and he's like, who calls my stuff piss? And like, he's, it's just, it's such a good scene. Love this song. Filled with all these great moments. Um, and so, you know, Todd challenges him to like a shave off um and so they shave two different people and of course Beetle who Todd is trying to get in with mm-hmm. um asks him to judge the scene and you know Pirelli's over here making a big scene of everything you know showing off Taking his time. right and then Todd's like you know all right done and um so Todd wins the money and goes about and thanks Beetle like for his kindness and fairness and Beetle is like this grimy oh I do what I can for my friends and people it's just it's gross he's disgusting he's very much the rat like you know his former character in Harry Potter so we move on and um Todd now has the room set up above the shop as kind of like his barber area and Pirelli shows up Senior Pirelli his accent is gone. He is English, pretending to be Italian, and he notices who that is because he recognizes those beautiful shaving razors. Mm-hmm. And Todd can't have that. So 
He has to murder him. And he, like, bludgeons him, kills him. Like, he doesn't just get the beautiful slit of the throat. He gets his head bashed in because he tries to take Todd's money. He tries to say, like, okay, for every cut, you know, I'm going to be doing this unless you want me to go and run off to my friends. Blackmail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Todd's like, yeah, we're not doing that. I spent 15 years in isolation. Yeah. We're not. Yeah, you're, you're fucking dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, of course... Pirelli never travels anywhere without his adorable little helper, Toby. So he has to hide the body. And Miss Lovett is entertaining him downstairs. Um, and this kid can drink a lot. So, <laughs> which is always fun. And we learn that Toby, you know, is an orphan. And Pirelli did rescue him, even though he's an asshole to him. Um, and we move a little bit further on in our movie where we are getting more clients in for Todd to um you know practice on but he's waiting for judge turpin like that's who he really wants he gets beetle to come in he gives him a free shave because he knows he needs the judge to come in and if beetle is coming in then the judge is coming in so finally judge turpin shows up he gets him ready he's getting him to shave and like todd is overwhelmed because he's so excited like his neck is bare like Mm -hmm. this is it like of course Judge Turpin is a little, like, put off by, like, not that the room's in shambles, but, you know, it's not, like, where a fancy hoity-toity judge would go to. Plus, I get the feeling, oh, he recognizes exactly where the fuck we are. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, this is where Lucy used to live. And so there might be some hesitation because of that also. And so they're singing the song together because, of course, Judge decides to talk about how his ward who's about to turn 16, he proposed to, but oh God, she is not about it. I wonder why. Mm -hmm. And because you're old, first of all, you keep her locked in a room, second of all. Like, come on. Do you really think she's going to be like, oh God, yes, I'd love to marry you. You You sent her dad away and raped her mom. Yeah. Like, what? How about no? Yeah. (laughs) Like, how about burn in hell, okay? Yeah. So, obviously, he's like, I just need to be shaved and, you know, like, then she'll love me. And that's what Beetle says, too. And I'm like, y'all are ridiculous. But whatever. So, Todd is getting him ready. He's, like, getting ready to slit his throat right when Anthony comes in. He's like, I'm going to take Joanna tonight. Mm. Worst timing ever. The judge leaves, throws his apron. He's like, I am never coming back to this establishment because of who you, you know, entertain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's like, get out to Anthony. And he like loses it. He goes into this like whole changing character. We literally see him breaking apart. Another honorable mention, Epiphany. um, Because we see Todd literally like madhouse. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like we know he's livid he's pissed he had the person right there and this fucking kid mm-hmm. ruined it um and now he's just running around like running about i need to shave everyone like come come let me shave you blah 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 like just freaking out and he's singing like i had him and he's like my wife like just a horrible horrible emotional scene um and mrs lovett finally gets him to come back and calm down and she's like I know that you're upset, but we've got to talk about these bodies that you have. Because now we have two people um, because he killed, like, another random person. Um, And they're deteriorating, okay? So they probably smell. And she's like, I I just don't, like, what are we going to do about them? And he's like, well, I guess, you know, like, late at night I can go run off and bury them. And she's like, 
Ah, it's a shame. And this is when we start, probably my favorite song, um, A Little Priest. I mean, with a prize of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it. Good you got it. Take for instance, Mrs. Mooney Adam. Mm -hmm. Um, A Little Priest is a beautiful, beautiful, satirical, punny, because it's filled with puns, all about how they are going to kill different types of men and bake them into pies. Mm -hmm. Um, And she starts off with, like, it's a shame, you know, he's so plump, and I would love to, uh, you know, all that free meat. And he's like got it and he's like on board because hey I get to get some of my anger and revenge out and kill some of these fucking men who are always on top and now we get to be on top we're literally gonna get to kill them bake them into pies and then feed them to all those people you know like talk about a good revenge story this this song is in the play the last song that's sung right before the end of act one and Sondheim purposely wrote a song that was like totally different than the rest of the play he wanted this to be light and whimsical the music again is in a waltzy three four time measure everything is like very like moving and dancing-esque because we do see Todd and Lovett start dancing and this is kind of where we see more of their relationship possibly Mm -hmm. taking a different path like right now we've just been kind of like Mm co-conspirators we see we've known miss lovett has a thing for him but she's been uh, he's been so uninterested in her right yeah just like totally hyper focused on revenge Mm -hmm. but this now he's like all right obviously you're like my ride or die Mm -hmm. so uh, maybe maybe we can have some affections maybe so he dances with her like she calls him love and pet in the song um And they go through, like, a little priest, like, oh, it's heavenly. They talk about the grocer, and it's green. The politician's a little oily, so we're going to need a doily. Um, And everything is just so cute and rhymey. And, like, Sondheim specifically wrote about that. And one thing that when I was doing research, um, Sondheim actually had over 26 pages of different careers and like jokes that he could make about them so that he could put them in the song because he wanted to include as many as possible he did so good with this song like I just it's so funny like I said and it's just such a kind of like a break you know what I mean from the dark the heavy everything in minor this song is in a major chord um again it is in that kind of very waltzy dancey-esque song oh the poet the joke there is how would you know it's deceased because you know they're emotional Mm -hmm. um and then the fob um so like the fancy you know basically the gay guy of London that's what they called them the British Royal Marine it's super lean uh you know if you're on a diet (laughs) if you want something thicker look for the vicar Mm -hmm. uh so just fun just so fun I love this song I love it and just some more notes again he wanted to make sure that he ended with that humorous musical number um it was a very conscious decision because he wanted to make sure that the audience had a little bit of comedy with their tragedy Um, especially in this interpretation of the story. And he did note that when writing this from, of course, all of the other information that we have about Todd, the English actually took the story of Todd as 
a humorous story. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's very like a facade, like a farce, if you will. Um, and he wanted to bring that more to, I guess, not <laughs> a dramatic piece. And so adding in those little touches of humor, he thought would bring in all audiences instead of just that horror audience, if you will. He did say that even though it is a comedy piece, we start to see how misery loves company and we start to see this crazy love transpire in this very dance macabre waltz rhythm. So beautiful. So beautiful. Sondheim is a genius. Um, and in another important note, this song does, of course, start with the dearest, the Dies Irae, which is through the entire thing. And we do have the parts where Miss Lovett sings a little bit of her previous song, mm-hmm. The Worst Pies in London, which, of course, is in her um, Petit Le Motif. So, so much going on because Sondheim, musical genius, musical genius. So, after this part, a lot happens. Um, and again, guys, I apologize. I know I'm rushing through, but my songs are kind of spread out because I try to choose the most important songs and the ones that really drove through the storyline, mm-hmm. um, those most important scenes. So we get what's going on. Like, we know, okay, so this is what they're going to do. We know we're about to see a lot more murders and they're going to turn them into pies. You know, it's also a financial decision because meat was hard to get, as we heard in Worst Pies of London. Todd is getting some of his anger about and, you know, building his repertoire in the area. Um, And so we see Todd build this, like, fancy chair that literally, like, throws the body down, the chute, and then they have, like, this ginormous meat grinder. It's so gross. It's so gross. gross. And then we see, like, this pile of, like, fingers and toes and it's so awful um so literally the next couple scenes we see like random men coming in and he shaves them and then slits shave slits there's only one man who doesn't get his throat slit and that's because he's smart and brings his whole family um and we see business booming for mrs lovett like this was a great decision you know They have a whole little patio area. Everyone is, you know, eating all of their great delicious pies that they're serving. And I'm assuming they're delicious. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I've I've heard, and don't get me wrong, I don't know for sure. But I've heard that, like, if you eat human meat, it's actually kind of gamey and Mm -hmm. salty. And, like, you can think about it. Like, someone asked me once, like, oh, if you had to eat a person, if you had to eat one of your friends, who would you eat first? And I was like, um, I think human bodies actually have a lot of body fat on them, so yeah. I probably wouldn't eat anyone at all. Yeah, <laughs> probably die. So Taking one for the team. Y'all yeah. can just – I've also heard that um, it can lead to, like, serious madness. Oh, like, yeah. Because, yeah. like, too. our bodies are not meant to be eaten for, you know, like, yeah. consumption-wise. And uh, because of the – hormones and like elements and minerals and all that jazz and all the you know extra shit we put in our bodies yeah. it literally can drive you mad because of all of our stuff kind of like mad cow mad human <laughs> That's disease exactly yeah. What I was thinking about it. yeah 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 um but i mean their business is popping okay so like they're having to run off the crazy old beggar lady who keeps coming around toby is busy like busting tables and barker's busy i'm sorry todd is busy shaving people and cutting people mm-hmm. 
um, and everything is thriving. And then we get our, you know, mini story. Joanna is not. They have sent her away to a mental institute until she can decide that she wants to be in Judge Turpin's company. Um, and just an awful decision. So, of course, Anthony comes and tells Todd and they decide um, the best way to rescue her apparently back in the day they would get hair for wigs um, from mental wards I didn't realize that until I watched this movie but it is true I looked it up that was how wigs were made they would take the hair from people who were you know in mental and psych facilities which Mm -hmm. is so sad Mm -hmm. so sad Um, but you know, back in the day they didn't have internet, didn't have cards, you know, to say who they were so they could pretend to be whoever Anthony goes and, uh, saves her at the same time. Um, Todd has sent Toby away to send a letter to judge saying that he is going to have Joanna setting Anthony up, but you know, for the greater good, getting to see his daughter. Um, we also have kind of like a shit moment because, beetle comes and he's like you know as health inspector it is my job and i am we are getting complaints about the smoke coming from your chimneys because it smells awful um aka because you're burning bodies they don't know that but you know that's why (laughs) um so todd kind of freaks out and he's like you know before you do that we should really shave you and which is such a weird thing but beetle's like yes after some convincing <laughs> yes and because he tells him he smells good so ridiculous so beetle goes up he dies um and then todd goes down to help miss lovett find toby who has returned but is hiding somewhere in the like dungeon where they turn the bodies into the meat grinder at the same time our beggar woman goes up stairs and she's like beetle i saw you and like her song again is very chaotic beetle 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 um and she turns around and todd is there and he's like who are you and he <sighs> doesn't even give her a chance to reply he slits her throat he shoves her down the chute um we also miss during this time anthony comes and like shoves joanna in the little like uh what are those called like the wooden chest things for like luggage um to hide her while he goes and does who the fuck knows what i don't know what he needed to leave for because i mean you rescued her you run away like you don't you're done with your business anthony didn't plan that out well um so judge comes and todd is like oh yes we have her she's here she's changed her mind she's all about you she knows she messed up she wants to marry you and be with you and judge is like oh my god this is the best thing ever like he's so excited and todd is like but before you go down there like we need to fix your face we gotta shave apparently this was a big thing to be shaved and apparently women went crazy over bare naked faces i don't know um but you know judge was like you're right of course I do. Please shave my face. So he sets him up, slits his throat, but he also like stabs him with the uh, shaving razors, which causes just madness of blood everywhere. And Todd is like smiling and reveling in all of the like, die. It's a beautiful scene. It's emotional. Uh, it's an emotional killing for sure. And um, so Judge Turpin is sent down the chute 
And as Todd is, again, reveling in, like, yes, I've gotten my revenge and my dear friends, a.k.a. my razors, you can rest now, uh, he realizes that there is someone in the room, and it is Joanna in disguise. He's about to kill her, him, because she's disguised as a boy, um, when he hears Miss Lovett scream. So Judge was not dead all the way. Judge is, like, clawing at poor Mrs. Lovett. He sends the boy aka Joanna away without slitting her throat which is like huge because he had no problem killing anybody else goes down we see that the judge is dead um finally because she like stomped on his face and they're still looking for Toby because again Toby is hiding Toby now knows like okay what's really going on so we gotta we gotta probably kill this kid or you know I don't know blackmail him something um and this is when we get our final scene so this is actually two songs tied into one it is our longest song it's an eight minute song and it is encompassing like all of our last parts of our movie um it is very chaotic there's lots of dies irae in it everyone's Petit Le Motif or Full Le Motif is in this song. We get lyrics and parts from every single song that's in the play because we have Todd singing little bits. We have um, Mrs. Lovett singing parts of her previous songs as well as like just little asides to Todd because in this scene he realizes who the beggar woman actually is. It is in fact his beloved Lucy who he killed without a second thought. Mm. And he is horrified. And he is fucking livid because Mrs. Lovett told him that she was dead. She didn't tell him the whole truth. She didn't. She said... She poisoned herself. Yes. She didn't say that she died of the poison. Yeah. Which. She wanted him for herself. Yes. Which love it does say. She's like, no, no, no. I didn't say that she died. Mm-hmm. And she's like, but I love you. I could be a better wife than her. I chills like, like, I, it's so emotional. And then we see this complete crazy ass character change because then we see Todd like waltzing away with her down by the dungeon and like in front of the furnace and like like it's okay I forgive you blah 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 and then he shoves her in the furnace and he shuts the door and he literally just watches her scream and burn and then he goes back to his sadness and his realization of everything that's going on and he holds Lucy and he's singing and crying and he's singing his Joanna song And we see Toby crawl out from underneath the grate that's like where all the blood and everything drips, which is so disgusting. Poor Toby has been there for quite some time. And I'm 100% sure, based on Sondheim's notes, Burton's notes, all of the thesis that I read, that Todd has realized there is no more to me living. And he openly shows his throat. Even though he doesn't look at Toby, he knows he's behind him. And he allows Toby to slit his throat and he bleeds over his beloved Lucy and they are now dead together and our beautiful family friendly movie ends (laughs) just kidding um but it does end and it is just it's so chilling like this movie just has 
all of the emotions. Um, but the one thing that I really love about this movie is we're so used to seeing movies that like where everything just ends like perfectly, like everything's tied in a yeah. bow. And I love that this movie isn't because like we don't know what happened to Anthony. We don't know what happened to Joanna. Todd didn't get his wish and like yeah he got to kill Judge but he killed his wife and he didn't get to get his like I mean he almost killed his fucking daughter you know um we don't know what happened to Toby um so there's it's it's a really heavy movie and it's not a happy ending like it's not when you walk out and you're like oh I'm so glad it's when you walk out and you're like fuck Mm -hmm. That was dark. Let's go get something to eat. Um, so, but I mean, it's a great, it's a great movie. Tim Burton really did do a great job. He worked really closely with Sondheim. He had Sondheim's blessing for taking out some of the songs that they had to, just because again, play doesn't work the same as movie. We don't need that chorus that we have in our plays to carry along our storyline, if you will, in our movies. Um, So Sondheim was on board for that. He was really proud of the work that Burton did. Um, So were most of our actors who were in this movie. I'm sure Christopher Lee was upset that his part got cut, but again, you can see that in the um, main one. Um, One other honorable mention that I had was um, Nobody's Gonna Hurt You. I just love this song because it's a really sweet song that Toby sings to Mrs. Lovett when he is telling her, like, I have some serious suspicions about Mr. Todd. Like, he's not a good person, but you've been so nice to me. Like, I would murder for you. And it's just such, like, who doesn't want to be told that? Like, I love you and I would kill someone for you. You know what I mean? It's just so sweet. I know it's so twisted, but it's so sweet. I love it. Okay, so I do have just a couple fun facts. And I did want to mention just some of the people who have played some of our great characters um, from the plays and some of the other movies. I didn't know that this was a movie that was um, also like the BBC covered in 2000. Hold on, I don't want to get the year wrong. 2006, I believe. So there was a 2006 um, BBC version of Sweeney Todd that um, did star some very notable people. I was like, what? I had no idea. So one of my favorite, Tom Hardy, was in Sweeney Todd. Was he Sweeney Todd? He wasn't. Oh. Which he was um, Anthony. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Now, it wasn't the musical version, so BBC covered the play. Story. Yeah, the story. Um, so, just some other people who have played Sweeney Todd in the past. Um, so, Lynn Cario, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, was our original Sweeney Todd. Um, we do have some other people, some that I'm really not familiar with, but George Hearn, Dennis Quilly, Bob Gutton, Alan Armstrong, Michael Cervais, who most of us... Um, he was in like a show passion some of you may know that um uh but he's he's pretty big in theater mrs lovett of course was angela lansbury who the whole musical was written with her in mind um another one is patty lapone which we love her we stan her thank you um and then imelda stutton who was in harry potter okay she was also in harry potter so that was cool um the person who played um, Joanna has changed um, a couple times. There was one or two names that I recognized, um, and that was, um, like, I don't know if it was, like, an offshoot one, but um, I always forget. Oh, Mandy Moore, sorry. 
Oh, okay. Mandy Moore covered one. So I don't know if we can find that one. I had a hard time finding it. I think it was more just like a like a, a mini. Like a, it wasn't like a full run of a, a play or you know what I mean or like a musical. Um, but I thought that was really cool um, that she played that. And uh, just some random fun facts about Sweeney Todd. This is one of three, like I said, of the movies that um, – Tim Burton and Danny Elfman have done that like Danny Elf- I'm sorry that Danny Elfman has not done with Tim Burton okay. one of the few um mo- there was like six people that were in this movie that in some way shape or form were in Harry Potter including Johnny himself who was in the um, mystical beings one mm-hmm. um the Johnny Depp of course is not a trained musician or vocal singer right. but he trained for months to get ready for this part because he did not want to do it a disservice mm-hmm. um again i talked about christopher lee's part being cut which was really sad um they some of the songs did have to be adjusted just because the way that sondheim wrote them he wrote them with specific pitches in mind so like the person who played joanna was t- called like one of the highest sopranos so they could only like they tried really hard to find the person who fit that for their range um it didn't always work for the film, like for instance, Helena is not the same vocal range as Angela Lansbury, mm-hmm. so they did have to bring the songs down just a little bit, but they are still 100% true to like Sondheim in that way. Um, Anne Hathaway was almost cast as Joanna, which oh. you know I love when we talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wasn't able to do it because of scheduling, however, she was in his next film, Alice in Wonderland. Right. So that was fun. Um, the, um, Mrs. Lovett's shop, we see the number on there, 186. It is actually 100% a reference to the original legend of Sweeney Todd. So in that very first string of pearls, Mm -hmm. that was the original number that they said of like the people that he killed, which I thought was super cool. And it was also the address of where he was for his barber shop. So coincidence? No, I think we used our number to determine how many people we were going to kill. Um, and Johnny Depp is the only American in the cast. I thought that was cool too. So he obviously had to fake his thing. Oh, that was the other person who I want to talk about. Neil Patrick Harris was also in some of the 2000 concert performances. So there was like a year where Neil Patrick Harris was Sweeney Todd. Which was so cool. That was really cool. So cool. Um, and this is the second musical for Johnny Depp. The first one is... Dion Corpse Bride. Crybaby. <laughs> yes. Cute. The first one was Crybaby, which I love that movie. That is a good movie. So foreshadowing. He, he didn't sing. He lip Yeah. Yeah. He lip synced. He's not on the track? No. Mm-hmm. In any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So he did do some of the singing parts in Corpse Bride, which right. is why Martha said that. So technicalities, yes. Right. However, musical title, right. Crybaby would be the first one, even though he he was a newbie. So he I wasn't. Think that was his first, like, big, full length, like, starring. Yeah. Role yeah. 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 Because the. the very first one was... Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. That was his first credited film role. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is the seventh collaboration between Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. And, of course, there are more after this. And in doing all my research, I do have several sources I just wanted to cite. Um, Screen Rant, the YouTube channel Sideways, IMDb, Whatsong.com, Wikipedia, uh, Dope Opera, 
film score record um mural may newth university which thank you peter manning for your amazing thesis on sweeney todd it was very helpful and insightful all 67 pages of it yeah that's a lot you did great um one two three help me the youtube channel kevin lynch the youtube channel musical theater mash broadwayworld.com uh, the YouTube channel Damien Slattery, the YouTube channel On the Fence, SFGate, Den of Geek, uh, Row to One Nine One Six WordPress Analysis Sweeney Todd, and Playbill.com. Awesome. Good job. Sweeney Todd is a good one. Mm-hmm. It was fun, guys. Thank you so much. I know I kind of went fast and furious, but good times, good times. And now, it was a lot, guys. Like, for real, when I was reading that thesis, I was like, all right, I need to amp it up a little bit. <laughs> so, but yes. And I'm so excited to hear about our last but not least, Tim Burton slash Johnny Depp slash <laughs> Danny Elfman. <laughs> Uh, yes, yet another attempt at gothic horror, uh, because today I am going to be talking about one of the few. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, I'm sorry. One of the few, one of the two, I can count. Two Tim Burton movies that I willingly watched, own, mm-hmm. and actually enjoy. Yay! <laughs> and mine is, of course, the 1999 Sleepy Hollow. Okay, so Sleepy Hollow came out in 1999, and so if we're going to give the listeners a bit of perspective here, Mm -hmm. I was still in elementary school when Mm y'all were, Mm -hmm. and um, we were in schools where, like, we were wearing uniforms, Mm -hmm. we looked like carbon copies of each other, Mm -hmm. you know, so, like, I had not yet entered that stage in my life where the people around me looked like Tim Burton fans. Right. Right. And, and, And in elementary school... You're really not typically, like, you're kind of more influenced by, like, your older sisters, your parents. Right. You know, you're kind of watching what they're watching Mm -hmm. and over their show. You're trying to, like, sneak Mm -hmm. in and watch their movies. And so no one in my family is a Tim Burton fan. Right. I didn't grow up around that. Right. Uh, I say it like that, like it's bad. (laughs) Um, But, like, when when this movie came out, there wasn't necessarily a friend that I knew who, like, was a Burton fan, and I could go talk to them about it, and, you know, it it wasn't like that yet, I feel like. Right. I think we were still developing our taste at the time. Yeah, and you weren't thinking about it as, like, oh, this is this director's movie. Right, right, and I will be honest, like, the reason I saw this movie is not because I realized I'm a Tim Burton fan. I was a Johnny Depp fan, and I knew that because I was like, I love him, he is perfection. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember when this came out, I remember my parents saw it. And it was still a few years later before I finally saw it. And because my parents loved it. And my mom was like, you need to watch it, you need to watch it. But I was still kind of, I wasn't yet ready to watch a bunch of horror movies, I don't think. I wasn't like yet there. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't yet discovered my big level Johnny Depp. So it was a few more years before I did finally watch it. And I was like, oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, and so, so Sleepy, and uh, on top of that, Sleepy Hollow isn't really, yes, it is Burton, but it's mm-hmm. not your typical Burton 
fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. don't see a whole lot of black and white stripes. Mm-hmm. We don't see a lot of neon <laughs> green. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, there's a whimsy mm-hmm. and a, a fantasy-like magicalness mm-hmm. to some of his other movies that kind of, you know, uh, like, uh, satisfy your palate. Mm-hmm. Sleepy Hollow is a little more... Like, those were dark. Mm-hmm. This is dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? And um, before I go on, some of the sources that I used, and a lot of them are from Danny Elfman interviews. <laughs> so we have um, People's YouTube channel, Danny Elfman's 2017 interview. We have Wong Notes podcast, uh, Danny Elfman's April 2021 interview. Extras interview from 2002 with Danny Elfman. The What the Fuck with Mark Marin episode from June 3rd, 2021 with Danny Elfman. We also have allmusic.com, Entrada, soundtrack.net, discogs.com, David McCauley's YouTube channel, Wikipedia, IMDb, and the Sleepy Hollow DVD special features and commentary. Ooh, because you own it. So, um, of course, uh, this is directed by Tim Burton, who I admit I didn't do any research on. But I I was really... I was going back and forth on whether or not I was going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I will say that even though I didn't seek out any information necessarily about Burton himself, there is some information that kind of fell into my lap. Right. Thanks to YouTube and mm. the algorithm. Uh, so I like I don't know about you guys, but like whenever I'm looking at my YouTube homepage, mm-hmm. it's like all I see is a bunch of people that I'm subscribed to, and I'm like, right. show me something else. Right. Show me something outside of who I'm subscribed to, because obviously I'm following them already. Right. So I I realized that on YouTube at the very top, the very last tab is new to you oh good to know so i clicked on that because i was like okay and so it's nothing but like it's along the lines of things i watch Mm -hmm. but it's no one that i have watched oh that's really cool that's really cool okay cool and so the very first day that i clicked on new to you and i saw new videos for the first time there was one that popped up and her name is salem tovar so if you look her up, she's actually super cool. Uh, and she did an episode about Tim Burton and about how he's not always inclusive. Oh, I 100% agreed. I'm glad we're talking about that. Yeah. Because um, I think we should absolutely talk about how that is not the views of Soundtrack City or our views. Exactly. Um, he does not do a great job of doing inclusive roles or even writing for inclusive characters and that's a big thing especially when you are a writer director and even in adaptations of things so even in Sweeney Todd there were still people of color in London Mm -hmm. in the 1800s because it wasn't America there were still people of color or even in Corpse Bride he could have easily added someone same thing in a lot of our movies so I I'm so glad you brought that up um because I 100% agree with her and he has even himself acknowledged that and not in the best way and not in the best way and I have the quote good and don't get me wrong guys yes Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of him like you are but I'm also not out for to witch hunt him right all. right 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 um and I, I mean I'm sure there are plenty of directors who I love who maybe they're not the best at including and even Joaquin Phoenix is uh, I remember I can't remember if it was the um Golden Globe it definitely wasn't the Oscar when he won something for Joker he went up there and he was talking about like the lack of inclusivity he said I too am part of the problem because when I see it I don't always speak up mm-hmm. right. let's be better about speaking up and 
that really like that was along right before the pandemic Mm -hmm. right before all of like the social injustices really started to get highlighted in everyday news and media Mm -hmm. george floyd Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and so i hate to get even darker (laughs) on a on a subject that's kind of dark but um there was she her video was really informative especially to someone like me who like i haven't watched every single burton film Mm -hmm. right i didn't really know like how inclusive or not he was right. mm-hmm. um and and then you know i went back and looked at some of his old films mm-hmm. uh, older films like from when he started all the way up mm-hmm. and uh i mean he does have people of color in his films mm-hmm. but they seem to be in the back minor, in the background mm-hmm. like beetlejuice the black football player is credited as dumb football player he gives him a name yeah right you know what i mean and like uh there was this big controversy about Mrs. Pettigreen's school, Pettigreen's for, school of it, yeah, uh, peculiar kids, yeah, and that was a book mm-hmm. and an orphanage or something. Yes, like that. it's an orphanage. And so mm-hmm. there was this kind of uproar, so to speak, about like, oh, why aren't this was a perfect opportunity to have like multicultural, yeah, yeah multicultural type of orphans because they're all same thing with like X Men, like that's an orphan basically, yeah. and um, you know, there's tons of different children. Like you're basically saying that only children of this specific skin color or these people who fit this prototype can have these special abilities mm-hmm. um and i know he went to argue that that's the way that the author wrote the book um from one of the interviews that i saw because he was trying to defend himself um but the author spoke out or someone who was in close relationship with the author spoke out and said that the author didn't give anybody like a, uh, a specific um race. race there wasn't a description mm-hmm. of what they looked like right right and so it it really tripped me out. And Salem, the girl in the video, mm-hmm. she made a really good point. She was like, you know, Tim Burton is someone who has created worlds from nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, he just takes his imagination and he builds, like, these universes and these fantasies. And how is everybody the same color in every exactly. single world? Mm-hmm. And and so she kind of made a joke, a pun about, like, you know, his palette's black and white, but then again, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so um, that was interesting to me. Again, I didn't seek this out. It literally mm-hmm. popped up for me, and I was like, I have never heard, or I very rarely have heard, mm-hmm. someone point out Burton, like, call him out like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you only ever hear great things, and don't get me wrong, they are merited, because mm-hmm. the man is a creative genius. Like, the stop motion, yeah, like, I'm not I'm not saying Burton was the first to do it, but right. he popularized it. Mm-hmm. He made it a thing that people wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. Like it excites people. Like mm-hmm. stop motion technically is like a very old-fashioned version of motion pictures. Yeah. It's it's so old school. And like you said and like you said, mm-hmm. it's it's very like um it's tedious. It's te- that's the perfect word. It's tedious. It's time-consuming. Yeah. Like you watch the time lapses of people doing stop motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes forever. Yeah, it's like one scene. Okay, we got twenty seconds. It only took five hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, she brought up a lot of really good points. And I was gonna go ahead and put the video on the blog. Perfect. Um, but there was a interview. There mm-hmm. was an interview that Tim Burton did in regards to including or not including people of color. And his quote really rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah. But then some people are like, "Oh, I get what he's saying." Da 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 da. So it it was a little split i guess but it 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 did it was interesting to me to hear about this for the first time it's something that i've never noticed really like in a movie like edward scissorhands Mm -hmm. it i don't want to say it makes sense for them all to be white but considering like how how edward is supposed to be so different from this 
suburban backdrop. Mm-hmm. It kind of made sense. So in that case, like, it didn't really stick out to me that there were right. no mm-hmm. POCs. Agreed, agreed. But yes, I agree with you for, like, <laughs> Edward Scissorhands. It's not appropriate because we are talking about, like, a, a homogenous a, group. Right. A homogenous sitting town. in yeah. the 50s and everyone's doing Mary mm-hmm. Kay and everyone is white and mm-hmm. we're in a white suburb. So I understand that because in some of his films, yes, I understand like when we write scripts, when we write for characters, there are some things that we look for specifically. Like I'm not going to go in and get a role for a Jewish man. Do you know what I mean? So I get it if I don't fit that character bill. However, when you are the person responsible for writing the plays Mm -hmm. and you only write parts for white people, Mm -hmm. that's when the problem comes in, Mm -hmm. in my point of view. Mm -hmm. And I even, I did a little bit of research because I was like, how much say does Burton really have? And obviously he casts his wife. He casts Johnny, who's one of his very good friends. Mm -hmm. I take it. Um, And so I I wondered, like, maybe benefit of the doubt. It's not all Burton, Mm -hmm. right? But it obviously everything does go filtered through him. And so if he says no to something, it's a no. Yeah. He's the pilot. He's in control. Right, 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 right. And so when his quote from Bustle, uh, September 2016, he says, nowadays people are talking about it more. regarding film diversity he says but things either call for things or they don't i remember back when i was a child watching the brady bunch and they started to get all politically correct like okay let's have an asian child and a black period i used to get more offended by that than just dot 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 i grew up watching black exploitation movies right and i said that's great i didn't go okay there should be more white people in these movies and it was a really odd defense. <laughs> yeah. That's because very... it's not a defense. Because our movies that feature full black casts are rare. And mm-hmm. what we are asking for and fighting for is for there to be more people who look like us in films. Mm-hmm. Who look like us in books. And that is not just specific to people of color. I would love to see people with disabilities. In more films. I would love to see people of mixed races Mm -hmm. in films. Interracial. Exactly. I would love to see transgender people Mm -hmm. in films. Like, there's it it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you have a person who specifically writes, like I said, forecast. Like, no, I get it. When we're talking about, like, Sleepy Hollow, that is a period piece. Mm -hmm. That is different. Mm We're not talking about a high school play where, okay, this is the people who we have to pick from. Mm-hmm. We can do this. We're talking about, a, you know, you have so many people in this pond of actors and actresses mm-hmm. that you could easily pick a person of color, a person with a disability, a person with more than one race, mm-hmm. and you choose not to. Mm-hmm. That's where the problem is. Mm-hmm. And so it's it was interesting to come across this info. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not something that I was terribly familiar with. Right. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you guys, it's something that you guys have noticed before someone pointed it out. Right. Or I, is it I, I was blind to it until it was brought to my attention. And I will say it has been blaringly since then because I feel like, you know, we all need to be held accountable. We We may have made mistakes in the past where, you know what, I didn't realize I wasn't being inclusive. Mm-hmm. You're right. Let me fix it. Let me write a new movie and make sure I I change. You know, even if it's just one or two characters, at least I'm I'm showing you like, hey, I'm I'm open minded. This is an effort. Exactly. Right. Um, but we really haven't seen that 
And so I will be honest, I'm waiting for that day. Because while I love the films he creates, I would love to see more inclusiveness in them. So I'm waiting for him to do that. Um, I mean, I know Johnny has no problem being in roles with various people. Mm-hmm. I know Helena has no problem being in roles with various people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are your two main people. So maybe we could put one of them as a minor role and bring in someone else. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm sure they would be happy to not do so, so, so much work as the main character. Mm-hmm. And let's bring in someone else. Let's yeah. bring in just someone who looks a little bit different than the rest of our movies. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Burton, uh, balls you, in your court. Yeah. I want to see you impress me. Yeah, exactly. See so <laughs> anyway, um, Salem had a lot of other really great insights to say, but I can't go into all of them today right now. Uh, I definitely recommend watching the video. I'm going to put it on the blog. And, um, really good watch. I think she made some really good points. She also talked about like, th- there was a warp filter on TikTok where people were trying to turn themselves into Burton figures. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then people of color, it wasn't working. Mm. And so it was like, oh, we don't fit the aesthetic. And then people were defending him saying like, oh, but his aesthetic is gothic. It's like, okay, but black people and Hispanic I, I people hate... can be gothic too. As, as, <laughs> as someone who has been a part of that subculture for so long. And yes, I am white. I, I know that. To think that it is something that is just for white people is just such a disgusting, like, stereotype and generalization. Like, I... Because then I they gatekeep. Yeah. 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 Like, oh, this is only for... I, I hate that. Like, I I don't even understand how that got started. Like, it's just... It's, it's so upsetting that that's still a thing in 2021. Yeah. Well, actually, and that's another thing. I highly recommend her video because she talks about the origins of gothic culture. Oh, yes. I can't wait to watch this. Great find, Misa. Mm-hmm. I'm cool. so glad you found this. Hey, YouTube. <laughs> it came through. Thank you, YouTube. Uh, we know it's like an offshoot of like the punk rock scene mm-hmm. and the post-punk era. And I'm sorry, there were a lot of a lot of different races going on in that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Still to this day. Still to this day, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not fair to, uh, to exclude anyone because mm-hmm. they don't fit an aesthetic. Exactly. And that goes in real life, and that goes into a hundred percent. So, anyway, not the point. Today. Not the point. But that's okay, and that's we're bringing light to Burton's not so great moments, and we're asking him to fix it. Because you can, you can definitely be a fan of someone and still be critical. Of oh their my that god, is, that is the okay. hugest thing. Can we talk Thank about you. That? Let's, oh, Martha, you just said it all. You said it all. One hundred percent. Bow down, because that's exactly, and that's those are the first parts of my notes right here. Because that's another thing that Salem mentions. It's like you can love a band mm-hmm. and maybe they come out with a song that just isn't it for you and guess yeah what? that's okay and it's okay Foo Fighters like that song. Foo Fighters miss with me sometimes yeah. oh this makes me want to go into politics right. because <laughs> that is how I feel and I'm just talk the person who you vote for in any political campaign should never 100% be okay in your book right. because exactly. you should always be striving to make that person better which means we accept and we know their weaknesses Mm -hmm. and we are pushing them to be better and that is all i'm going to say there is no such thing as a perfect politician Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. that's an oxymoron yeah that's (laughs) yes in the first place but yeah and you should never think oh 
I voted for this person, so I agree with 100% of everything they stand for. And, and like, no. You're lying. Exactly. That's how you have that blind faith. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's cult mentality, yeah. guys. And yeah. I watched interviews where people are like, if so-and-so went into the middle of Times Square and shot someone right now, I would be okay with it. Mm-hmm. The They would fuck? still love me. No. Mm-hmm. No. Not okay. We need to stop having this blind misconception to anyone. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with your spouse, yeah. with your children. <laughs> you love them, correct? But do you love them just like the way they are? No, you always want them to be better. You want mm-hmm. to push them and encourage them to yeah. be the best human that they can be. And like I said, that it, that means essentially admitting there's some faults. There are some things that we're not so great at because, again, nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just it's it is it's a disgusting misconception, and I hate it. Yeah, I hate it, and I'm so glad you said that, Martha. So glad you said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it's a really relatable uh, that, that goes that goes into many areas of your life. Like it's relatable. Like we love our friends. Mm-hmm. We don't love our friends all the time, mm-hmm. right. but mm-hmm. we love our friends. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and, right. And, and family. We oh, love yeah. our family. Oh, God, I don't love yeah. my family all the time. Right. But they, there's that unconditional mm-hmm. love. And, you know, sometimes you're able to look past some of the flaws. And then sometimes you're just like, no, work on this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's that's the kind of relationship yeah. you should really have. And it's with. okay for us to draw those boundaries for <sighs> ourselves. Yes. Love it. Yeah. So... Great well, topics. Okay. Love it that we got like, woo. <laughs> this is a therapy session. Some emotional therapy <laughs> stuff going on. I'm a fan. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So let's get into Sleepy Hollow. I'm that's said and done. so excited. I love this movie. This is one of the very first DVDs that we ever owned. So when, I, when VHS was still a thing and DVDs were kind of becoming a right. disc or whatever you call it, um, <laughs> this was one of the first DVDs that we owned when we had a gateway desktop computer. Oh right. my god! Uh-huh. And, and I'm pretty sure we were still using the house phone for the internet. Whoa! And dial up! That's when we got this DVD and I remember like, my I would watch it on my sister's computer in her room. So like the computer would be on playing it and I would be laying in the bed watching it like mm-hmm. this. That's so cute. And I, I love, I know you guys got pulled in because of like Burton or Donnie or whatever, mm-hmm. but mine was Christina Ricci. Okay, okay. but same, because I was so excited to see her with Johnny because I have the biggest crush on Christina. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was a kid in the 90s, like, she's who I wanted to be. Yeah. Yes. Like, Casper? Yes. I was Dad. like, can I just be her? And then yeah. now and then, I was like, oh, love her. And then, of course, Wednesday Adam. Yes. Yeah. When she played Wednesday I was like queen mm-hmm. like there's nobody perfect and then she's except so for her. cute in mermaids mm-hmm. is it mermaids it's mermaids, right? it's mermaids. Mm-hmm. I always get mermaids and moonstruck confused oh yeah 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 share <laughs> yeah um but yeah she's so cute she was so little um and I just you know Christina Ricci was just someone that I looked up to from a very young age and the next right. thing I know she's she's all grown up in this movie I know and the trailer for this movie was just so cool the fucking headless oh, horseman and heads will roll yes I that was, was like the yes i was like sold yes 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 okay so um there's a lot of danny elfman appreciation coming up <laughs> uh but i will get into the sleepy hollow bits of this mm-hmm. so of course sleepy hollow is based on a book it's a gothic story by washington irving mm-hmm. and it was written in birmingham england and it was first published in 1819 
Okay, cool. So there are a few changes between the book. Have you guys read the story? I've only read part of the story. I haven't read all of it. I've read this. It was a long time ago, but I've read it. Do you remember it? Bits and pieces. It's, pieces. it's yeah. on my shelf somewhere, so I'm going to have to reread it after we talk about it. So I will be honest. Like, um, and of course I, I remember the little Disney-fied version of it. Oh, my that, God, that, yes. Think about it, Mr. Tyler. I love that. Yes. Oh, you just brought Flashback. back, like, so many memories. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there are some homages to that too. Mm-hmm. Oh, so cool. Um, and so as far as the story, it is, of course, the movies and the stories are going to be different. Just right. like they took some music out of mm-hmm. there. And of course, the Corpse Bride has evolved over time with right. all the different times that it's been told. Mm-hmm. And so Sleepy Hollow is really no different when it came from changing it from a fictional text to a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, Ichabod Crane is the main character in the mm-hmm. story, as opposed to being a constable in New York. Like he is in the movie. In the story, he's actually a schoolmaster from mm-hmm. Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, uh, he's teaching the kids in Sleepy Hollow, and he's also kind of helping the families out with like their chores and their work and stuff. Mm-hmm. He does believe in witchcraft, and he uh, hears stories about the Hessian soldier from yeah. all the townspeople as he's helping them out. There, um, Brom Van Brunt is in the movie and the story, as well as Katrina Van Tassel and her father, Baltus. Mm-hmm. Um, Inkabod is... Sorry... I grew up thinking his name was Inkabod. <laughs> so if I accidentally say Inkabod instead of Ichabod, it's a flashback to Misa's <laughs> childhood. <laughs> right. Anyway, so um, it, in, now I'm gonna <laughs> now, now you're gonna, gonna say it every time. <laughs> so Ichabod, um, he actually, him and Brom are actually kind of like competing for Katrina mm-hmm. in the story, mm-hmm. which it's only really minorly hinted at in the movie because. Brom is obviously like her suitor or something like that. Like they're going to get married at some point. And so uh, Ichabod and Brom are just always butting heads for Katrina. And it turns out Ichabod in the story wants to marry her for her money. So it's funny that like a lot of your elements in your movies mm-hmm. are coming into Sleepy Hollow too. Um, and so there's a lot of similarities. This really is a trifecta. It really yeah. is. It's so perfect. Perfectly a, picked movie. I think this is a perfect like trio of movies to do together. Um, and so uh, when Ichabod proposes to Katrina in the story, um, she doesn't accept. And mm-hmm. so he goes ahead and tries to leave. And that's when he runs into the headless horseman. Mm-hmm. And this is when they have a really brief confrontation and Ichabod is thrown from his horse. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, no one knows what happened to him. Mm-hmm. All that's left is his hat and the horse's saddle and a shattered pumpkin. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's open to interpretation, I think. Like the story ends in a way that suggests that Brahm was posing as the horseman to scare off Ichabod mm-hmm. so that he could have Katrina for herself. Right. Um, and then amongst the town in Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod's disappearance becomes a new legend because they believe that the supernatural forces took mm-hmm. him. Right. So, actually really cool. Yeah. Uh, this, this might make a good movie, too. It's just Ichabod would not be nearly as likable. Right, know? right, right. Um, but I... That was, I thought that was a really cool. I like how it derives from it, but not really. Yeah. Um, I love that all the characters are there, mm-hmm. and like there's some similarities, and there are homages to the story mm-hmm. in the movie. So I like that they kind of brought those to life. Um, as far as the Sleepy Hollow film, it did premiere at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. In our oh, so <laughs> cool. And that was November 17th, 1999. Good oh, year. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. It had its U.S. premiere on November 19th of 1999. Uh, as far as our cast, you know a few of them. Just a couple. <laughs> we have 
Johnny Depp playing <sighs> Ichabod Crane. Go ahead and swoon. Love him. <sighs> there he is. Christina Ricci plays Katrina Van Tassel. Love Mark her. Pickering is young Masbeth. Michael Gammon is Baltus Van Tassel, the businessman slash landlord slash banker. <laughs> Miranda Richardson is his wife, Lady Van Tassel. Mm-hmm. Ian McDiarmid is Thomas Lancaster, who is the doctor in Sleepy Hollow. Jeffrey Jones, the principal mm-hmm. from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is Reverend Steenwick. Michael Goff is James Hardenbrook, the notary. This was his last live-action film. Yes. And we all know him, of course, as Alfred. The best Alfred. Best Alfred. <laughs> from the first four Batman films. And we have Richard Griffiths, who plays Samuel Phillips, who is the magistrate. Also, magistrate, I had to look it up, is a civilian officer who administers the law. The okay. only reason I know that is because of The Crucible. I was going to say theater. The play that I was in. Yep, yeah, so many years ago. You were the possessed girl. I was. I was. Indeed. I was possessed, guys. It was great. <laughs> then we have Casper Van Dien as Brom Van Brunt. And Christopher Walken. Yeah, love him. Is, he's the Hessian soldier, but he's not the Headless Horseman. So he didn't physically... He did not physically okay. put on the blue mask and do the Headless Horseman okay. things. But... but what I did find is that two people play the Headless Horseman when the Horseman is headless. Okay. One of them is Rob Inch, and the other one is Darth Maul's actor, Ray Park. Oh, cool. That's really cool. So he did a lot of the fighting scenes, and Burton really liked Ray Park as the Headless Horseman because he's like, well, you know, there's not really a face, so you only really have the body to right. convey a character with, mm-hmm. and he thought that Ray Park did a really good job of doing that with so little. Yeah. You don't have lines. You don't have yeah. facial expressions. Right. You know, so it's all body, and it's still just as foreboding and threatening yes. as a, a whole person <laughs> would be. For sure, for sure. And I'm sure he had that, like, kind of fighting choreography background, too, mm-hmm. playing Darth Maul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... Into our movie we go. The year is 1799, and the movie begins with a song called Introduction by Danny Elfman. This particular song, um, it does immediately set the tone. Like, it's starting to play over, like, the Paramount logo and stuff uh-huh. like that. And so we're immediately going to be immersed into this different world. It's very dark. And it's, like, there's these shuddering strings. And there's this really eerie tension that starts building and building. And as the instruments gain more momentum and more join in on the song, on the score, I should say, on the track, um, <laughs> there's a lot of different elements that kind of bring us into this world, including, like, the organ. We have a male chorus percussion chimes solo voices and brass and so introduction starts off with like a c pedal tone which it remains consistent it's very steady and so the pattern that you hear when this music comes in it's very reminiscent of like a galloping horse mm. and so you kind of that's kind of what you hear and so it's almost like remnant of like the memories of the hessian on his horse because that's what mm-hmm. he was known for he was always known to be on his black horse mm-hmm. and that was one of his more, um, like, recognizable characteristics. Like, he was always on horseback. And so when, in, in the movie, when he's approaching, you hear the horse first. Right. And so I think that's a really cool kind of foreshadow mm-hmm. to, like, that, that foreboding sound, that, that looming doom mm-hmm. that we're about to hear and see. Um, and so as this score is going on, we're seeing bits and pieces of this scene, which uh, it gets up getting 
ends up getting revealed to us later. But we see like a marriage certificate being signed mm-hmm. by someone named Jonathan. And we see an older man, what looks like an older man's hand joining hands with what looks like a younger woman. And there's like the wax dripping for the seal mm-hmm. and something is very confidential, gets slipped into a what do they call it? Satchel. Yeah. It gets slipped into yeah. a satchel labeled Masbeth. And um, then the satchel is being transferred. So then we cut. And then there's all these additional instruments and these vocals join in and the rise in volume comes. And this is when a character named Van Garrett and his son, who is driving the carriage, are riding through a storm and a cornfield. And they're trying to get from A to B. And there's just this really, like, eerie, haunting, something's not right. There's that tension in the air. Mm-hmm. You know how when you can pick up a bad vibe in a room? Oh, yeah. This is bad vibes all over. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Van Garrett is in the carriage. And when we see him from inside the carriage, that's when, like, the music is the most peaceful. That's when it gets the most quiet, you know, like, kind of. And I would say that's reminiscent to like when you're in your room or in your car, in your space, like you feel like safe. Like a safe space, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You feel safe. You're like you're in something that you own, you know, you're enclosed. You do feel some sense of comfort. And so we see Van Garrett looking out the windows and we see that like he's obviously not completely at ease. Yeah. And he knows something's going on. And so he ends up, uh, his driver, his son, ends up getting his head cut off. And he notices after it happens. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, no one's driving the carriage. And so then um, Van Garrett realizes that he's under attack. And so he jumps out of the carriage. And it looks like middle of a cornfield. Yeah. Don't know where you're going. There's that creepy scarecrow mm-hmm. with the jack-o'-lantern head. And I really love how the tone shifts when you see the jack-o'-lantern for yeah. the first time. Because it's such a nice break from all the other, like, frenzied, yeah. you know, like, faster-paced kind of sounds that are going on. And there's a real sharpness as the as the horses are galloping. And so then uh, once Van Garrett jumps out and then he's being pursued, like, that's when everything is kind of crescendoing and everything is just like, whoosh, whoosh. Like, the violins are so fierce here. Mm-hmm. And then we get a quick glimpse of him getting his whoosh, head chopped off and the blood splatters all over that jack-o'-lantern. It's crazy too because I don't even know why you would try to run. (laughs) Like it's, but the music does such a good job, and I remember this scene so well because of the sounds. Like you talking about the horses galloping, and I'm like, yes, it's all coming back because that sound is so specific. And then when he's running, there's like you said that crazy crescendo, and the violins are like just that eerie, like frantic-y sound. Oh, it's perfect. Yes, yes, and I. I don't know what it is. There's something very satisfying about the sounds of horse hooves. I just know. Like, like, there's something very steady and almost musical about it, which I think is really cool because then they integrate those sounds into the score. Yeah. There's there's Stormy coming oh, okay. as you're talking about galloping. Oh, no. There she is, speaking of little feet. Uh-oh. Come here. <laughs> Her tail. Come here. Yeah, she. Hello. She's right here. Come on, Stormy. We're going to leave this in. (laughs) Stormy, she just wanted to be the headless horseman for a second. She has to check on us every hour. Sorry. No. (laughs) She's our guard doggy. Of course, of course. So, um, amazing opening segment. And it reminds me a lot of, and the thing about Sleepy Hollow is it came out in 1999. And so this is kind of around the time that, like, slashers were 
it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, we had Scream. Mm-hmm. Scream 2. I know what you did last summer. Thank you. I still know what you did last summer. <laughs> and just a, such a plethora, like a renaissance of teen slashers and like young, mm-hmm. beautiful people getting pursued by a madman in <laughs> yeah. the life. It's fantastic. <laughs> and so this was actually an ample opportunity for someone like Burton to mm-hmm. bring to life something like Sleepy Hollow because mm-hmm. it is very much a slasher. It this is. is actually one of his more gory films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of his true like straight up horror. Exactly, flicks. exactly, and it's it's a lot less. And that's another thing, like it's a lot less of his Burton whimsy mm-hmm. and a lot more of the Burton gothic fantasy. Yes. yes, exactly. You know, and so there's that really nice tone change. Mm-hmm. Even the color palettes are a little different. Um, and so I I like that this is it's it's still Burton. It's mm-hmm. not conventional Burton. Right. Yeah. It's not the Burton you go in expecting. Right. It's so much more than that. It's like period piece Burton. Mm-hmm. It's classic. Yeah, it's Burton yeah. doing a classic. Yep. And and I think, I'll give him praise, he did an amazing job bringing this story to life. He really did. And Love pairing it. with Elfman was the best choice because yeah. the music is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And I, of course, like, who better? Right? <laughs> and so um, after the introduction, we do meet Ichabod Crane. Mm-hmm. He's a constable in NYC. And the authorities kind of think that he's ridiculous because he's always trying to apply science and logic mm-hmm. to everything. He finds a dead body, and they immediately are like, oh, well, he drowned. And Ichabod's like, no, well, we have to check if there's even water in the lungs. If there's uh-huh. no water in the lungs, he didn't drown. It's something else. And so they're just like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Like, your logic and reason is uh-huh. no, we don't care here. <laughs> so he goes in front of a judge who is played by Christopher Lee. Yes. So good. It's a very small role, but it is very effective. And he's basically a judge, and he's like, hey, have you heard of Sleepy Hollow? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, they've had three murders there, and everyone was found with their heads cut off. You go to Sleepy Hollow. You find out who did it and bring them here so they can meet our justice. Yeah. And so Ichabod does as he's told. And so in our very next song called Main Titles, Mm -hmm. we see the very long, day-long trek Mm -hmm. of Ichabod going from New York to Sleepy Hollow. You know that Ichabod does not know what he's in for. Like he, again, he's thinking of everything as like real life, Mm -hmm. nothing supernatural, everything has an answer, everything has logic. And then he's going to enter this world where, like, no, there's yeah. very much a ghost. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he's super logical-brained, like, super, like, uh, the only thing I can think of is, like, our Myers-Briggs, because I just did, like, my personality test, but he's with, like, an INTP. Like, everything is analytical and logistic, uh-huh. like, scientific. There is an answer for everything, and everything is because there is a very specific reason. Yes. It's a very scientific way of thinking. Right? Yeah. There has to be an A in order for there to be a B. Right. And... None of none of what's happening in Sleepy Hollow is adding up that right. way, and so that's what he's going to go figure out. And so, the, I like that the the whole opening credits show him in the carriage going through the woods and all these leaves and stuff, and then it's dark, right. and that's that's how we can tell. Like we get an idea of how long it took him to get to Sleepy Hollow by horse, mm-hmm. and he's reading the notes about Sleepy Hollow, and he's catching up on everything and who died. It's Van Garrett, his son, and the widow Winship. And so he, uh, as, as the song goes on, there's like these trembling strings and there's these brass echoes that are really cool. Mm-hmm. And there's a chorus of voices 
and uh the music <laughs> i love how when danny elfman's name pops up on screen the music changes dramatically. <laughs> it's like it swells up into this gr- grand bravado like purposeful danny elfman <laughs> just in case you forgot <laughs> or if you had any doubt and, and i love how even tim burton on the commentary he's like ah Danny gave himself a nice musical mm-hmm. cue there. <laughs> I was like, of That's course, cute. Yeah. Give yourself a shout out when hey, you can. Right? And listening to the score, I just love picturing Danny Elfman commanding an entire I, orchestra. It is so, it's so crazy to think about. Because he's such like this, you know, kind of just, kind of like quiet, you know, guy. Humble. Yeah, very humble, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, it's amazing to think of him there. Just I just I think it's so power. There's got to be some kind of like amazingly powerful feeling knowing that you're just a mere human being, mm-hmm. and everyone is just at your command with fingertips. Like yeah, any little thing, and the mm-hmm. strings are just you know, yeah. and it it. Oh man, I was just basking in his genius every time I watched his interviews. Like mm-hmm. he's so effortlessly smart yeah he's he just, a genius he just talks like it's not a big deal mm-hmm. oh i'm a musical genius but yeah. i just put this i just put this together in two hours right. and then it's this and i'm just like it may i wish i could just succeed at things so effortlessly like right it's not that he doesn't put effort but as it, it just seems like it comes so easy to it him does. and i'm sure even though he's an artist like there are some times where he has blocks right 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 or it's hard or it's difficult but man like the legacy that Elfman is going to leave that already has left behind right. him dead. Right. <laughs> and it's it's just it's incredible to to hear his music and like thank God for Danny Elfman. Thank God you exist. Because imagine exactly. that scene without that music. Yeah. It would be nothing. Like I mean, it's it's so crazy though that he got to either read a script or he saw like a rough cut mm-hmm. and then for you to create a whole piece like da 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 okay, got it. And then go and write like yes we're gonna have this here but it's not just that like you have to write each note for each instrument like we're talking a full orchestra mm-hmm. that is what is so amazing we're not talking one or two parts right. we are talking full orchestra that means you are writing music for over 30 instruments mm-hmm. it's insane it's incredible what he does. It's he you really do have to be a genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's such an amazing art. Mm-hmm. It really is such an appreciation for him. I know. I like. I feel like Elfman's scores are enjoyable whether you're watching the movie or not. Like exactly. you can just sit back and put mm-hmm. those albums on and just, just like you find yourself in a different world. Like mm-hmm. his music alone creates visuals for you, mm-hmm. and it you can make your own stories up yeah. with his with his soundtracks like i just love i can't say enough good things about danny elfman um and some interesting things about the actual like segment of ichabod ichabod going from new york to sleepy hollow mm-hmm. the opening credits shots uh those are some of the first shots that they actually shot for the film and this was in fall of 98 in northern london Burton talks about how, like, Elfman's music is really important for setting the tone Mm -hmm. and just kind of giving you an idea for, like, okay, this is what you're getting into. This isn't your traditional Burton. This is going to be something that's different. And um, the the town of Sleepy Hollow, which we do see Ichabod eventually Mm -hmm. riding into, and that's when, like, the music kind of tones down a bit Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like he's exited the danger and the uncertainty Mm -hmm. of the woods. On top of that... I also really like how this music kind of serves as a portal, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, from his world of, like, logic 
reason a uh, one plus two equals three Mm -hmm. into this like supernatural something else something unsure there is no right answer Mm -hmm. kind of different world so this track kind of acts as like a bridge like we're leaving his world that he knew and Mm -hmm. we're entering this world that he has no idea that's a great way to put it because yeah he's coming from like a city um is (sighs) (laughs) she may just have to be a permanent guest up here come here stormy go sit with frank come here Come here, silly girl. Are you a Danny Elfman fan too? Yeah, she's like, um, I'm talking about my soundtrack. Right? Okay, we got hers you. is Frank and Weenie. Okay, yeah, <laughs> she's the same doggy. Oh, Hold on, you guys. Frank and Weenie. Okay, you stay here. Have you, you dressed up as Frank and Weenie? She has been Frank and Weenie. Oh, that's adorable. Oh, she's so sweet. She just wants. You to remind me of the doggy that they gave weed to in next Friday. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the same dog, Spud. Yep. That's mm. her. She's so happy. She is. She just loves you. She wants to love. She she, she loves she love. Wants, she wants to love on you. <laughs> she's like inching. Yeah, she's like, she's like I want to be. Uh, let me be here. Let uh, me be here. She'll cry. Sorry. Look, she's like, let me crawl to you. I'm encouraging her. I know. <laughs> like, like dog. Like, I know. Wasn't that great when the dog came? <laughs> <laughs> yes, big girl. Okay. Hello. Not a dog. It's in the room. We have two podcast guests. <laughs> yes. So My sweet girl. Did I have a picture of you anyway, Martha? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Da, 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 da. So just disclaimer: if you hear some heavy panting, it is not me. It's not us. It's not Misa <laughs> or Martha. It is Stormy. No, I'm just de- I'm severely dehydrated. Guys, the official so soundtrack city doggy. Yeah, mascot. As soon as he arrives in Sleepy Hollow. That's when the vocals start to come in, and everything is very still in the town. Aside from, like, a rolling fog, there's no movement in here. And it's it's not even, like, a quiet town. It's, like, that town that dreaded sundown. Yeah. And we even see people, like, shutting their windows, mm-hmm. and they're, like, getting really, like, close-knit into their houses. And, you know, it, it looks like a town with a secret. The, that And that's also kind of the mood that this track is conveying. It's something very secretive. There's something a little deceitful, mm-hmm. and Ichabod is just a visitor. He's literally like walking down the middle of, between all of the buildings and just kind of taking it in, mm-hmm. and he's seeing like what little activity is going on and how weird it is. And so finally, as the track begins to end, he approaches the main house, which is um, the Van Tassels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he comes into, and it turns out like it's this big party, and like the entire town is there, aside from the few people shutting their windows. Right. <laughs> um, it turns out like all the elders are there, and they're like dancing, and there's lots of festivities, and it's mm-hmm. it's such a stark difference. As soon as you open the door, mm-hmm. it's very reminiscent of like Dorothy exiting her house in Oz. Like yeah. you open the door, and it's like bursts, color, mm-hmm. warmth. You know, a sun gold kind of kiss tone. Like everything's alive versus everything's everything alive. being dead and shut down. Yeah, and every, there's a there's a warmth. There's like an orange yellow hominess to it. Everyone is very festive, and there's laughter, and it it does look like a slamming ass party. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Um, and so this is when he's like walking in, and he ends up meeting Katrina, who is blindfolded, and she's playing a game, mm-hmm. and uh, she ends up kissing him, which mm-hmm. Brom does not like. Mm-hmm. But before they can get into an altercation, this is when, um, sorry, I always, Van Garrett Van Tassel. It's so hard. <laughs> Van Tassel and his lady come out from the room, and they're like, oh, no, no, we're not going to have any of this hubbub, sir, you're welcome here, even if you are selling something. <laughs> and I gotta say, I love... 
Van Tassel. I think he's so funny in this movie. He's so pre Michael Gavin. Yeah. He's precious. Like I just I love every time he's on screen. He's he's such a sweet character and yeah. which makes his fate all the more difficult to watch. Yeah. He gets probably one of the worst deaths in yeah. this film. Right? I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but he's so warm and welcoming, and, and Wickabot's like, "Oh, I'm here to investigate the murders." Like, "Oh, well, then we're happy to have you." And so he's gonna stay in their house, like in their like attic type space. Mm -hmm. It's like up upstairs, and it's dark and it's unused. Right. So that's where he's gonna sleep, and so he gets settled, and he ends up meeting the town elders. And the town elders are, as I mentioned before, Thomas Lancaster, Reverend Steenwick, James Hardenbrook, Sam Phillips. Samuel Phillips, and Baltus Van Tassel himself. Is she okay? <laughs> She's fine. She's just working her way over to you. She's trying to, uh-oh. Yeah, there we she go. She wants Martha. Uh-oh. She, she wants you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then, um, uh-oh, here we go. She's going to find a way. She's she um thinks that she is tiny and uh yeah she's oh she's stuck oh she's stuck oh she's stuck <laughs> okay sorry the soundtrack dog is everywhere okay so as Ichabod is meeting with the town elders he reiterates them like what he's heard about the crime and they're like um what did your superiors tell you? And he's yeah. Like, oh, well, they found the heads chopped off. And they're like, no, the heads were not found at all. Yes. And that's when they're, like, talking about the headless horseman has taken them. He takes them back to hell. He comes for them and he leaves. And Ichabod's like, uh, no, what? <laughs> he says hell? it just like that. He says it just like that. <laughs> and then that's when Baltus, uh, Baltus Van Tassel's like, okay, maybe you should it down for this one yeah and so we get this story slash flashback and it's set to a track called the story and so we see that the headless horseman was previously a hessian soldier uh on his black horse in his black leather and, of course, it's Christopher Walken, mm -hmm. who I, I've never understood. Like, people say that he's the scariest man alive. What? Yeah. I like, I've heard, like. All I've, I can think of is SNL. All I can think of is that music video he did where he was dancing. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> I just think of the, I gotta have more cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> that too. I but, put my pants on one leg at a time, too, and then I make gold records. <laughs> I'm no different. <laughs> I don't know how it started, but somewhere, like. Somewhere between 1999 and, I don't know, 2000-something, mm -hmm. people were talking about Christopher Walken like he was so creepy. Really? Yeah. What like, else is he in that's creepy, though? I mean, The Dead Zone and uh, what's that one? Is uh, it just his voice? Prophecy. But, oh, yeah, he but I don't think those are super creepy. I don't know where it came from. But the thing, I think it's probably a generation before us because we grew up with him being a lot more like funny, lighthearted. Yeah. And so it, huh. it is odd to me that people are like, oh, Christopher Walken is one of the, like, the scariest actors ever. That's if interesting. If you get him to read this, it's going to be really creepy. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, I guess. I actually, at the time of this movie, I had a huge crush on Christopher Walken. Same, same, same. I thought he was so handsome. I wish I'd seen more of his face. Yeah, I went through a thing where I liked old, older seasoned men mm. <laughs> salt and pepper alan rickman <laughs> <laughs> i'm still in that place. <sighs> but um 
So as Van Tassel is starting to tell the story of the Headless Horseman and how he came to be the Headless Horseman, uh, the score is building from mm-hmm. a very pinched mm-hmm. whimper of strings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it goes into the horns and then it goes into the choir. And there's all this tension building and building. And we see the Hessian in battle and he's ferocious. Like mm-hmm. he's just like slicing heads off left and right. Just super effortless swing. And that whoosh. sword must be sharp as fuck too mm-hmm. because his accuracy and that like... <sighs> On a horse. Yes. Clean <laughs> cuts. Me, I would be like, okay, wait, I'm falling. I would I would do the, the underworld cut where it's like half of the face. Oh, <laughs> my God. That's my favorite cut, though. Great death. It's like Bill Nye it Underworld. Yes. yes. It's like dope as fuck. I love it. I remember. I, re- I have a very good memory of when we were watching this at the old house. Yes. It was me and you and Adam and Keith. And I don't remember who else was with us. And I remember um, you, you, you were like, they did the slice and the head came off and you were like, that wouldn't happen because the brain is cut off. So he can't blink. He can't react like that. Yes. And then someone else brought logic into it. And then I think it was, I think it was, I don't know who. I'm pretty sure it was Keith and Adam who said. And they were like, uh, guys, this is a movie where there's a half vampire, half werewolf in the room. (laughs) They were like, in what reality is a lichen real? And I was like. It wouldn't happen, okay? <laughs> and I remember writing that quote down because it cracked me up. That was a great memory with Keith. I remember we were watching it with Keith. That sure. was awesome. Ugh. Any Hooters. So, yes, insane accuracy. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, when Ichabod, when Ichabod examines the wounds closely later on with another victim, he realizes that the sword had to have been blazing hot mm-hmm. because it's immediately cautering the wounds yes and so it's like the blood flow is like non-existent and it's like cottered and so that's they're like yeah because it's the sword from hell um and so that's kind of the story that they're going with and um there's there's a lot of like brass and percussion Mm -hmm. in this track and it really helps convey the supernatural suspense and the slicing and And dicing that's going on it's intense like it's the battle looks so and it's like this really dark backdrop Mm -hmm. and like you really don't even see the people that he's killing it's like there's all these like shadowy figures and he's just like it's like a chef with a knife yeah (laughs) really um and so this uh all took place in the winter of 79 i'm guessing that's eight 1779 I'm assuming because isn't it like the early 1800s like 1820 it's yeah because the story this story takes place in 1779 so this would have been 17 oh sorry 1790 sorry (laughs) (laughs) this story takes place in uh the year 1799 so this would have been 1779 is that enough years 20 for someone to have gone down to hell and been named the horseman of hell and have the sort of hell I feel like this is enough time. I feel like we need at least 100 years here. You know, you would think that they would let him kind of marinate in the dirt. Right, right. Like the legend build. Yeah, I feel like this isn't, yeah, I feel like we don't have enough here. Yeah. For it to be like, you know, traumatizing. Like, no, this this dude died like 200 years ago. You don't understand. Right, which would give it a lot more weight. Right. Um, but this is very clearly only a 20-year time difference. And the reason we know that is because these two little girls. Mm, yes. And they'll come back later. Um, he comes across these two little girls while he's being uh-huh. pursued in the snow. It's a really beautiful snowy it, landscape it here. Uh, very different from all the darkness. Yeah. And, you know, um, 
And so he comes across these two little twin girls and he tells them to be quiet so that he doesn't get caught. And they're collecting firewood. And one of them just like snaps the stick in half. Little bitch gives them away. I know, right? Kids ruin everything. Cunt. (laughs) (laughs) That was Frankie. (laughs) It was me. I own it. She did it on purpose. Okay. She did do it on purpose. She she did it. He wasn't going to kill them. She did it with a purpose. Yeah. And so immediately, as soon as that stick snaps, it echoes through the forest and they it gives away his location and they kill him and they chop his head off with his own sword, mm-hmm. which is just insult to injury. Yeah, worst worst way to die is by your own weapon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, as Fantasso's telling this story, like the score is really biding its time. Like it's, it's really like drawing you into this story, just like a storyteller would. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the build is very gradual and it's rising and it becomes a lot more powerful and it really resembles like... I did. I hit my cord on the thing and it went dong, dong. like right as you're talking. I'm I like, who had a sound effect? Yes, I think it'll work perfectly. Um, and so it's it it matches like that power, that dominance from the Hessian uh, when he was in his prime, right before he got loved off. Right. Um, and so uh, the music shifts right before he dies because they do kind of they stab him during the sword fight, and the music changes tonally and it's almost like you're sympathizing yes with the hessian and even though we've seen him as this really vicious evil like relentless figure we suddenly feel bad because he's being taken down yeah and um it didn't really seem like anyone was going to be able to do that we also like i do kind of feel bad for him because you don't really know I mean, I don't know the people who he's killing background. Like, what if they're, like, mass murderers? Or they, like, move into different areas and, like, kill all their wives and rape their children? Or is that the other way around? Right, Whatever it right. is. You know what I mean. Um, but just, like, people who create total chaos, you know, and he's, like, you know, like the Robin Hood, mm-hmm. you know? Like the anti-hero, if you will. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't know his background totally. So I do have – I agree with you. In that moment, you're like, okay, well, maybe this is kind of like this person did have – good intentions or whatever for a second and and that's why maybe he is so scorned and you know coming back because here i am trying to do good and get rid of like fucking awful people and you guys got me Mm because this little bitch over here snapped a stick Mm -hmm. and it reminds me a lot of what bernard rose said when i covered Candyman, Mm -hmm. when he was talking about like the difference between an action film and a horror film Mm -hmm. in an action film you're trying to kill as many people as possible. You're trying to kill the bad guy. But mm-hmm. who really says who is bad and who is good? Right. That. And horror, you're trying to just survive. You're not yeah. trying to kill anyone. You're trying to get out alive. Mm-hmm. And so that reminds me of exactly what you're saying. Like, we don't necessarily know, like, the Hesse and, like, what did he stand for before yeah. this? Like, it reminds yeah. me also of, like, the beginning of The Mummy Part Two. Like, oh, the yeah. The Scorpion King is, like, this evil, like, super powerful, badass warrior. But then when he got his own standalone movie, he was actually a really good guy. He yeah. was fighting for good. Exactly. So it's like we don't really know where things shifted. We mm-hmm. don't really know like where that character kind of went wrong, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so I think that lends itself to this part where it's like we do kind of feel bad that he's taken down. It's not even just because it's Christopher Walken. <laughs> right, right. Because we don't know the true character background. Like he really could be like the anti-hero. Yeah. 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 And so um, – by now, we've kind of returned back to the elders talking to Ichabod, and he's, like, 
trembling yeah. because he is Ichabod is He's a, a very wimp. squeamish. Yeah. I know. He reminds me a lot of Victor. He does. He reminds he does. me a lot. He's clumsy. Jumpy. He's jumpy. Yes. He yes. Easily. Mm-hmm. He's he he makes really unattractive faces when he's reacting to something. Yes. <laughs> he's like, like super squirmy, and he makes me think of that. You remember like the hefty commercials, like wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Hefty. Like hefty. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's definitely even with the way he runs and some of the scenes where he's running away, like. Ichabod is, he's a total loser. It's comical. <laughs> it, it, it adds a little bit of humor in what is otherwise this, like, dark sky of a blanket. Yes. Um, and so this is when the reverend is like, oh, you know, all your books won't help you. This one will. <laughs> Gives him a Bible. <laughs> and um, this is when uh, Ichabod is like, you know, I... Uh, you know, are you sure? Da, da, da. You've never even actually seen them. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, we have. Um, and so he's really not falling for this story. He's mm-hmm. pretty sure. Like, the murderer is of flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And this is just a fairy tale. Um, and so that track, the story, kind of played throughout the whole Ichabod learning the truth about who they think is behind it. And it's like, no, they don't think. They know mm-hmm. that this headless horseman is coming back from the grave. Mm-hmm. And claiming heads in Sleepy Hollow. And so uh, we get a little further into the movie. And uh, Masbeth, uh, Jonathan Masbeth is killed, beheaded by the Headless Horseman, making him the fourth victim. But it turns out he's not the fourth victim. He's the fifth. Mm -hmm. Plot twist. mm -hmm, And the reason that Ichabod learns this is because Magistrate Phillips tells him this. And the Reverend doesn't like that he's Mm -hmm. telling him this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Ichabod is left with just that information. Masbeth is not the fourth victim, he's the fifth. And he leaves him with that. So Ichabod, it's up to Ichabod to figure out, like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so naturally, they exhume the graves and of all the victims so far. And it turns Autopsy. out the widow was pregnant. Yes. Which means that he knew... That's why he got mad about Ichabod being told, because, like, that's their business. But then also, this is when we start to think, like, okay, so it's obviously not just random mm-hmm. beheadings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is super important to the story. Yeah, and so the fact that like, these characters are connected, mm-hmm. and then even further down, like, as I get into it, Ichabod will realize, like, why they are connected. Mm-hmm. And so um, <laughs> this, uh, the next scene is really funny because this is when Brom, like, plays a prank on him. Because Brom does not like Ichabod because he sees that Katrina is interested in him. Yes. And so Brom uh, dresses up as the horseman with the shoulders mm-hmm. and he has like a flaming <laughs> jack-o'-lantern. And this is where the Ichabod and Mr. Toad homage mm-hmm. comes in. Homage. <laughs> <laughs> homage comes in. Because uh, as Ichabod's crossing the bridge, we hear a toad and you can, if you listen closely, he's saying, headless horseman, headless horseman. And Shut then he says, up, that's so cool. And then right before the toad jumps into the water, he says, Ichabod, Ichabod. That's so cute. And so, and then he like he thinks he hears it, and then he walks off. Um, and so this is when Brom like attacks him, mm-hmm. and this also happens in the book. Like Brom, or I'm sorry, in the story, uh, Brom does fuck with him and pranks him because he wants to scare him off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, he like he tosses the flaming jack o' lantern at him, and that's also an homage to the Disney uh-huh. uh, version. And as soon as he's struck. Ichabod passes out. He faints five times. Yeah. <laughs> you count it. I love it. Um, and so I, I do want to say, like, I, uh, 
every score, every track on this score is awesome. Mm-hmm. And so it was really hard to narrow everything down. I am going to talk about all of them, just a little, not all of them, but like mm-hmm. s- bits and pieces of some of them. So um, as soon as he passes out, we get this flashback of him as a kid, mm-hmm. and it's set to a track called Young Ichabod. And it's very fantasy-like. There's piano, mm-hmm. there's children's voices. It's very playful and magical. And we see his mother in a garden and... Um, you know, there's just this really nice sense of wonderment. Again, just very different from what we've been seeing in Sleepy Hollow. Super um, whimsical. Yeah, very, very, like, pretty, colorful, bursting, like, green and pink and blue and just all the colors we haven't seen. Right. In, the, in this movie. Um, and so uh, when Ichabod... W- oh, and in this flashback, she shows him the thromotrope, mm-hmm. which is that cardinal optical illusion. I never knew what that was called. Yeah, it's Thanks for educating. Thaumatrope. Thromotrope. Thromotrope. Yeah. Um, it's an optical illusion where it's like the cage is on one side, the bird's on the other. And, he's, mm-hmm. and we're seeing like Ichabod playing with it randomly. It turns out it was given to him by his mother. He talks to Katrina a little more. He gets to know her better. And he turns out that Lady Van Tassel was her mother's nurse. And her mother died of uh, some kind of fever, they think, mm-hmm. because she was reading too many romance novels. And God forbid women read yeah. fiction. It's so ridiculous that that was like a potential mm-hmm. cause for death. Oh, your fever was caused by reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why Katrina has to hide the books that she reads because she <laughs> likes romance novels. And so she tells Ichabod about like, oh, we, used to, we I grew up at a house not far from here and I'm going to show it to you. And she gives him this book. It's like spells and, you know, whatever. And she's like, keep it close to your heart. It'll protect you. And so she takes him to the old house, which is so far like just a doorway and a fireplace mm-hmm. and like a window. It's shambles. Yeah, it's like nothing. And like there's a little archer in the fireplace and mm-hmm. she talks about she grew up here and she starts drawing into the sand and Ichabod is like stricken because she's drawing things that his mother used to draw mm-hmm. and his mother was like accused of witchcraft mm-hmm. and Katrina is very much into witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of like triggered by that because mm-hmm. it's not something that he remembered right away. Uh, and so all these flashbacks are coming back in like segments because he's gradually remembering like these repressed right. memories, which yep. what we learn later was a very traumatizing experience. Mm-hmm. As soon as Phillips is questioned by Ichabod, the horseman comes and kills him. And that's when Ichabod's like, oh, like he's, he thinks it's so ridiculous. Like, oh, you a magistrate. Why, why do you believe in the horseman or whatever? And then sure enough, horseman comes out of the forest. <laughs> and like the head lands between oh, yeah. Ichabod's legs, and then and he stabs it and takes it away, and Ichabod faints mm-hmm. again. <laughs> Ichabod realizes he decides like he's gonna go and seek out the grave, and so him and young Masbeth, who was Jonathan Masbeth's son before he got killed by the horseman, um, who he has taken under his wing, they go into the woods together, mm-hmm. and so this is accompanied by a track called "Into the Woods" slash the witch, mm-hmm. because as they go into the woods, everything gets very quiet quiet very eerie there's like the the violins are very demonic here it's so i love the forest the woods and just like how they created all that like Mm -hmm. that's really cool There's, a, there's, like, this subtle percussion. It kind of resembles, like, a beating heart. Mm-hmm. And they realize that, like, when they get in the woods, everything gets quiet. No birds, no bugs, nothing. Mm-hmm. And so this track is really just, like, that's what you would hear 
is yeah. like the, just the beating of your like thumping, trying to jump out of your chest. Your own terror. When you're mm-hmm. anxious in the quiet. Yes. Quiet can be just as scary as noise. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's way more scary. Sometimes it's worse. Especially when you're somewhere where you anticipate hearing some kind of living something. Yes. There should be the ambient sound. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing here in these woods. And that's terrifying. So this is when they actually find the witch that they've been hearing about. And Ichabod kind of uses the kid as like a shield when they're going into the cave. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I make no judgment of what you do, which which, which uh, is to each their own. And he's like <laughs> stumbling over his like He's even clumsy with his verbiage. Yes. Um, which is just great for a character like Ichabod. And so they end up talking to the witch and she casts this spell on herself. She chains herself up and she tells Ichabod where to find the Hessian's body. Like, go all the way uh, into the woods until where the sun dies. You'll see the tree of the dead. And that's where you'll find him. And uh, the, the, this part is really creepy. This is, is probably the creepiest scene in the whole film. Uh-huh. The only thing I don't like about it is like the large marge effect, which is what I'll call it. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Describe yes. It. It really the is. eyes like, yeah. and like the tongue. And I'm, it, to me, that's yeah. very different from the rest of the film. It does. It yeah. takes me it, out of it just a little. It, it, it's, it kind of does stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. It does. Like... Um, and I, I think that the effects themselves pretty cool a little Mm -hmm. cartoonish uh but this that one shot just doesn't fit the rest of the movie for me right i feel like it was kind of a mistake or like oh man we really need something here so uh filler and it was like "Ah." it could have been done in a way more horror-esque way and that makes me wonder like maybe they had something more horrific and it just didn't test well (laughs) they were like oh that's too scary pull it back you know what you're right it could be like a test audience was like absolutely not like vomiting or something yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so uh but that's otherwise it's it's really terrifying because like her face the texture changes it looks like a tree trunk Mm -hmm. and her eyes are completely black and her voice changes Mm -hmm. and it's she's on top of him yeah Yeah, she jumps on top of him and he's just like pinned to the ground and um the whole track throughout the entire thing like this is this i think uh is the most elfman-esque track on uh on the soundtrack uh because it does eventually kind of go into that bit of whimsy Mm -hmm. uh you know uh, witches spells Mm -hmm. fantasy magic and the music just adds this real apprehension uh to the entire thing like this is not what they want to do this is what they feel like they have to do um and so this is what he came here for this is what he's going he's going to get to the bottom of it one way or another right and so then by now they realize that someone's been following them and turns Mm -hmm. out it's katrina and the only reason she came is because she's like, well, no one would come with you. Like, right. Ichabod called for strong, able men, and none no of one. the elders were, like, about it. They were like, mm. Here's your Bible. I'm going to step. I'm going to take three steps back. Throw your Bible. <laughs> so she felt bad that he was basically alone with a kid, so she came to help him. And so they trek in a little further into the woods. They follow her instructions. And then we get a new track called The Tree of Death. And this tree is fucking magical. It is. it is so cool. This is when my love for trees started. Uh-huh. I'm so serious. Like after this moment, I was like, I love dormant dead trees. Uh-huh. It is. There's something very beautiful about something that has like the life sucked out of it. Yes. It's so, it's just, it's gorgeous. Nature. Especially nature. Yeah. Not, not animals. <laughs> not animals. No, I'm specifically talking about like 
trees and plants and you know yeah like think of like dead flowers greener okay yes yes i like dead flowers better than Life Real flowers. flowers. Same. Just like Same. I like leaves on the ground better than leaves still on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. Yeah. Some, you know, sometimes dead is better. Yeah. Yeah. And these, it's it's just, it, whoever created or designed the the actual tree, um, I'm sure Burton drew a rough sketch of it and then they took it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, it's so pretty. It is. Mm-hmm. And so the Tree of Death is actually one of the longer tracks. It's a little over nine minutes long. Oh, wow. And it plays for a good chunk of this mm-hmm. next sequence. So they find the tree, and Ichabod starts taking an axe to it. And I love, <laughs> I love, as soon as he goes, whoosh, we hear a tuba. Like, it echoes uh-huh. into that cut. Uh-huh. And then more of the instruments come in, and it sounds like they're echoing that cut. Mm-hmm. And then his just axing gets more and more rapid, and more and more instruments come in. It's so cool how they just like gave a soundtrack to this axe. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean. And so uh, in the Tree of Death, there's lots of horns, brass, um, and then when we first see the tree, we're actually seeing it like from behind. And so we're watching like Katrina and them come up on the horse and the camera's like panning up the trunk and it's kind of like see like peeking between some of the twisted branches mm-hmm. and it almost looks like there's an eye at the top of the tree and like that's what's watching them. So cool. And it as the camera gets higher and higher you realize like the magnitude of this tree it's huge. It can't be missed. You know, you you look at it, you're like, that's the tree of death. Yeah. There's no way there's any. <laughs> it's like different color. It can't be it's mistaken. so noticeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a very clearly a dead tree. And uh, one of the things that Tim Burton said on commentary is like that tr- building the tree was actually kind of a challenge because um, they filmed a good chunk of the movie in. A studio right okay yeah and so they couldn't make the tree too tall because the ceiling gave them a literal limit the right. ceiling got was you. the limit got you <laughs> and so that's why they kind of made it more twisted contorted mm. you know kind of like a tortured soul itself um so they wanted to shape it in a way that like it's still striking without having to be monstrously yeah. tall wow. um, and it's a beautiful tree it <laughs> like, it's so cool it's really cool um and so uh the blood starts gushing out of the tree and he's axing it um and then he digs up the grave takes him takes him a while because it gets dark yeah <laughs> and he finds the hessian's body still with his like leather and cape yeah. and stuff but the head is missing yeah. The head is missing. So Which, he's like, ah. Uh, putting things together. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whoever took the head is controlling the horseman. Mm-hmm. The person who took the head is of flesh and blood, like I said. <laughs> he's like, victory. Yeah. He's like, I was, I was right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is what he's literally been telling everyone, like shaking people, yeah. like, no, this cannot be all ghost stories. Yeah. And so as soon as they find the grave, uh, there starts to be like a disturbance within the roots and they start unraveling from underneath the ground mm-hmm. and that's when uh, Katrina's like Ichabod like uh, yeah. something's happening because they find all the heads in there too mm-hmm. so uh, all the heads it's so crazy. It they're so, so gross. gross the way they all like fall into the hole and then they fall out of the way it's uh-huh. crazy and then sure enough whoosh, the horseman is being summoned yeah. jumps out on his badass fucking horse whoosh, into yeah. the woods and 
off he goes such a visually amazing it is the visual effects on this were so cool Uh because like first they had to do a layer of fog then they had to do a layer of disturbed leaves then they had to do a layer of fog coming out with the horse then they had to do a layer of the horse and that's it yeah it's just so it was so cool to see the behind the scenes of them putting it all together because it's all like layers it reminds me of photoshop Yeah. yeah really uh, but it's visual, it's animated, and it looks so cool. And for 1999, very exactly. well done. Very yeah, impressive. everything very in this good. movie is very well done. Like I even like, I don't even mind that some of the beheadings look fake, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like I think that that adds to the aesthetic. Like, yeah, I like that they don't necessarily look like. Yeah, that's exactly what it would look like when a head gets chopped yeah. off. Right. Like Plus, no. There's the, you know, the rumor or whatever that the sword is still hot because that's mm-hmm. why it's cauterized. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's not going to look the same because right. who would have a real sword that's like that? Exactly. Nobody. That's what makes this a folk tale right. and a scary story, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so this track is still playing uh, when he leaves the three of them behind in the woods. And so we cut to, like, the midwife mm-hmm. and her husband, Killian, and her name is Beth and his name is Killian. And they have a son, super cute. I don't even like kids. Uh-huh. He's cute. And he, he lights the little spinning lantern mm-hmm. like I had at my party. Yes. Um, this is, a, evidently, this is where the headless horseman's being summoned because next thing we know, he bursts through the door and him and Killian are fighting. And he cuts Killian's head off, cuts the midwife's head off, uh-huh. almost lets the kid go. Doesn't let the kid go. And I actually, I found myself feeling bad for the kid. Uh-huh. Uh, but... Burton straight up says, like, you know, I don't like in movies, in horror movies, when the kid gets off scot-free. No, the kid should die. So I do see her perspective for one reason. Okay, think about seeing your parents murdered by a being, headless horseman here, and then you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think of the fucking trauma it's you would have. It's a little more cruel. Right? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's so much more cruel. Like, yes, please just kill me because yeah. now I'm going to live every single day thinking about, oh, I'm experiencing this without my parents. I'm experiencing this without my parents. God, I wish I could talk to my mom. I wish I could talk to my dad. I wish I could do that. Like, who wants to live like that? Mm-hmm. No, if you're going to come and murder me, please just take me and my whole family. And that's what he does. Yeah. Cuts the kid. We don't see anything on screen. It's eluded. Uh But he very clearly is putting a third head into his bag. Mm -hmm. And he leaves the Killian house. Um, And so um, Brom, who was actually on the lookout for the horseman, Uh hears the kid screaming right before he dies. So Brom goes to investigate. And he wants to be like, oh, I'm going to get him. I'm Uh going to shoot him. I'm going to be the one to take him down. And machismo <laughs> um but uh hessian really doesn't seem to want anything to do with brahm yeah because he's summoned for a particular person which yeah. we find out later um so brahm is just picking fights with this guy and just coming back for more and coming back for more and ichabod even tells him like he's not after you like you don't have to fight him uh-huh. but brahm is just determined to like put an end to it and he's gonna be the one to do it uh and he ends up getting in half hamburger style mm-hmm. is it hamburger style yeah yeah hamburger hamburger style. Style. yeah yeah like uh walk hard yes <laughs> he gets chopped up yeah. like that in half and ichabod faints again again <laughs> <laughs> and so throughout that entire track from the moment they started chopping down the tree of death to when ichabod faints we were hearing a track called the tree of death that's so cool. And it's just a commanding sound from yeah. the orchestra. Like like the horseman demands to be seen and heard and felt, and that's exactly what the music is underscoring him with. Um, and 
the chorus comes in at some point and it's really powerful mm-hmm. uh, especially when he emerges from the tree mm-hmm. yeah like it's such an epic entrance you know because uh, he's literally coming from hell like yeah. from the underworld yes. so to speak um, and he's just like bursting out onto the scene and it's just so cool how they filmed it so cool how they filmed it um and so we get a little further into the movie and we're seeing a little more of Ichabod's dreams mm-hmm. and it Long story short, it turns out that his mother was accused of witchcraft. Mm. And so his father put her in an Iron Maiden. And Ichabod walked in and found her like that. And he accidentally, like, pricks his hands. And that's why he's got, like, these weird holes on his palms. Mm -hmm. And they randomly bleed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those are kind of the triggering flashbacks that he's been having about his childhood. Um and I don't remember how I learned what an Iron Maiden was, but I learned what an Iron Maiden was at a very young age. Really? <laughs> I don't know why. Wow. But I remember when, by the time I saw this movie, I knew exactly what she was in. I did not know that what? it was called an Iron Maiden. Like, I knew that it was a form of, like, torture, torture yeah. but I did not realize that that's what it was called right. until probably high school. Yeah, that sounds about, you know, yeah. probably yeah. for me too. And then, of course, I'm like, oh, that's where the band got their name. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a little fun fact, uh, Black Sunday, as well as The Pit and the Pendulum, they both inspired Burton to film the scene like that, where Ichabod does get revealed that, like, his mother is in the Iron Maiden. Oh, so right. cool. So those are two of his sources of inspiration for that. That's neat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by now, like, Katrina and Ichabod are pretty much in love. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, he feels bad that she lost Brom. But she's like, oh, I've shed my tears for him, but my heart is not broken. Um, which, damn. I love it, right? <laughs> she's like, yeah, fuck, I'm moving on. Yep, yep, yep. And so um, this is when Ichabod puts it all together. Like, he's like, okay. Everyone who has died at the hands of the horsemen were either beneficiaries mm-hmm. to the Van Garrett will mm-hmm. that he got killed before he could, like, you know, get to A to B, um, or they were witnesses to the new will. And the new will states that the Van Garrett fortune would go to the next of kin. So obviously, Van Garrett was killed, his son was killed, mm-hmm. the widow was killed. It turns out that they got married that night. That's what was being signed and waxed and sealed, delivered, whatever you want to call it, the song. And um, so the widow was pregnant, and so it would have gone to the baby, but now they're both dead. And so now it turns out, like, people who were in on this secret are the ones getting killed. And Ichabod is like, I know it's someone who's flesh and blood and da-da-da-da. And he points to Baltus. Baltus is the one who seems to, uh, he's going to be the one to gain everything Everything. Mm -hmm. when all these other people are dead. And so he immediately puts it like, oh, okay, well, Baltus must be the one controlling the horsemen. So there's this giant battle at the church and everyone's like condemning Ichabod because Mm -hmm. they, they just, they don't like all this logic that he's applying to it and they, they don't want him to figure out their conspiracy. Right. Like they would much rather believe that, no, it's just a ghost story. Right, right, right. And so they don't want Ichabod to like expose them necessarily. So they want him to leave. And there's this epic battle at the church with the horsemen and he can't enter the church because he's of Satan mm-hmm. or whatever the fuck or from hell. Um, and so, but this is when uh, the rest of the elders die. Like James Hardenbrook hung himself uh-huh. once they found out about the new will. Mm-hmm. And then all the elders turn on each other in the church. So the reverend ends up killing the doctor and Baltus accidentally shoots the reverend. And then, oh, Baltus. Yeah. His death sucks. 
I again, I love this character. <laughs> I love this character. I think he's so funny. I love when Ichabod comes out of the room and he's like, "You, we thought you shot your boat." <laughs> <laughs> he's he so likable, even so though he's precious. so like clueless. He's clu- yeah. yeah, he's so I. <laughs> Just like obviously scene. clueless, yeah. When Ichabod is trying to explain to him, like that, oh, why would he take the head if he didn't want us to identify him? And Baltus is like, "Why?" He's like, "Exactly." He's like, hmm. <laughs> like "He's like, no, his, why? Who?" It's like Abbott and Costello. <laughs> I, I just love Baltus, which makes his death so much more difficult uh-huh. to watch because he's standing at the fucking window and he's like, "There's a conspiracy here, and I'm gonna da 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 da." And then one of the white picket fence posts just shoots through his uh-huh. chest. It's connected to a rope, and he is yanked from the window, dragged through the churchyard, gets stuck in the picket fence, uh-huh. and uh, just he just like cuts his head off right. Yeah, there. <laughs> like no mercy. Yeah, and then right before that, that's when they thought like, oh, he he killed Lady Van Tassel, but it turns out that's not true, and. Um, it turns out that while this whole battle at the church was happening, Katrina was drawing the evil eye, which is what they think is a, like a bad spell, casting uh-huh. spells against you. Ichabod also found the same drawing under his bed. Uh-huh. And that's when he realizes, ah, oh, Baltus wasn't controlling the Headless Horseman. It was Katrina. Mm-hmm. At least that's what he thinks, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So he decides, like, oh, it must have been someone who possessed you, but, you know, now all is said and done, whatever, whatever. So he's leaving. She's yeah. asleep and he's leaving. He thinks, yeah, and um, this is when it we turn. It turns out like Lady Van Tassel is not dead. Mm-hmm. She was the one controlling the Hessian. Yeah. She used to live in the house with the archer in the fireplace. The Van Garretts kicked her family out. No one took her in because her mother was accused of witchcraft, uh-huh. and her and her twin sister were fending for themselves. When one day they came across the Hessian, yep. and who was the one who snapped the stick? Lady Van Tessel. Mm-hmm. So she sold her soul to Satan and she vowed revenge on the Van Garretts and anyone else who took part in shunning her family. And uh, so, yeah, she weaseled her way into the Van Tessel mm-hmm. family and she manipulated the elders into her conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And now all she has to do is kill Katrina so she can get all the money. But Ichabod shows up. Makes that very difficult because he comes to save Katrina and Masbeth helps. Mm-hmm. And this is when um, Lady Van Tassel convinces the horseman, like, hey, come for Katrina. She's the one who took uh-huh. your skull and da 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 da. And so the horseman comes for her, but Ichabod is able to, like, return the head uh-huh. to the horseman. He wrestles her for it. I love the reattachment like yeah oh yeah as soon as i love the way the horseman catches the skull like Uh nothing like a ball and then he's just like puts it on like a helmet Uh and then it's like like all these veins Uh start popping up out of his neck and they're like growing on him like vines and like the scattered hair on his back Uh and then he like he exits the frame and then he's like yes It's almost comical. Yes. But it's so beautiful. Uh-huh. I love these effects. 1999 effects were yeah. it. Fuck off. Like, they the were The way good. he caught it, it was almost, like, magnetic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a great... That's that's always a really good scene. The veins, though, I think those kind of creep me out a little yeah. bit. And the muscle. It's, like, Yeah, growing. you can see it. It's... Oh, it's so cool. So cool. 
And then, sure enough, there it is, Christopher Walken, yep. <laughs> from head in to the toe, flesh. <laughs> in the flesh, <laughs> from head to toe, especially head. And um, by now, uh, Lady Van Tassel has like passed out, so he picks her up, and she has to hold up her end of the deal. Uh-huh. So he gives her a kiss, mm-hmm. and he jumps back into the gates of hell, into his tree with her, yep. takes her down into the underworld with her. Yep. And that's where they're going to live. So she's alive yeah. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. And, and like her hand is like the thing like that. Yeah. And Ichabod faints. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Again. Um, and the movie ends with Katrina, young Masbeth, and Ichabod heading back to New York. Uh-huh. Just in time for a new century. Yes. Everything is beautiful yes. and hopeful. <laughs> and the ghost story is behind them. End of movie. I'm beautifully wrapped Yay. in a bow. Yay! Great movie choice. Yes. Ooh, I'm excited. Do we have some fun facts? We, we do. So one of the things that I really love about this movie, and I do want to go on my little tangent. I'm not a fan of Johnny Depp the way most are, uh-huh. I guess. Um, but this is probably one of my favorite efforts of his. Mm-hmm. And I think the part of the reason why is, one, he looks great. He does. He looks so good in this movie. I love that he, you know, he's, it's just very simple and the hair is Uh simple and he's just like Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. Like, cool. Minimal. Good. You know, um, I think that he probably looks his best in this film. Not that he's not aging well. Mm -hmm. He's aging like fine wine. But this is like peak Johnny right here. Yeah. This This is like a beautiful Johnny. Uh Like, oh my gosh. I I think he looks awesome in this film. Um, On top of that, I am not a big fan of the direction that Johnny Tepp takes some of his Uh characters. Uh, I feel like Fear and Loathing, Jack Sparrow, and a couple others, like... Uh He he started doing this thing where he talks at the corner of his mouth oh, and he yeah. thinks it's super quirky <laughs> yeah. and I just I can't mm-hmm. yeah. I can't I turned on Fear and Loathing one day because I was like oh, I need to watch this and yeah. I turned it off after three minutes because it's just him like doing this and I have a cigarette hanging out of my mouth and I'm Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> and I'm just like I I don't have the energy for this and like mm-hmm. he does that with his characters and yeah. I like. I feel like Johnny Depp eventually got to a point where he was like, huh, I added a little quirk to this. I'm onto something. People like it. I'm going to do it for every character. Uh-huh. And I just can't. I can't. I can't. Well, <laughs> yeah, because every character should be different. Yeah. On top of that, it's like, at least in this movie, I can understand what he's saying. Right. Yeah. He, he speaks with his mouth open. Um, and in the other ones, he's just like talking through gritted teeth and like a corner of his lip. And I just don't like it. Uh-huh. Um... But um, I like how Ichabod, because in the story, Ichabod is actually a very unattractive man. Uh-huh. He's, mm-hmm. he's lanky, he's yeah. kind of gross, and obviously Johnny is not. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and so uh, Johnny even suggested, like, oh, I can put some prosthetics on and make myself ugly. Right. But Burton was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And I think it's because, like, he wanted Johnny's face on a poster. <laughs> no, that's probably why. But, but, I, but what Burton decided was, like, instead of making Ichabod physically unattractive Mm -hmm. let's give him unattractive traits yeah which i really like that that was the direction that we took because it's like okay it's not necessarily attractive quote-unquote when a man faints at the sight of blood exactly you know like a a squeamish guy a guy who can't not very manly especially for his profession so a constable (laughs) who sees death all the time like even when he found like the drowned body Mm quote-unquote 
He's like poking at it. it. He's trying not to touch it. Yeah. It's like, how did you get this job? Exactly. It's it's the brain. (laughs) He was super smart. But um, yeah, like I, I, I appreciate this character, uh, because normally you see him as a character who's like charismatic and he gets away with everything and he's so cool and collected Uh and smoldering hot. But with the way he brings Ichabod to life, it's attractive in a different way. It's a quiet intelligent dorky attractiveness uh like in a way like that's someone that i can relate to right like that's someone that i see myself having a conversation i can't i don't think i can sit down and have a talk with jack sparrow or the tourist or whatever else Mm -hmm. he played in the last 20 years like but ichabod crane that would be like a compelling conversation to have and i think that's another reason why i don't warm up to johnny's roles a lot is because like well i can't I can't relate to that character. I don't see any of myself in that character. And it's difficult for me to like things that I can't relate to. Same yeah. goes with music. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? Um, and so I I really like the direction that they took with this character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is one of Johnny Depp's, like, better roles. Mm-hmm. Another movie of his that I like where he's not necessarily, like, quirky, out there, yeah. colorful, is Benny and June. Yeah. Oh, like, that is a great movie. This and Benny, Benny and June, June are my top... <sighs> If I had to choose Johnny Depp movies, it would be those two. And they're very different from his mm-hmm. other roles that you hear other people talk about or mm-hmm. wear on a shirt. Right. Um, like, I wish I could wear Ichabod Crane on a shirt because <laughs> right. I would. So I I really appreciate Johnny's character work in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm glad that Burton kind of gave him that, like, leeway. Like, no, 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 we're not going to make you ugly. Right. <laughs> but we are going to make you kind of squeamish. <laughs> right, right. Some interesting facts about the soundtrack. It was released on November 16th, 1999 and recorded in multiple locations, including Abbey Road Studios in London, the Coliseum in Watford, England, and Whitfield Street Recording Studio. So this was done with a massive orchestra, a chorus, a boys choir, soloists, and a pipe organ. Wow, that's so cool. Lots of really cool different elements came into this score. I've seen like various articles refer to this as, quote, Quite possibly Danny Elfman's best genre score since Batman and perhaps the best score album release of 1999. Wow, nice. that's really cool. And I gotta agree. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that Sleepy Hollow Top to Bottom is a really solid soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and again, something you can listen to without necessarily having the movie on. Right. Something that you can enjoy without having the visual source material. And it does so well to, like I said, just push the movie, the story along. Because there's literally music, except for the quiet scene, like there's something in the background Mm-hmm. for all scenes mm-hmm. so just beautiful beautiful work of art yeah um some trivia that i found about the film uh the plans for this film began in 1993 with a man named kevin yager at the helm he was set to direct mm-hmm. uh but he and the studio started clashing on some things which happens unfortunately and eventually kevin was demoted to prosthetic makeup designer what the wow. fuck? that's a big demotion <laughs> it really is <laughs> in steps tim burton picking up the scraps mm. so uh 75 of this movie was shot on a soundstage in london so cool and uh they even said like when they built the forest like mm-hmm. it, like animals actually went ahead and inhabited it <laughs> what? so uh, sometimes you'll hear sounds in the woods those are real birds and real animals Shut having up. made homes in those trees so cool yeah believe it or not this is only the third movie that johnny and tim made together <laughs> 
Which it feels like it was already so many by now. But it was no Edward Edward yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense. Yep. So this is only the third, mm-hmm. but not the last. No. Nope. And um, Edward was not as this a successful, a commercially successful movie at all. It's no, a cult, it's more of a, cult a classic. classic. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Isn't it in black and white? Yes, it is. Yeah, Burton had like interesting little tidbits in his commentary. Mm-hmm. He was he was alone on the commentary. Oh, um, he didn't have a lot to say. Like I turned it on, and there would be like I would watch a whole scene, and he just wouldn't talk. And I would forget that I had the commentary on. That's interesting. I was like, I "I want to hear more about the costumes. But what he did say, he did say a couple interesting things. He said that um, he has sheep in the movie Uh because he likes the sound of sheep. Very cool. (laughs) Fun fact. I thought that was actually kind of precious. Fun Um, fact. And what's interesting is every time you see the Hessian's horse, that is a giant Spanish horse on a small soundstage in full gallop. Oh, oh. and that's why it looks oh. even bigger. So you can imagine how intimidating that must be. Uh-huh. Um, just to have this giant, larger-than-life, muscular animal. Like, wow. imagine Stormy as a horse. Right, right. <laughs> Yikes. Right, I'm sure that horse is, like, seriously ginormous. I wonder who the handler is, or if that horse is even still alive. I doubt it. So it was, uh, it was 20 degrees while they filmed the church scene. By the way, they did build the town of Sleepy Hollow from the ground up. It took three months. Wow. Beautiful town. Johnny Depp said he wanted to live there. It's so cute and quaint. It's beautiful. It looks like it's straight out of a children's Uh story book. Yes. I love it. They did really good. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like what like Salem must have looked like. Mm -hmm. You know, like witch trials. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Depp really did get dragged. Yes, I watched an interview with him for Sweeney, and they they asked him, what's the craziest thing that Tim has ever asked you? It was like an all-encompassing, and he talked about that, and I was waiting. Yes. Yep, so like there's that scene where like him and the Hessian, the headless horseman rather, Uh are fighting on top of the carriage, and Katrina's driving it, and... Johnny Depp's character like ends up falling and he's holding onto the straps and he's just dragged along this trail of dead leaves. That's Johnny. Yeah, he's got like a bulletproof armor under his costume and he is doing the damn thing. Yes. So mad respect. He was like Tim asked me. Uh, he was like, so for like the next two weeks we're gonna work on this, and uh, I got dragged by a horse and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, very very cool. Um, so those are some fun facts about the movie. And then if I may, if we're not going too late. I have a few facts about Danny Elfman. Okay. Too. Okay. Cool. Never learned enough about him. Oh, I know, right? I just want to say that researching Danny Elfman was probably some of the most fun that I've had researching anyone. Um, I can't stop smiling when I like watch him get interviewed. I think he's just so cool. He, he doesn't is. even know it. I mean, he knows it, but he doesn't. You know what I mean? And that's like the best kind of cool. <laughs> and I remember, like, of course, like he did the score for the Psycho remake, which I do have a soft spot for for many reasons, and he is included. Um, I just think he's fascinating. Um, and I remember one of the quotes uh, from when he did the remake uh, really struck me because I like the analogy that he used. Um, he talked about how, like, people were really against the remake when everybody who was a part of it was a part of it. And he said, like, you know, quote, for people who live in the religion of film, this is sanctimonious stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like you're messing with the Bible. Yeah. And I love that he realized, like, the weight there really was when it came to that movie, which, by the way, was a flop. Yeah. But it wasn't the last time that he worked with Gus Van Zandt. Um, and so he actually worked with him on 
Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, which is probably one of my favorite Joaquin Phoenix movies. What's some fun facts about Danny? Um, he says that sometimes while he's in a recording session with the orchestra, mm-hmm. he ends up finishing early so he has extra time. So then he says, quote, I do crazy shit. And sometimes he'll just improv. Like, mm-hmm. He has the orchestra for X amount of time and he already paid for it. So he just kind of has, he's like, okay, you're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And then he just like has these extra tracks of just like him fucking around. I love it. And I'm like, oh, those need to be Because released. I'm sure he probably pulls from them sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because like, oh, yes, like this chaotic ass sound would be mm-hmm. perfect for like XYZ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that he loves it when he can do variations of themes. Mm-hmm. And that comes back a lot in Sleepy Hollow. Because Sleepy Hollow has a particular theme, like a signature tone that comes back. And it does get integrated in a lot of his tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, he talks about how like he likes doing variations as far as like when he did the sequel to Men in Black. He enjoyed returning to it because it was a score that he already knew and that he created and so then all he had to do was like add a few differences mm-hmm. make a few subtle changes but ultimately like it was still faithful to the original score from the original film um he talks about how like he didn't get to experiment as much with batman returns because there were new villains all these new characters mm-hmm. so he had to write a bunch of new material for them right and um it you know it was a little it was a little easier for him to like go back and tweak things that he already had. That, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says he talks, he thinks about food all day. Uh-huh. Um, and he has a set of rings in his studio to work out because he sits hunched over a computer. <sighs> Lots of hours. I bet, yeah. Um, he became a fan of music since he was 12. He used to go to the movies every weekend. He used to watch a lot of horror and sci-fi. Mm. And he said that when he saw The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was scored by Bernard Herrmann, he said, like, that's when he realized, like, he fell in love with uh, film music, uh-huh. and he was like, wow, somebody wrote that. Like, yes. that's name. He's like, I want to do that. And I just, I love those stories where you get inspired from sitting in a movie theater. Uh-huh. Yes. I think that's just so, yeah. Like, because you see everything on a big screen. You see everything come to life, and you're like, yeah. I can do that. Yeah. He loves Bernard Herrmann, and he loves Ray Harryhausen. So those are two of his really big influences. Um, never went to college. So he's just a genius on his own. And uh, obviously he was an Oingo Boingo. Right. The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, eventually known as Oingo Boingo. Um <laughs> It's funny you mentioned Ray Harryhausen because they actually use his name on the piano that Victor plays in Victoria. Oh, well. that's, that's awesome. such a cool moment. That's a tribute. It, 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 it literally says Harryhausen, like oh, the brand of the piano. That is so will. cool. That is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was intentional <laughs> for sure. Yes. I found this, he was on an interview with Mark Maron, and they talk about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one quote, which taken out of context, I can relate to, but for very different reasons than Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny says, uh, he talks about how like it's easy to turn Christmas music into foreboding music. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that growing up, Christmas was the most depressing time of the year. Mm-hmm. And he goes into why, and he says like he would go to stores and he would hear the Christmas music, and it was just like dark clouds mm-hmm. over him. And he just... He said that it made him sad because he was lonely. Yeah. And um, he would imagine all his friends holding hands, singing carols around the tree, and he just wasn't celebrating Christmas because mm-hmm. he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously his he didn't feel included because he was Jewish. Right. But, like, I feel like those are really relatable feelings around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I don't like Christmas. Hello, seasonal depression for a lot of people. Yeah, and I've said this before. Like, I generally feel like people who enjoy Christmas typically have people to spend it with. Right. And so when Elfman talks about, like, oh, this music makes me feel lonely, like, that's exactly how Christmas music makes me feel. Like, that's exactly why I avoid it Uh so much. Because, like, to me, Christmas music is sad. Right. It's sad. There's a lot of really sad Christmas songs. There are a lot of sad Christmas Mm -hmm. because most of it, like, the sad ones to me are always about, like, the people who can't. Yeah enjoy christmas like, you know yeah. what i mean like oh christmas right only in my dreams like that's depressing as hell. right or yeah. like this this christmas shoe one that's about like the boy who's homeless and just wants that's, to buy that's like that really, when i first heard i was like what the fuck is this yeah that shit yeah yeah so, last christmas yeah 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 we could go on about that we could go on yeah so, so it's it's so hearing him talk about that to mark it's just like oh it hurt my heart it made my heart like heavy because mm-hmm. i'm like I get it. Different reasons, of course. But, like, I get it. Like, I wish I could skip Christmas. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like to be surrounded by all the festive and the bells and green. I do do enjoy Christmas. I will admit that. But at the same time, it's like there's just so much pressure on everyone. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, it's enough to make you just, like, oh, like, I do do just want to get through this. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just survive the fucking holiday season. Like, I I totally get that as well. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the stage I'm entering right now. Yes. (laughs) Uh, As soon as Halloween is over, it's like midnight strikes and. Right. And like, no one even does anything for things. Like, why are people already playing Christmas music though? Like, it, it should be, like, nothing Christmas should be up until like, the after thanksgiving or like right. maybe the day of maybe yeah like, it's like just... i know sunny doesn't play Christ- christmas they're actually playing it now yeah, they, oh. they usually yeah. wait until thanksgiving they started like a they few started days ago. yeah a few days ago. oh see I, I can't i was in bath and body works a few days ago and of course it's christmas the whole score and they're playing the christmas music all ah, and all those christmas scents i mean I hot cocoa sprinkle farts i do shit. i do love all those fucking scents. <laughs> okay i sweet. well yeah. some of them are really sweet and i am not a fan of like cinnamon i hate cinnamon stuff mm-hmm. and i hate pumpkin spice so i don't like that either during fall um i do not like anything that's like fake sugar cookie because it does not smell the mm, same it does not it's smell. disgusting i do like i like the like earthier like the winter green like okay. the tree like the pine, the pine smell, yeah. i like pine smell like all day mm. um but yeah i i can't play christmas music until after thanksgiving it's just like sacrilegious to me yeah yeah, it's uh, it's just too soon. And then yeah. I get tired of hearing the same five songs, so I'm like, all right, change it. Yeah, because I'll be like, <laughs> okay, I think I'm ready to listen. And then, like, after a couple of days ago, I'm like, okay, I've kind of had my fill. Yeah. I'm know. like, it's great to hear the same song, <laughs> you know, copied by, like, 20 different people, but yeah. I just can't. That's the thing. Yeah. And that I heard someone recently say, like, Christmas music never changes. No. You know, it's like the same but the reason is is because it's easy for people to do that because no one really owns the rights to christmas music anymore because it's been yeah yeah. they they lapsed exactly yeah so now they're just open for anybody yep so anybody i mean you and i can make a christmas cd if we really wanted to that would be really cool to do like christmas all in minor city does christmas yes but like all in minor and like spooky vibes oh Oh, my god we could totally do like the bernard Hartman like chord bring it in Bring in some Sondheim touches. Yeah. We'll do Christmas th- music the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. <laughs> Christmas music feels. in Sweeney Todd style. Mm-hmm. Christmas music in like Danny Elfman style. Because yeah, I remember Sweeney Todd came out around Christmas. It time did. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Right it was a good month. Oh, man. Good year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am wearing a Elfman adjacent 
shirt. Of course you are. I realize that. Because Elfman did do the Simpsons theme. Um, So a little fun story about when he did that. He had a meeting with Matt Groening and Matt Groening had a pencil sketch of the opening and it reminded Danny a lot of the Flintstones. Kind of that crazy energy. So he wrote in his head in the car on the way home like what he wanted the theme to sound like. And he went into his studio and he made a demo. And the very next day he sent it and he was just like, no one's ever going to watch the show. Uh-huh. This isn't going to last. Like, he saw the sketches and he was just like, this ain't it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, when he wrote the theme, he was just like having fun with it. He didn't really give, he gave it thought, but he didn't, right. he only spent two to three hours on it. Wow. But to come up with something like that in two to three hours. And that has been hours. around for how long, Misa? 711 episodes as of today. Damn. Way to go, Danny. Not to mention all the times that it plays at Universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everywhere else where you see The Simpsons. And so he uh, he sent in the tape, really didn't think it, everything anything was ever going to come of it. And a week later, he was recording it for real. They were like, yeah, it works. Cool. Awesome. And uh, then uh, he was like, oh, you know, maybe they'll get a couple episodes and then it'll just be like a cult thing. Like he really did not <laughs> wow. think that Simpsons was going to be. <laughs> now, in his defense, in the first hard sketches, though, they weren't super no, they, great. They, they didn't look like they do now. Yeah. They, didn't, yeah. they didn't look like the no. what, this what we been. love and know. Yeah. yeah. They looked very, like very Marge good. had flowers on her dress yeah. and the, like her hair narrowed and animation so harsh. Even the voices just. Yeah, it was very. I mean, Matt Groening himself, he didn't even. He created those characters in five minutes while waiting to pitch a show. Right. Oh, wow. He was in the waiting room sketching them. Right. What show did he pitch? The Simpsons. Oh, my God. So he. Okay, okay, okay. I thought you meant he was pitching a different show while sketching that one and thinking of that one. Well, it was her. He he was going to meet with Fox and he had no idea what to do. (laughs) So he was sitting there with his sketch, waiting to meet them. Creating the Simpsons, naming Dang. them after his family. Procrastination at its finest. I yes. love it. And look where it got you. And yep. look where it got him. Procrastination, my kids. It yep. pays off. Yep. And so, and another thing that Danny mentioned is like, yeah, he did the theme, the instruments and stuff, but he also had it in his head. He made the smart decision, turns out, to sing the Simpsons. <laughs> like, that's Danny. And because he sang that, uh-huh. he got into the Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. and he has lifelong health insurance. That's amazing. Because he sang three syllables. That's amazing. Fucking genius. Yep. Yep. And so <laughs> that's kind of amazing. Uh, just, again, big love for Danny Elfman. Yes. Everything he touches is gold except for maybe Justice League. <laughs> and even then I can't fault him for it because he was brought in and that wasn't really anyone's decision but the studios. Yep. Facts, 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 facts. So, yeah. Um, anyway... <laughs> That does it for my movie. Yay. Oh, <laughs> oh my, my gosh. gosh. Four and a half hours later. <gasps> okay, Woo! but three movies in four and a half hours. Come on, guys. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. That's, that's impressive. a great collection of music, too, by the way. Yeah. yeah, great collection, great discussions. I am so excited with our first post-pandemic. I'm going to find out the real word for it, though. Because <laughs> uh, we're still kind of in it, too. Right. Yeah. So it's like that would be saying that it has officially right, been right. It has I don't think it's ever uh, post COVID without vaccines. Yeah, because now we're post. In the, yeah, post quarantine. Something. I don't know. We'll figure, we'll it, figure out. it out. Yeah. But um, we're just so excited to be in person and you know safely in person and to be able to discuss 
some great freaking movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Burton did a fabulous job of bringing in some really strong composers and musicians yes. such as Danny Elfman, uh, reusing Sondheim's work, and just making sure that these were just aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. Everything went so well together. Like, I think we chose some great, great... Like, if this was a musical tour, every single <laughs> act is spot on. They're all period pieces. Yes. <laughs> like, we couldn't have fucking chosen any better. We did great, guys. I think this was a really good, like, trifecta of films. Because even the themes are yes. very similar. Mm-hmm. Yes. Some of the motifs yeah, like are the same. Family the music. betrayal, mm-hmm. underworld, dead, yeah. like... Like that's yeah. There's murder and all murder. Of she life. wrote. This was a happy accident. I think we picked. It was great. Really I'm so excited. Yay. So yay! Oh, awesome, Martha. Thank you for yes. coming. Thank you guys for having me. We are so so happy that we finally got to have a guest again, and just so excited that was Martha because she has been like number one supporter. You know, so it was so fun to be here and actually see the behind the scenes. I was gonna say, <laughs> are we as fun as we yeah, sound? Yeah, how does it sound? <laughs> it's exciting so well with that note guys i think we are gonna wrap it up this has been frankie and misa and martha yay (laughs) thank you for joining us on soundtrack city the uh tim burton danny elfman johnny depp appreciation show Uh, and steven sondheim and steven sondheim yes (laughs) can't forget him sorry it's Uh, a square it's a square (laughs) it it just turned into a square it's been so much fun guys and please don't forget once we get our podcast up please check out our amazing blog that misa does so much great things on we're gonna have not only just our videos our songs that we linked but all the other things that we talked about such as the amazing youtube video that we talked about for tim burton um behind the scenes all the behind the scenes yes a lot of the other information that martha and i brought up for our shows as well um and that'll be on instagram and then you can click on our link that is in our bio and please make sure you listen to us on your favorite podcasting service provider such as google apple play Oh, I always forget them. Not title. (laughs) Not title. Google, Spotify, Podbean. There you go. And Amazon Music. Whoop, whoop. Awesome. It has been so much fun, guys. Have a great night. Bye. Bye.